Welcome to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. I am your host, Todd Dandruff with Tellus. This is being broadcast live and recorded live on August 22nd, 2022, the time right now, 8.55 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. We have a free roll tonight. The free roll starts at 9 o'clock Pacific Time, five minutes from now. We accidentally had it set to start too early. So I ended it very quickly within minutes of it starting. If you were there and it just stopped, I apologize, but it is restarting at 9 o'clock. You then have 25 additional minutes to get in with late registration, as is always our policy here. And you, of course, start with a full stack, provided you get in within the registration period. So you can go register now, or you can wait until any time until 9.25 to register and sit down. And we're giving away $50 this week on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen on PokerFraudAlert.com. Just click on No Fraud Online Poker. And make sure you understand the rules to qualify by going to PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. I did change something recently to make it a little bit easier to qualify, but pretty similar. PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, all lowercase. 25 for first, 15 for second, and 10 for third are the three prizes being given away this week. And the donations came from two sources. One from Trey Daruski, our frequent co-host, and the other one is someone who wants to just be known as Late Fee. Yes, Late Fee, exactly as it sounds. He gave $25, so thank you very much to him, and that makes our $50 prize pool here this week. And we have money for future weeks already in the queue. If there's things you want to donate, money you want to donate, whatever, for the upcoming free rolls or other contests, uh, feel free to let me know. Every penny that is donated to the site for purposes of contests or free rolls will be given away. I will not keep any of it, and anything unclaimed rolls right back into the pool. Make sure to claim your prizes within six months of when you win them. Otherwise, I may roll them back into the pool. But if I take too long to pay you, that does not count towards the six months. So if you ask for it at five months and I pay you uh, later on, that's fine. You're not going to lose it as long as you ask for it by then. I do believe I've paid everybody who has asked who is currently owed money, though there are people who are owed money who have not asked for the money. So make sure to PM me, Dan Druff, on the forum. That's Dan with a space, then Druff on the forum. That's the preferred way. Or you can text me, 775-372-8355. Or you can email me, dandruff at pokerfraudalert.com, a lowercase, to claim your prize. And I can pay you in one of various ways. I can do it by Zelle, by Cash App, by bank transfer, by any kind of cryptocurrency that's a major crypto. I'm not going to pay you with some kind of shitcoin, but I can pay you with one of a few major cryptos or other methods you could think of where money can be sent online. So just get a hold of me and tell me how you'd like to be paid, and there's a good chance we can work something out. I do not have ACR money, so don't ask me for ACR money. I get that request every so often. I cannot send you ACR money. That is one way you can't get paid. But that's good because I can pay you real money. Isn't it better to get real cash money than money on a poker site? Anyway, those are the ways you can get paid. And if you want to call the show, the phone number is 775-FRAUD-55. That's been our number the entire time, 775-372-8355. And you can also call the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone 
which sits on top of Mount Charleston, which is a mountain near Las Vegas. It's always about 30 degrees cooler there than what it is in Vegas. Nice place to go visit in the summer to get away from the heat. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount, the Mount Charleston line. And then we also have the text number to the show, which is the same as the main phone number. 775-372-8355. You can text me before, during, or after the show, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And I will probably respond to you if you send me texts there. If you do text me during the show, I may read it on the air unless you ask at the beginning of the text, don't read on air. If you text me any other time, then I won't read it on air because I know that's not for on-air reading. So text me whenever you feel like it. If you'd like to comment on the show, if you'd like to say something as we're broadcasting live... If you want to suggest a story we do, I get a lot of suggestions for stories, and I take a lot of them. So don't be shy about suggesting things for me to talk about. I'll sometimes have people say, you know, this might be stupid, or this might be minor, or you may not want to talk about this, but... And then they give me something, and I go, oh, this is actually pretty good. No, I do want to talk about this. Thank you. So I can't research everything on my own as far as things to talk about. So if you give me ideas to talk about on future shows, then I will often take them. No guarantees. I may choose not to, but pretty frequently I do take these suggestions and talk about them. Though you don't really have to suggest anything that's a major story, like anything big that's happening in poker, you don't have to bring my attention to it, because that I will definitely see. But never feel embarrassed. Even if you want to send me something you think I may have seen, go ahead. I will never be mad at you for texting me. In fact, you can even criticize the show. If you criticize, at least do it respectfully. Don't be a dick to me. Don't troll me. But if you want to criticize something, say, hey, I don't like this, or don't do this type of segment again, or this last show sucked for these reasons, go ahead and do that. That's fine. Sometimes the negative feedback is more helpful than the positive feedback. Though, if you do like something, you can give me positive feedback as well. It'll make me more likely to do that type of segment again. I try to present what the listeners want to hear as a whole, not so much what I want to talk about. We have the call to listen line. It's very simple. You just call up and listen. It's not a way to talk to me, but it's a way to listen to me. And it does not require a smartphone, does not require a computer, does not require the internet or a data plan, and it doesn't use any of your data, and you don't need a strong cell phone signal to call it. It's just very simple. You just call up and you listen, and I promise, I promise it will never buffer. I promise it will never freeze. It just works. It's not like any other streaming media you've used where you have to have a decent connection and frequently it buffers and freezes anyway. No, 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 no. That's terrible. I hate it. So I designed the call to listen line never to buffer or freeze and it never has in its seven-year existence. That phone number is 518-931-1189. That is the only phone number for the call to listen line. Everything else you've had, please throw away because those are gone. 518-931-1189 is the call to listen line. And you can find all these phone numbers right there on the radio tab of PokerFraudAlert.com because some of these are not easy to remember. Our main number is, but the rest of the numbers are pretty tough to remember. So just go to the radio tab and they are all listed right there. Also at the radio tab, you can listen to the live show or our streaming reruns, because when we're not on the air, then it streams one of our more than 400 shows we have done in our more than 10-year existence, picks one at random, runs it in full, and then picks another and another and another until we come back live on the air. 
And you can find that on the Call to Listen line. You can find that on the radio tab. And you can find that on one of the apps that also provides the live broadcast. Speaking of the apps, just a reminder, we have various ways to listen to the show. In fact, a lot of them. We have iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Spotify, which is one of them I strongly recommend. Though I'll tell you one sucky thing about Spotify is whenever I have anything about COVID-19 in the title, they have this idiotic warning banner about learn about COVID-19 because they're afraid that I am spreading COVID-19 misinformation, which I don't do, by the way. I never spread COVID misinformation. I will sometimes challenge the common narrative in the media, but I also will challenge some of the misinformation from the right because there is COVID misinformation out there from both sides. So I don't ever do that. But just because it sees COVID in the title, it automatically has that idiotic banner to click and learn from probably the left-wing point of view uh, about COVID, which is obnoxious. I don't need that crap there. But other than that, I recommend Spotify because it gets the show quickly. You can click on the timestamps to get to the subjects you want to get to. It's a good interface otherwise. Then we also have the Bullhorn app, which uh, is also pretty good and doesn't have one of those idiotic COVID banners. And it also has its own call to listen line to listen in the archives. The TuneIn app has a cool thing in that we have two listings on there, one for the live show, which plays streaming reruns when we're not live, and one for the archives. Then there is the Stitcher app, which used to struggle to get the show in a timely fashion and now gets it blazing fast because I made some changes. It was problems on their end, but I made us more compatible with them because that was the only way to get it done. And then you can also download or play the MP3 file of the show, and that works on any device. So just go to the radio tab, and all of these ways to listen are right there, and you can click on them, and it'll take you to the right interface, or just download whatever app you need, and you can find us. Remember, Poker Fraud Alert are three different words, Poker Space Fraud Space Alert Space Radio. And you will find us there. And if there's a way you want us to present the show, which we don't offer yet, then let me know, and I will see if I can have us added to that. By the way, we're also on Amazon Alexa. Just say, Alexa, play Poker Fraud Alert podcast, or Poker Fraud Alert radio podcast, and it will play. Just say that slowly. And we're on Audible, which is also owned by Amazon. But if you have an Audible account, you can listen to us on Audible. In fact, if you search for us on Amazon... You will find us right there on Amazon.com. I showed Benjamin. He was pretty impressed that his dad's show is actually on Amazon. But yes, it's there through Audible. I'm going to give the agenda, and then we'll get going. Remember, we have a chat room where you can chat during the live show. If we're not live, don't bother. I'm going to tell you about Russian hackers and my endless battle with them to keep control of Poker Fraud Alert. We were hacked again. If you are on the forum, don't worry. None of your information was breached. This is no danger to you or your privacy in any way. I'll explain why when I do the segment. But I have had to deal with these Russian hackers again. And in fact, I was afraid that if I didn't deal with it properly, that Poker Fraud Alert might go down, at least temporarily. So fortunately, I think I took care of it. I will tell you that story as our lead story. Then, as kind of our real lead story, the one that'll take a little while, I want to talk about the Laughlin and Lake Tahoe boat rental damage scam, which 
most of you probably don't know about, but it's a pretty nasty scam, and one of our listeners was unfortunately victimized by it. So we're going to have him come on here, and he's going to tell us about his experience. I will read you some reviews of the company that he says scammed him, and I believe him given the reviews (laughs) pretty much match his experience. And then I'll tell you how you can avoid being scammed this way when you rent boats, because it's not just limited to Laughlin and Tahoe, but that's where it's uh, especially prominent. I keep getting requests to discuss California Propositions 26 and 27, which are about sports betting in California, which still is not legal as of this state of broadcast, which is August 22nd, 2022, even though a large portion of the country does have legalized sports betting. California, the most populous state in the nation by far, about 40 million people, still does not have any kind of legalized online betting or legalized sports betting, which is pretty sad. Anyway, these two propositions both seek to legalize it. So does this mean I support them both? Actually, no. And I'm going to tell you about these propositions, why there's two of them, which one I support, and I will give you all of the details behind it, including what happens if both of them win. So that will be our 26 and 27 segment. And if you're not from California, I think it's worth listening to anyway. Obviously, it won't affect your vote, but... If you're wondering why California is lagging behind, you'll you'll understand from that whole segment. And here's a little hint. This whole thing has to do with Indian gaming, which pretty much applies to the entire country. Sapphire Strip Club in Vegas is looking to be the first major strip club in the city to have gaming machines there. There's only two strip clubs where you can gamble while they're at the strip club. And neither are major strip clubs. This will be the first major one to get it if their petition is approved. I'll discuss that situation and why the state is hesitant to allow this. Conservative troll Alex Stein disrupted a Las Vegas city council meeting. I found it was pretty funny, so I'm going to play it to you. And then uh, I will discuss whether the city council was taking him seriously, at least most of the way. Well, we've been doing a lot of Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. So, don't you think it's time to skip a week? No, it's not. So, we're going to do a third one. Third one in a row. So, if you love Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history, then you'll be happy. If you think it's boring and stupid, then you will be unhappy, but you can always skip through it. This week, we are going to talk about Las Vegas. In fact, something very specific in Las Vegas. Something I know very well personally, and have experienced very much personally, and that would be Caesar's Palace. But not just present Caesar's Palace, because this is a segment about history, we're going to discuss Caesar's Palace from the very beginnings in the 60s to today. It's a very interesting and influential property in Las Vegas from the moment it was built. Gigi Poker is back in the news for running a bizarre combined stacks forward format, and that means that Every time you enter and get past day one, you get to combine your chips with other day ones you enter. So your stack just keeps growing. You start with a new stack and you just keep adding them together for day two. This has never happened before. This is a very bizarre format. And some believe it seems to majorly benefit deep-pocketed pros and stables of players who are staked. So we will discuss this. We'll discuss if such a tournament is even ethical to run. Five years after the 
infamous Stephen Paddock shooting where he broke a window of a Mandalay Bay suite and fired with high-power weaponry down on a country concert below. I believe he killed uh, like 58 people, eventually killed himself once the police got up there to attempt to stop him. Very, very big tragedy, the biggest tragedy in Vegas history. And Mandalay Bay, five years later, is now renumbering the floors in response to this tragedy. I don't know why it took five years. You should either just do it right away or not do it, but they are. Explain what's happening and how the renumbering is occurring. A man at a hacker convention known as DEFCON, which has been around for a long time. It's a very long-time convention that takes place in Vegas in August. In case you're wondering, I have never been to it, but I would like to go to it sometime. I'll explain why I've never been to it, but maybe one of these years I will be there. But he was ejected from Paris by a private SWAT team for suspicion of having weaponry in his room. I bet you didn't know that there's private SWAT teams in Las Vegas. You probably would figure there's a public SWAT team, one that the government operates, but a private SWAT team. Yes, casinos have private SWAT teams. So I will play you a YouTube video about this, and we will discuss the private SWAT teams and whether this ejection and the response that uh, occurred to the suspicion here was reasonable or if it was overkill and abusive. I always like a good hooker victimizes a unsuspecting tourist story. Not that I'm rooting for the hookers, but it's good to talk about on the show because it's interesting and sadly kind of amusing. So this time, two hookers stole a $35,000 Rolex watch from a man at the Cosmopolitan, and this guy may not even have had them up there for sex, which is especially sad. So I'll tell you what happened there. Finally, a shootout took place at the Wild Horse Casino in Oregon, that's an Indian casino, after a man attempted to rob the cage. I will tell you what happened there. It was an actual shootout. So, okay, let's get going. First thing I want to talk about is Russia. Russia is something that I have to deal with every so often. And I did again last week and this week. What happens is that there are these groups of hackers who attempt to get into sites in order to use them for their own purposes. It's important to understand that while there are some people in the poker and gambling world who don't like me, mainly scammers or other wrongdoers that I've talked about on here. But whatever, you know, there's various people that over the years have gotten to dislike me. But these people are not responsible for any of these hackings. In fact, never once have I been hacked by anyone who has been targeting me or Poker Fraud Alert directly. These hackings are actually done by people either in Russia or China who are part of large organized hacking efforts and organizations which hack a lot of sites at once and attempt to then use these sites for whatever purpose they're trying to accomplish. Usually these purposes are either spam, meaning they're using my site to send out a lot of spam email, or zombie computing, meaning that they're using my site to hack or scan other sites that they are trying to breach. You may wonder why they need this. If they have their own systems, why do they need me to send out spam? Why do they need my system to scan or hack other systems? Well, number one, 
computers only have so much power. They have only an ability to do so much at once. And in order to undertake a massive automated hacking attempt, or sometimes it could be a DDoS attempt, whatever it might be, they need a lot of different IPs, a lot of different servers involved. And rather than going through the expense of getting these themselves, what they simply do is they hack vulnerable systems, take them over, and then use them for whatever they need. So that's who has been victimizing Poker Fraud Alert. You might say to me, well, why don't you get a good security guy? Obviously, you're failing pretty badly as your own security guy if these hackers are getting in. Obviously, you're not very competent at this, Todd. So why are you continuing to manage your own server? Why not open up the Drew Wallet a bit and get somebody to help you? So the answer is that it's not that simple. I'm actually very competent at doing this. But the reason I can't keep them out is because I have a lot of third-party software installed on Poker Fraud Alert. And your security is only as good as the third-party software is. Now, what do I mean by third-party software? I mean any software on the site that I didn't write myself, which is just about everything. For example, the forum. I did not write the forum myself. The forum is a forum called vBulletin, which was produced by a company that sells vBulletin, and I bought it from them. I bought a license from them. And any security hole in vBulletin becomes a security hole in Poker Fraud Alert. Now, when they discover these security holes, then they will patch it and release a new version. The problem is I've made a lot of modifications to Poker Fraud Alert over time because I've gone into the vBulletin software and added and modified things for my own needs. And if I just drop in a new version, it clobbers everything I did. Calwatt is actually a big proponent of always having the newest version and not doing these modifications because you run into these potential security issues. And he's not wrong, but on the other hand, if I were to do that, then I would not really be able to make modifications to my own software unless I wanted to put a massive amount of time to remodify it every single time. Now, occasionally I'm forced to, like when I last switched servers, the old version of Poker Fraud Alert's uh, vBulletin that we had running wouldn't work on the new server because uh, that version was too old. So I had to then bring out the newest version of this particular vBulletin product, which is still kind of old because it was one they stopped and then they came out with a new product. But I, I updated at least to that last stable version and I had to bring in all my changes, which took some time and then some things were missing and it broke a few new things. So it's always a pain in the butt to do. So anyway, eventually one day, I'm going to be forced off this version of vBulletin because I'll switch servers again, and this one won't work anymore. It's just a matter of time. But for the moment, we're on this, but the breach this time did not have to do with vBulletin. And vBulletin is not the only piece of software we have running here. We have various pieces of software that are all integrated together by me to work together. For example the live radio broadcast. You may notice that you use the forum also to listen to the radio live, unless you're using one of the apps that allows you to do this. Uh, if you're just going to pokerfrawler.com on a computer or your phone without an app, whatever, then you click on the radio tab and you hear the radio broadcasting live. You can also listen to the streaming reruns this way. Well, this was not a feature of vBulletin. So how did I get it there? How do I have this as a feature? Well, because I took third-party 
radio broadcasting software that was something I got and then integrated it with the forum. So it works as if it's all in one place. It works as if it's part of the forum. Another piece of third-party software is the chat room. The chat room, which looks very antiquated and is, is actually a 2007 chat room that I integrated into vBulletin. It works. It works fine. In fact, it works better than our other chat room we had running for many years, which was a Flash chat, which can't work anymore because Flash doesn't exist anymore. So that's why I had to change. This actually works better, and it's cleaner, and it works on every device, but it is old. So that's another piece that I integrated with the vBulletin forum where it all looks like it's one piece. Also, the No Fraud Online Poker Room. That's another piece of third-party software. And then I have other pieces of third-party software that run in the background and you don't ever see, but are performing essential functions that I won't bother to get into. So with each of these, a new vulnerability is possible. And with so many different pieces of third-party software, then you're bound to have breaches. And the way these breaches occur is that the hacker groups will use automated tools to scan for the existence of this third-party software on tons of sites. So it's not even human beings doing this at first. And then when they find a version they know is vulnerable, they either have their bot perform the breach, or at that point, a human takes over and performs the breach, whatever... Uh, needs to be done. Once they have breached it, then they can sometimes get access to the back end of the site and can put in malicious software known as malware to accomplish what they want. And uh, sometimes they can even put in malware that gives them full access to the back end or close to full access. So I won't get into all the technical details, but they can do a whole lot. However, they're not coming in to look at any information on here. They're not looking for people's emails. They're not looking for posts that have been made. They're not looking for people's screen names and how they correspond to those emails, or they're not looking for passwords. None of this is going on. They're not here to look around. They're not here to download anything. What they're here to do is to take over part of the server and use it for their own nefarious purposes, for outgoing connections where they're either spamming or they are hacking or scanning from Poker Fraud Alert once they get a hold, once they get into it. So apparently this happened way back on January 31st, 2020, and I didn't know it. And over the years, I've had to get in there and flesh these Russians or Chinese out of here. And I've talked about it before on this show, and then I do and then I find sometime later they're back in. But occasionally I will find that there's another breach, which I didn't even know about, that will have been done years ago and they just let sit dormant and then they actually use it a while later, which might be intentional. I always wonder why this happens, why they wait so long, because for all they know, my site may not be around anymore. But if they have so many of them, I guess they don't care. Maybe they do this because they wait a certain amount of time figuring that if you haven't removed it that you don't know about it and you let your guard down. I don't know why they wait so long, but at some point they used this breach that occurred on January 31st, 2020 through a piece of third-party software to start scanning ports on other websites and other servers. And I got notification 
from the internet provider of Poker Fraud Alert that they have been contacted that abuse is occurring on Poker Fraud Alert or from Poker Fraud Alert. And I was given a warning that if I don't take care of this, that I'm going to be shut down and that Poker Fraud Alert, as you know it, will not exist anymore. It's going to be gone. So that's not good. So I obviously had to take care of it, and I was given very little time to take care of it. I was given a whopping 24 hours to take care of it, and if I did not take care of it within 24 hours, they were going to cut off my internet access for Poker Fraud Alert. So I jumped to it. I jumped to it. This is now about maybe a week and a half, two weeks ago. I jumped to it, and I thought I got the Russians out. But I will admit that I did not know the source of the breach, which is a little bit bothersome. Because whenever I don't know the source of the breach and just remove the malware, that never gets it done. And I kind of knew that. I kind of knew that in my heart, that this is not going to be it. Well, sure enough, a week later, they let me know that they've gotten a second complaint, basically from the same group of servers that was getting scanned, and they didn't like it. And I was told more seriously this time that if this continues, that they're going to shut me down. The first time they implied that, but this time they were more forceful about it. Now, I will tell you that at no point did they think that I was doing any hacking personally or I was doing any scanning personally. They were very aware that this was from a breach. In fact, even the warnings were treating it as a breach of my system rather than my system actually engaging in this behavior. So they were aware as, as a longtime customer in good standing that I, I wouldn't be doing something like this. But that didn't matter. The bottom line is it was happening and I had to put a stop to it as the administrator of this site. So I put several hours into not only removing the new malware, which had shown up in just that past week, but also in really tracking down what had happened, why it had happened, which piece of software was uh, breached, uh, updating that piece of software to a newer version. As I said, it was not vBulletin, so I had uh, it was a pain in the ass to upgrade that particular piece of software. I won't get into why, but uh, it was not vBulletin, so at least that uh, didn't lose any changes. It was one where I had not made many custom changes. I'd made a few, but not many. And I updated that to a later version. Hopefully that'll put an end to it. I then really spent a lot of time going through every nook and cranny of the server I could find and searching in different ways to find any kind of malware. I did run some scans with software you can get to do that. And I will tell you that software is pretty useless. It caught a little bit of the breach, but uh, the majority of it was still left there, and I had to go manually through everything and come up with my own methods to find these pieces of malware and wipe them off. So I did it. I wiped everything. I thought I pretty much got everything this time. I let them know, and then I held my breath for the next 24 hours. And sure enough, not only didn't I get another complaint, but also by taking a look more closely at the processes executing on the system, I did not see anything looking out of the ordinary. So it looks like I got it. Looks like the Russians have been sent back to Russia and uh, Poker Fraud Alert will continue. 
I do want to let you know if you ever see a suspension message or anything along those lines where the internet provider has suspended my service, that doesn't mean that Poker Fraud Alert is down and going away and we're never coming back. It just means that I've been suspended or banned from the internet provider, which, by the way, has never happened. I've never been suspended or banned once. When I have switched servers, it has been for technical reasons uh, to, to allow the system to run better and faster. It's never been because I've been banned or suspended in any way. But if this ever does happen, which would only be from something like this, then just you can text me, 775-372-8355, or you can just wait a few days and I will get up on another server and we will continue. may take a few days, but we will get up on another server. I make frequent backups, so I am all ready for anything like that to happen Obviously, I'm glad that I took care of this and this did not happen, but just letting you know if we ever abruptly seem to vanish like that, it's not permanent. You can also always check the Twitter, twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert, exactly as it sounds, and you will see any updates up there. I'll make sure that that's updated pretty frequently if we were to go down in that way. So you probably didn't notice any of this because there was no significant downtime. I took it down a little bit so I could make proper backups but that was in the middle of the night. Most of you probably were not awake when it happened. So to you guys, this was invisible. And even with the Russians in there, the system was running well. It was not bogged down or slow or anything. As you've probably noticed using Poker Fraud Alert, the system always runs very well and is pretty fast. So it was not anything that would have been apparent to you guys, but I do believe I've take care, taken care of the problem. So once again, I have victory over Russia, but... It is perhaps a fleeting victory, as I'm sure they will be back again. All right, so getting to what is going to be our real lead topic this week, I want to talk about the Laughlin and Lake Tahoe boat damage scam, which is a scam you should probably be aware of because it could really be happening anywhere and probably is happening in multiple other places. I just know of Tahoe and Laughlin because these are places I go sometimes that have lakes where you would rent a boat. But basically anywhere that has a lake and boat rental, this scam could be run on you. And it's important to understand the scam and it's important to know your rights and it's important to know what to do to avoid this in the first place and always go with your gut regarding this. This topic was brought to me by a listener I've been discussing it with him back and forth in text message. I was aware of this before he brought it to me, but I just never really ended up talking about it on here. But now that it's actually victimized someone who listens here and has told me about it, it has reinvigorated my desire to want to expose this whole thing and discuss this out here because it's very nasty and it is something very, very unethical. And it really is just an outright scam. So you might be able to guess already what this is when I say it's a boat rental damage scam. Your guess would be that they claim that you have damaged the boat when you haven't and they charge you. And if you think that's the scam, then you are correct. That is exactly the scam. But how do they get away with this? And why do they do this? And how can this persist without them getting in trouble for it? Well, I don't have all the answers but I have some pretty educated guesses in the whole thing. And there are ways you can both avoid this and fight back. 
I first ran into this, not directly, it didn't happen to me, but I first ran into this when I was last looking for boats to rent on Lake Tahoe. I rented a boat on Lake Tahoe a very long time ago when I was much, much younger. And it was fun, and it was no problem, and it wasn't that expensive, and I enjoyed it. But again, this was decades ago. I also have rented boats on Lake Mead near Las Vegas. And those experiences were fine, too. I never got scammed in any way. The worst thing I had happened with my Lake Mead rental was one of the boats I rented had a really, really loud and annoying beep that would just come on every so often, like just really, really high-pitched and loud and would hurt your ear and also alarmed me, like, what's wrong? Like, is the boat going to blow up? Like, what's happening here? Why, why is it beeping that loudly? Does this mean something major? I couldn't find any sign of anything wrong. But when it started happening, I was pretty deep into Lake Mead, and I didn't feel like going all the way back to the shore to uh, get this looked at. So I just kind of tolerated it. And when I got back, then I showed the rental company what it was doing and I forgot what they told me it was it turned out it wasn't something major it was some kind of sensor that was not working right and they gave me like half off the rental because of it so that was fine I was happy with that but aside from that I've had good experiences with my boat rentals I've never once been hit for any kind of damage nor have I been defrauded in any way by any of my past boat rentals so in a way I got lucky because I could have just as easily been victimized by this because I did not really take any precautions to prevent it I was just kind of a a boat renting noob I just was renting boats and assumed it would be okay but that's the wrong approach you should not do that I made the mistake I got away with it but you should not make this mistake in the future unless it's with a place that you know and really trust So what I saw when I researched boat rental places in Tahoe is that a lot of them had bad reviews, and a lot of these bad reviews said something which really scared me, that they were charged a lot of money when they got back for damage which either didn't exist or was very minor, and they were convinced either was there beforehand or was something inconsequential, and that the owners of the rental operation we're using as an excuse to charge them many hundreds of dollars. In some cases, some people claim they were charged thousands of dollars. You sign a contract when you get there that any damage to the boat you will pay for. Now, that's very standard, so you can't even say, well, I won't sign this or I won't rent with a place that makes me sign a contract, because you always have to sign that if you damage the boat, you're going to pay for it. And that's where they get you, because the unethical places will claim you damaged them when you really didn't or when there's extremely minor wear and tear damage that normally should be forgiven and instead you are charged as if they have to do major work and major replacements. So I saw warnings about this on Yelp in Lake Tahoe and I said, "Uh uh-oh, not one of these places, and this is a few years ago, I don't know if it's still like this, but as of a few years ago when I looked at the Yelp reviews about these Lake Tahoe boating operations that were based out of the state line and south lake tahoe area because lake tahoe is a big lake so there's several areas to it but i'm talking about the one where all the casinos are all of the ones over there i saw bad reviews that scared me so i chose not to rent a boat so i was not victimized i very well might have been had i not read these reviews beforehand and it was disappointing because i really wanted to rent a boat and take benjamin out on the lake but not from scammers well Something else I've wanted to do but never have has been rent a boat on the Colorado River 
near Laughlin and just kind of boat back and forth up and down the river. Now, you can only go so far in either direction because uh, either you run into an area that uh, you can't really continue because of the water depth or because there's a dam. But I, I have wanted to kind of just go down the Colorado and take a look at the scenery and just kind of travel down the Colorado. It kind of sounded cool. Well, I just haven't done it. That's the only reason I haven't rented a boat in Laughlin. It's just because I haven't gotten around to doing it yet, but I, I kept thinking one of these days I'm going to do it. Well, I might still do it, but I'm going to be real careful if I do. Because apparently in Laughlin, if you rent from the Laughlin side, which is the state of Nevada, it tends to be okay. However, if you rent from the Arizona side, which is Bullhead City, which is right across the river, so one side of the river is Laughlin, the other side is Bullhead City, and the two different states, Bullhead City is Arizona. If you rent from the Arizona side, there's a high chance you're going to get screwed, especially if you use certain companies that are notorious for these damage scams. Now, we're going to call up a listener of this show. First, let me throw on uh, Trader Ruski. What's happening, Drop? Trader Risky, hello. Thank you for joining us. And are you ready to have our guest on regarding the boat rental scam? I'm ready to hear about it. I don't know how long I'm going to last, but I'll probably catch the uh, end of the show. But I have been listening, so go for it. Have you ever rented a boat on one of these lakes in recent times? Not in recent times, many years ago. Yeah, that was pretty much my case, and I think it's changed since then. So you got to real, really watch out, guys. Just because you rented and everything was fine in 1995, it does not mean that today everything will be fine. It uh, seems to have changed for the worse, and it seems like uh, scammers are in charge of this now. So I'm going to call this guy, and uh, he's going to tell us about his experience. I've been discussing it with him a lot in text message, and I've been researching this myself on... Yelp and other places on the web. And let me tell you, I believe him. This is not someone who is not taking responsibility for his action, from what I can see. How's it going, Drew? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for coming on. And uh, can you tell the listeners what your name is? At least your first name or first name you want to use, whatever. Yeah, David. Okay, so... He unfortunately got victimized by this uh, boat rental scam in Laughlin by probably the worst and most notorious company for doing this. And when he told me about this, I said, oh, I got to look up this company. When I looked them up, I'm like, oh, my God, this company has like 100 reviews on Yelp and they have two stars, which is a disaster because anything that has less than three stars in any industry you've got to watch out for because people tend to overrate things. If they have like an okay time, they tend to get four or five stars. So when you see an average of two stars, that's terrible, especially because sometimes the owner will put in shill reviews where they'll review themselves or they'll get their buddies or their mother to review them. So that will throw off all the one stars because if you get uh, four one stars and one five star, then that still averages out to close to two. So, it only takes a few five stars to bring a one star up to a two star. So when you see two star for a business, that's a disaster unless there's like three reviews. 
but here there was like almost 100. So that's already a horrible sign. And pretty much every review on there told a story of being scammed, and most of them were very similar to David's story. You've told me the story already in text, but let me, I'll, I'll just kind of guide you through it and ask, ask you some questions. So you rented, yeah, no you rented a boat from uh, the Bullhead City, Arizona side of the lake, and it was called like Five Star Boat Rentals. Is that the name of it? Isn't, isn't that ironic? Yes, <laughs> which is probably not an accident. Yeah, the place with two stars calls themselves Five Star Boat Rentals, and they're anything but. <laughs> Yeah, it was uh, it was a disaster from the start. I mean, we should we uh, we paid for the entire day, uh, which I mean I don't think was that cheap. I'm not an experienced boat renter. This is uh, obviously my first time, as you're going to learn. Uh, but <clears throat> basically, they told us we can't come out on the lake until 2 p.m. because the water level is so low. Which I mean, we just believe because that's all you hear on the news lately, anyway. And so we wake up in the morning, and obviously the river is full of boats, so that was kind of bogus. We get there at 2, and it takes them another hour to get the boat ready. they got to replace the battery, do all this, that, whatever they're telling us. So we get out there, and we got about three hours to use of our full day that we rented, and they wouldn't uh, budge on giving us any kind of credit for the future or anything like that. So we already kind of felt like it was kind of a – the shady operation, yeah, and even before we got scammed, we, right. we, were, we were saying that now we need to just go rent from the resorts on the other side of the lake next time. Yeah, that sounds really bad. So you paid for a full day. Now, had all this bullshit not happened where they started you late, probably intentionally, uh, what time could you have started normally? What time did you expect to be starting? You started around three, but what oh, time did you end up, would, were you no, hoping you would have started? You can get out there first thing, uh, the crack of dawn if you want to. Uh, I would imagine this is when you start seeing jet skis and boats start to go out there. Well, they have to be open, though. So what, like, what are their hours? Are they open early in the morning? I think I think they open at 8, but I'd have to double-check that. Yeah, well, close enough. So so he, he tried to get a full-day rental, and they wouldn't let him get out there till 3 p.m., and they close at 6. And then he says, hey, well, can you at least give me a partial refund on this full day because you're not letting me start till 3? And they actually said no. So obviously that's a horrible sign. And uh, but you know, I guess you felt kind of committed already. You you already uh, arranged this whole thing. It was getting late, and it was kind of hard to shop around at that point. Is that why you continued? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then you had to sign a rental agreement. I know. What happened then when they presented you this rental agreement? It seems like they spotted uh, a newbie. I mean, I would. Uh, they, they were pretty much <laughs> clear and upfront in the beginning um, about, hey, this is what a propeller is going to cost if uh, it happens to get some damage. And then they took a uh, security deposit that was basically the same exact amount as a replacement propeller. Now, did they tell um, you beforehand, did they tell you when they were discussing the propeller how much it would be if it needs to be replaced? Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was $588, and the security deposit, which we were supposed to get back, was $600. So they told you this beforehand, that if you damage this propeller, we have to replace it, it's going to cost you $588. Is that, that's what they said before you actually yep. went on the water, right? Yeah, yeah, and we also had to record a uh, video with our faces in it, um, I guess for their proof later on. Basically, uh, they made it sound so innocent just as a, uh, you know, um, inspection of the uh, the property and just making sure everything is going to be returned in the same condition that it's uh, rented at. And they made sure to note, even in that, that, oh, hey, look, it's a brand new propeller. But it made no sense even then because 
the rest of the uh, boat was dilapidated. It looked like it was 20 to 30 years old. I mean, seat cushions were tearing up, were falling apart. It looked like a really old, shitty boat. So, what kind of boat was had it? This brand, had a, well, I'm sorry, what was that? What kind of boat was it? It was a pontoon boat. Okay, so it was a pontoon boat, and it looked very old. And the only thing new on the whole thing was the propeller, from what you could see. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and that, that's going to figure into the rest of this, as you guys might guess. You mentioned there was an issue with the anchor as well. I know this is going to be unrelated, really, to the rest of this, but you said the anchor was wrong for the boat? Uh, yeah, the anchor didn't even do anything. It was just basically an anchor that was put on there just so that they could say that the boat has an anchor. I mean, it was pathetic. I mean, it didn't do anything. It was uh, way too small for that size boat. Now, before you took the boat out, uh, I assume that you guys had to note any damage you saw in there, especially since it's an older boat. Did you have that process where you were uh, noting the damage on the boat? Yeah, it was the, it was the video that they did. Um, basically, just we walked through the whole boat when we took a video uh, of it and pointed out everything and basically made us agree on film that this is the condition that the boat is in. Basically, what they gave you was this old beat-up pontoon, even where the cushions were in bad shape, and the only thing new on the whole thing was this propeller, which they kept repeatedly stating on the video and to you and everything they showed you, and they were very, very big on how new this propeller is, right? Yeah, they, yeah I mentioned it a couple times. Um, I I really, really didn't think that much of it because I've never been out on a boat before, or rented one at least. And uh, But the person I was with said that they should have gone with their gut and uh, kind of figured something was up yeah. a couple of times that they heard heard that. Right. So, of course, this has to do with a scam, as you guys are going to see. So, you guys, uh, you, you spent the three hours in the water from three to six? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And how did that go? Did you run into anything? Did the boat ever get aground? No. Did, it, did everything just go normally? Yeah, everything went normally. I mean, uh the water level was really low, but we were careful, like they told us to be, and you know, I didn't really notice anything that we ran into uh, of any consequence. And, I mean, the, the propeller at the end was uh, kind of reflected that. There wasn't really much on it. Yeah, so then you got back, and you, you assumed everything was fine, aside from paying the full day and only getting three hours. So you came back, and then what happened? Yeah, we came back. We They drove us back to the uh, their facility, and... Uh, basically just looked at all the damage or the uh, condition of the boat and said, oh, well, we got to replace this repeller. There's some damage on it. And uh, I looked at it, and there were some nicks and dings, like, but it looked like it was, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I don't like I said, I don't know the first thing about boating, and I, I called my friend over and uh, said, hey, why don't you come take a look at this? Does this make sense? And, uh, and they, uh, then I kind of realized at that point, uh, with her reaction, uh, that it was a scam because right away, just because, uh, yeah, it was very minimal damage. Anything that you would have expected on the first day that you take a boat out, especially in a shallow river like Colorado right now, um, we didn't run into anything crazy. But I mean, it's not gonna, it's impossible to bring it back in the perfect condition that we that we took it out in. Exactly. So this is the scam right here. This is the scam that. They give you an old beat-up boat, which has a lot of uh, damage and other issues with it. Yeah, it's functional, but it's it's not in good condition. But they have a brand sparkling new propeller on there, and they make sure you know it. And then you take it out, 
on the Colorado River, which is quite low because of the drought in the West right now. And it's just about impossible, even if you don't ever run into anything, you never run aground, it's through normal use because of uh, rocks or other debris that's in the water because you're operating on a, on a water level that isn't very high, that there's going to be some minor scratches and nicks on the propeller. The propeller will continue to work just as well, but it's not going to look pristine and new, and they know it. So what they do at that point is they say, oh, look, you damaged the propeller. Is that what they said? Did they charge you that full uh, $588 to replace the propeller with some small nicks on it? Uh, yes, which is 480, uh, 488 for the propeller and then 100 bucks for installation, which I looked it up, and that, that takes about three minutes, five minutes, something like that. Yes, and so it takes uh, five minutes at most to put this propeller on. And then the 488, uh, the propeller, did you look up how much it would really cost if you were to buy the propeller on the open market, a new propeller? I haven't. Uh, my friend did, and I, I think they, they said that, yeah, that was way off too. But, I mean, I, I can't really confirm, but I would imagine that there's nowhere near. From what I've correct. seen in the Yelp reviews, and I haven't verified this yet myself, but several reviews said the same thing, that this propeller ranges between like 65 and $120 on Amazon. And yeah, it doesn't surprise me. So 488 is absurd. No one could find any propeller like this. It's not even like there was some cheap Chinese knockoff propeller on there for 65 bucks, and the, the real decent versions cost uh, 488 uh, There was no propeller of that type that anyone could find being sold anywhere for anything close to $488. And then the $100 labor is uh, considered insane. In fact, one person pointed out that this is uh, about $1,200 an hour in labor because it takes about five minutes to install. So, of course, that makes no sense. Uh, so when they presented this to you, and obviously at this point you knew you were uh, being scammed, uh, what did you say back to them? What was – how did the argument go at that point? <laughs> Me and my friend handled it a little differently. I – I kind of rose my voice for a little bit and uh, accessed my inner gangster a little bit on them, and then I just went in the car because I was going to get out of hand and I was I was too angry. So, uh, uh, yeah, my friend just uh, talked to him the rest of the way and actually made the manager who was working there cry. I, I didn't see this, but, uh, yeah, basically got the person who was working at the front desk to admit that, she hates her job. She knows that it's a scam, and <laughs> and uh, she was basically in tears. It was, it was funny. Yeah, so you guys didn't see the owner there, because I was reading reviews that the owner, who people say is of uh, Middle Eastern descent, he, he it's funny because he's responding to like every bad review, and in one of them he said, I'm not Middle Eastern. No one here is Middle Eastern, but uh, he kind of looks like it from what I can see, and the name kind of looks like it, but whatever. It doesn't really matter. But anyway, uh, this guy is said to be walking around there with a gun on his hip, but you didn't see him, right? No, I didn't. We never saw the owner. Okay. So you guys just had some unfortunate employee who has to enforce these scam policies. Then, of course, they get a lot of resistance and uh, the girl cried. Though I will say, you can't feel sorry for anyone in that spot. Because if you are doing scamming on behalf of your boss who's telling you to scam then while you may feel bad about it, you may not like doing it, you may hate doing it, if you're still doing it, then you're a part of it. You're an accomplice. And at that point, any kind of verbal abuse you get as a result of this, you deserve. 
because if you're helping bad people do bad things, then you deserve a bad reaction. I'm not saying anyone should have been violent with her, and nobody was there, but if you were going to yell at her and make her cry over what appears to be a, a pretty obnoxious scam, that, and she's the only one there, and there's no manager, then uh, tough luck on her. I've never felt bad for employees who are assisting with this sort of thing, and you said your friend even said that she admitted that she knew it was, but she has to do it. So uh, most of the things I've seen have been the owner himself being there and arguing it out with these people. So I, I guess this was unusual compared to the reviews I've read. Maybe he couldn't be there that day, or maybe recently it's changed and he decided to foist this upon another person instead of dealing with it himself. So anyway, uh, did they ask you to sign anything that you're acknowledging this damage and you're going to pay for this? Yes, but we didn't. We just left. And have you seen a charge in your credit? Well, I guess they charged the deposits already. They put a hold. So you actually see the hard charge in your credit card for 588 <clears throat> Right. The charge came through, and uh, we charged it back, and that was successful. So right as of right now, it's not charged, but we're waiting to see if they're going to fight that or what, what's going to happen from here. But uh, as of right now, um, we have the money back. Well, that's good. Now... Has it been 30 days yet, or is this fairly recently? No, this was only um, this was only like nine days ago. Okay. The reason I'm asking about this is because with chargebacks, what they will typically do with anything is they will temporarily make it to where the chargeback is either approved or it's just temporarily taken away from your responsibility to pay. This is on the bank side. And then they notify the merchant. The merchant has up to 30 days from being notified to respond and give their side of it. And if they don't respond in the 30 days, then you win by default. If they do respond within the 30 days, then at that point, they just decide at the credit card whether to honor your charge back or not. And if they decide to take the merchant side, then they put the charge back or at least make you responsible to pay it if it hasn't been taken off. So you're clearly not out of the woods yet. And given that this guy is responding to like every negative Yelp review in obnoxious fashion, which I'm going to read you guys shortly, I have a feeling he's going to respond to this. Often when you charge back to large companies that screw you, they're just too busy and too bureaucratic to respond in time. And I have had it where I've charged back to airlines that have screwed me or other large companies that have screwed me. And then they just don't end up answering in the 30 days and I win. And you do risk getting banned when you do this, by the way. So you got to be careful. You don't just abuse the chargeback. And, and I've never charged back when it was something that was uh, not my right to do. Like I, I would only charge back when I've been clearly cheated and they won't budge. That's the only time I will charge back to a business, big or small. Small businesses almost always do answer the chargeback, and sometimes they win, sometimes they don't. It depends on the person receiving the complaint and receiving the rebuttal. Now, I've got a question for you. Did you mention the reviews that many others have accused this company of the same thing when you did your chargeback? Uh, yeah, I, I yelled it at them as I was storming out the door, so I didn't hear what they had to say back to it. <laughs> no, no, I, I mean in the chargeback itself. Did you, in any documentation, did you indicate that uh, there are many other people online in reviews that are claiming that they have uh, gone through the exact same thing with this company? Oh no, we didn't. I didn't bring that up. No, I yeah. wasn't there. You, you may want to call up. 
you may want to call up and speak to the credit card company and say, is there a way I can yeah. put an addendum to this chargeback that I've done further research since, and I see there's many other victims of this exact same scam, and I'd like to add that uh, whoever is reviewing this should go take a look at Yelp and other review sites regarding this company, and they will see that there's many others over a period of years that are claiming the exact same thing happened to them. And that may actually help you because remember, the person reviewing is just a human being and they're going with their gut. Do I think this is a legitimate chargeback or is someone trying to rip off the company? And I know if I was doing this job and someone put in the complaint that not only did this happen to me, but go look at Yelp and you'll see like over the last few years, there's like tons of people right. with the exact same claim. I'd go quickly look at Yelp and go, okay, yep, I believe him. Okay, approved. That's what I would do. Now, I know not everybody thinks like me, but that's what I would do. Whereas if I didn't have this and I got your word saying I didn't damage anything and I had them going back saying, look, this is just someone who doesn't know how to drive the boat in low water and screwed up our propeller and now they don't want to pay, I'd have a hard time deciding who's right there. Right. Yeah, we did mention the Yelp reviews. We just didn't say anything about other people charging back. I didn't see anybody in the reviews specifically say, saying that. But yeah, that's that's a good point. We should mention everything we can. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I didn't see that either about chargebacks in the Yelp reviews. But I'm just saying that see if you can call up the bank and tell them that you'd like to add this for whoever is reviewing the situation to go take a look at the Yelp reviews for this business, and they will see that going back years, there are a whole lot of reviews alleging exactly what you are. So this has been something that's chronically happening at that business. And uh, it may or may not make a difference, but I know if I were a reviewer, this would make a huge difference in whether I decided to rule for the business or for the customer. So I I really hope you win this. I, I fully believe you here. I believed you when you told me, but especially when I read these reviews, at that point, that would remove any doubt, just in case you think, well, maybe this guy here is, uh, he, he damaged something and now he doesn't want to take responsibility. No, I, you, you'll see from reading these reviews, it's all the same story, and it's always about the propeller. And that's the reason the propeller is brand new is because they just had to replace it from the last piece. Right. Yeah. They really are replacing it. And this might be where they feel that they are keeping within the law. Because if they charge you for oh, a new so propeller. W- we kept we kept the propeller. Yeah. They, oh yeah. Right. Yeah, we were just pissed. <laughs> yeah. I still got it. Well, actually, did you send in a picture of it? Did they give you a way to send in a picture of the propeller? Um, that I don't think we did, but that's a good idea. We should, uh, yeah, we should do that. Yeah, I've never yeah. heard that people kept it. I, that's interesting. No one else said they kept it. Maybe they did, and I didn't know. But yes, if they charge you for a new propeller and they charge you for the labor of a new propeller, and then they leave the same propeller on there, then they could get in big trouble for fraud because they're charging you for something that they're actually not replacing. But here, when they actually replace it, then it becomes subjective. You say it's not damaged enough to replace, and they say, well, we feel it is, and you definitely damaged it, and they can show you the difference between when they gave it to you, when it was brand sparkling new, never having been in the water, and how you bring it back with a few nicks on it. Well, okay, well, that's too much for our taste. Uh, It's not going to work right. We have to put on the new propeller. So they are replacing propellers, but my guess is that they get a massive number of these propellers that they buy in bulk for maybe even cheaper than the $65 people are seeing on Amazon, and they are very happy to put on a new one every time if it's going to be 588 extra dollars each time in their pocket. So this is one of these things which they may feel like they can get away with legally because if they're actually replacing the propeller and it actually has some damage on it, even if it's a tiny bit that's meaningless, then okay, 
they haven't actually broken the law. At worst, you could sue them. And that's probably the way they're operating, believing they can get away with it. Now, I read some reviews where the police were called over there. I've read where the police have been called on the business, where the person feels like they've been scammed and they call the police to come over. And I've read reviews where the owner, in response to these reviews, and I'll read some of these to you guys, where the owner claimed that he called the police on people and that in some cases they ran out, at least so he claims, after he called the police on them because they were getting belligerent with him. As you can imagine, there must have been uh, some really angry and disruptive people when they come back and they hear they're being charged uh, 600 bucks for a propeller that is uh, barely different than how they rented it. So one of the reviews said that someone uh, at the police who came over, told them that they're tired of dealing with this and that they're aware that this business is doing these things, but there's really nothing they can do and that they wish this would stop. And I have to imagine that's probably what the police and Bullhead think about this. I do wonder why the city isn't clamping down, why the city is not taking away their business license over unethical behavior. But it's also possible that maybe someone at the city is... uh, being incentivized, shall we say, to not do this. There's a lot of different ways this can happen, especially in a small city like Bullhead City. And it's also possible just the city is is asleep at the switch and they are just not getting involved in this and and the owners are just saying, hey, look, we have a lot of disgruntled customers because the river's low and they don't understand when you damage something in a boat, you've got to pay for it. And then they get mad when we have to charge them. So uh, the city has to know by this point with how long this has been going on. And also, I, I'm reading reviews of other places that are not even owned by this guy. He owns two places, apparently, in Bullhead. But I'm reading about other places which are not even owned by this guy or affiliated with this guy, which are accused of doing the same thing, though not as often as these businesses are. But there's others that are doing the same thing. So I, I think on the Arizona side, it's a chronic problem. Is that what you saw? Yeah, that's pretty much what I figure about it. And w- what I'm curious as to your opinion on is how how these companies think that this is a smart business idea. This is Laughlin we're talking about that doesn't – it's not like Las Vegas where there's a flood of brand-new customers that have never been there every single weekend. I mean, you you got mostly locals, and you're going to need – you would think you're going to need to depend on repeat business in order to survive, but apparently not. I don't get it. Well, I actually do think it's smart – if you're willing to be a scammer and if you think you can get away with it because they're making so much money on each one that if you look at what extra you paid there, it's kind of like several rentals you did there, the amount of money they ended up collecting from you for this one rental. Also, this weirdness about not letting you go out to the afternoon on these full-day rentals. I've read various forms of this as well. I've read that uh, what happened to you occurred. I also read that People uh, would go out there and then they wouldn't bother to tell them that they're going to run out of gas after three hours. So after three hours, they'd run out of gas and uh, they'd have to call up to have the gas brought to them. And it, it seems like in, wow. in multiple reviews that by the time the gas got brought to them, they're kind of just done. They're, they got, it kind of interrupts their fun. And they're like, you know what? After this whole thing, let's just go back. And then they get greeted with the propeller thing too. <laughs> so, so that's uh, sure. another complaint. So it seems like these full-day rentals often don't really happen as described, and this also would probably allow them to rent more boats in a day than they have, because they can, if they can rent people in the morning, who then return it, 
and then rent it again at 3 p.m. for another, quote, full-day rental that they're just stalling someone with, then they can rent the same boat full-day twice, and they can make extra money that way. And every time, if they hit people with the propeller thing, then they're really raking in the bucks there, and provided nothing stops them, then they're going to do just fine. And the, the, I think they're not that worried about repeat business because there are enough people still coming through Laughlin that they don't have to count on much repeat business. If this were somewhere that was counting on mostly locals to rent boats, then they would be screwed. Uh, if, if it was just... Yeah, I, I, that just surprises me about Laughlin, I guess. Uh, it seems like... been out there a few times. It seems like it's mostly the same crowd to me. There's enough people coming through but Laughlin. I mean, but, but, I mean, clearly clearly that's got to be what it is. I mean, I, I just... It was just surprising. I mean, there, there's <laughs> there's got to be... Uh, plenty of people coming through i just didn't realize yeah now take a listen to this i'm going to read you this review this is from yelp or sorry it's from TripAdvisor, not yelp scam ripoff it says make sure you mark everything on the inspection do not sign until you do the inspection and see the jet ski double check the level of the gas before using it. inspect it right before you use it do not go in the office leaving your jet ski because they will put a damaged scratch and then you will end up paying for it Stay with the jet ski until they are done with the inspection. The helper will tell you to wait in the office with the manager. Do not go. Stay with the jet ski. Now, does that sound like it might be the same place? Yeah, it does. But guess what? It's not. It's a different place in Bullhead City. So Bullhead City seems to be full of scams. And this one I'm reading from, it's called Malo's Jet Ski Rentals. They're also in Bullhead. And they also have two stars. This time on TripAdvisor. I haven't looked at Yelp yet. But as you see, this one has nothing to do with this five-star jet ski rental, and yet they're accused of scamming as well. And I've seen this with several ones in Bullhead City that seem to do this. Not every single one, but I'm seeing with a lot of them. You really, really have to be careful on that side of the river. And Now, how many jet ski rentals are there in Laughlin? Because what some people don't know is that most of the population in the Laughlin area is not in Laughlin. Laughlin is actually tiny. It has a lot of tall casinos, not like Vegas, but it's got a number of tall casinos right next to each other. But as far as residential areas, as far as local businesses, there's very few. Most of it is across the river in Bullhead City, Arizona. So yeah, where could you rent from? On the, uh, on the Laughlin side, <clears throat> the only people who are renting jet skis and boats are the, the casinos themselves. Okay, so there's no private place in in Laughlin to get it from that you know of? Uh, no, I haven't seen them. Uh, the only the only businesses that have land along the river on that side are the casinos. So it's they all they all basically just have a boat lift or whatever you call it behind their casino leading up to the river. But is there a way you can rent from them? Because I've never known of that. That that's my concern. Oh yeah, oh yeah from from the uh, from the casinos. Yeah, that's. That's the way I'm going to do it next time. So the casinos will actually rent you a boat. I wasn't aware of that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's uh, probably three or four different casinos on that side that have um, a boat rental behind them. Okay. That's, that may be the way to go. because. And I was reading that in the other reviews that you should not rent on the Bullhead City side. That sounds like very good advice. I'm reading about other ones. Like uh, there's another one here, totally different company that has some kind of unlimited gas scam where you don't actually get unlimited gas and they end up charging you for gas if you use too much. So there's that's obviously not as bad as the propeller thing, but uh, still pretty bad. Uh, the worst reviewed one is this five-star place. So that 
says a lot here. You happen to get the worst one. But there's there's a lot of these that have uh, very few stars, like Aloha Jet Ski Rentals, which has two well, that's the, I think that's the same. I think that's owned by the same guy because that's where they dropped us off. Oh, really? Okay, so maybe that's why it is. I, I, I was reading he owns a different one. Maybe they changed the name. But uh, it's full of these one I stars. Think, yeah, about I, I the, think he's buying up a bunch of different properties. Okay, yeah. I mean, the same type of story about the propeller all over the place. Uh, one star, one star, one star, one star, all about uh, scam, fraud, stuff like that. And then there's one called uh, Wet and Wild PWC, which has three and a half stars, which is a little bit better, but tons of one stars there. And here's one of them from 2019. Don't ever rent this place. I rented two jets. And yes, it's cheap because they'll fuck you over at the end. If you don't trust me, go ahead and rent your jet ski here. Don't be crying after the rental. And then one of the people who rented from there in 2018 said when we went to return them, the first thing out of their mouth without spending more than a second was, what did you hit? Pointing to a chip in the fiberglass. That's a big deal. And uh, then they tried to charge them. They took $250, he says, for a uh, $30 wear ring that was already damaged, says this person. Another one put, beware, look elsewhere in a one-star review. So these are different companies I'm reading from. uh, These can't all be the same guy. Uh, I, I know he owns two of them. I, I hadn't heard that Aloha was the other one, but maybe it is. Uh, someone had named another one in the reviews, but there's another one here called uh, Watercraft Express that has three stars, and they're also in Bullhead, and they also have uh, a ton of one stars. There's also a lot of five stars. you got to question that when It's almost all, all ones and fives. This one is supposedly owned by a guy named uh, Howard T., there's a lot of uh, propeller ones, too, like Stephanie C. back in 2016 talking about the propeller, except in this case, she claims they replaced it with a used, already chipped one. And it does sound like the owner really is Howard because she mentions Howard. So this seems to be a different guy. I know the one who owns the other place is not Howard. And I see a, a, a small picture of Howard. And he's some white guy here. So he's not this uh, darker skinned, uh, maybe Middle Eastern guy who owns the one you went to. These are all different places. So you see what's happening, and what might have occurred here is that in Bullhead, they may have just decided that this is the way you make money, that this is something you'll get away with. This is what everybody's doing here. And they probably convinced themselves that it's okay for A, B, and C reason. Like, I'm sure this guy here who's doing it, uh, well, I can't say I'm sure, but there's a good chance this guy here that you're dealing with, that he has reasoned in his head why should i have to deal with damaged propellers why should i have to just take the brunt of my propeller coming back nicked why shouldn't i have a good working propeller that's in perfect condition every time because people keep getting it nicked and dented so you know what i'm going to charge him every time and as far as the upcharge oh well you know they deserve it for damaging my stuff and trying to get away with it that's probably how he reasons this to himself it's also possible he just takes the attitude of whatever way i can make money i don't care if i screw people as long as i get money in my pocket that's great i mean that's how a lot of scammers operate but some business scammers one businesses that operate unethically and rip you off they believe it or not they will sometimes reason to themselves why they're in the right And the way this guy responds to every review in a nasty way, which I'll read you shortly, would kind of make it seem like this guy goes to sleep at night thinking he's in the right. So I'm going to read you some of these things from this uh, five-star place because it's it's pretty unbelievable how uh, 
some of these reviews are, plus this guy's responses. And it's funny, this Howard guy in this other one, he he responds a lot too. So it's funny these people like to respond as well and argue with the people who put bad reviews for them. So we got this five-star place here. And this is on Yelp. You can look this up yourself. And if you want to have a laugh, you can take a look. It's got two stars, 93 reviews. And that's not even counting the ones which are uh, filtered because what Yelp does is it will attempt to figure out which reviews are shills on either side. So if it thinks that you're giving a one-star review because you might be a competitor, then it will hide your review for most people and it won't count towards the star rating. And if it thinks that you are a shill on the positive side, either the owner himself or a friend of the owner, then it will also give you uh, this filtered status where people don't see it and it doesn't count towards the star rating. And a lot of times the filter makes a mistake. The filter is over-aggressive. And I've I've actually written a blog a long time ago, which still actually applies today. But if you go to dandruffpoker.com, which, yes, still exists, dandruffpoker.com, you can see one of my blogs there is about how to beat the Yelp filter and get past that stupid thing that makes your reviews not show up. But basically, any new account on Yelp, if you just create a new account and write one review, either really good or really bad, it will usually get filtered even if you're totally being honest about everything and you really went to the business and you're being truthful about what happened. So there's a lot of filtered reviews, almost all of which are one star. So it should even be lower than two stars. It should be probably one and a half stars, even if all the five stars are legit, which I'm having doubts about. But there's like 23 reviews that should also be posted that I think are all or almost all one star that are uh, currently blocked by the system. But uh, these are all for this five-star jet ski and boat rentals in Bullhead City. I'd love to call this guy, but it closed at uh, 5 or 6 p.m., so that's not possible. But let's take a, a very recent one here. This is uh, actually written today, August 22nd, so this guy's still at it. So Lady S, that's her name, Lady S, from Moreno Valley, California, which is near Riverside, wrote... Don't ever come here. You will automatically get charged 500 for the boat propeller. Hmm, sound familiar? The lady inside is rude and condescending. The boat was dirty and old and had a ton of damages already. We had no choice but to take it. We got our boat and jet skis about 45 minutes to an hour late, even though it took me about five minutes to get to the dock. Please save yourself time and money. Don't rent from them. They will 100% rip you off. Well, the owner, who's listed as uh, Bariali B, already responded today. This is a review from today. He responded today. The picture that you are showing is the upholstery has nothing to do with the propeller. You damage the upholstery, gets uh, dried up in the 130-degree weather in Arizona. People jumping on the seat rips the stitches. So she, she showed a picture of some rips in the boat, and he's making an excuse because of the, quote, 130-degree weather in Arizona. Every year we replace the upholstery, but by mid-season it gets damaged because of the heat and people jumping all over the seat. I'm sorry that you damaged the propeller, but parts on labor, meaning parts and labor, it's not free. We put over 60 units in the water every day. Every day, some people damage it. Most people bring it back in the same condition it was given to them. You should put the picture of the propeller that you damaged. Have a wonderful summer. That was today. May 21st this year. From Mike P. I should have listened to my gut and listened to the Yelp reviews. 
do not run from this place. Got some normal wear and tear dings on the propeller, which the propeller is only worth 100 at most, and did not get my 600 deposit back. These people are crooks. They work with the mechanic across the street and up their prices. Four people saw the propeller before the actual mechanic, and they laughed and they saw it, nodding their heads, knowing they were about to make money off innocent people. Unprofessional. Save yourself some money and rent from some well-respected company. Even before we got to talk to them at the end of the day, there was another couple arguing, also not getting the deposit back. That's the sign they're doing shady stuff. So, again, same-day response from Barrioli B. We do a videotape of every vessel prior to leaving the property. I give you a pontoon boat with a brand-new propeller. Um, we, we explained everything to you. We showed you a safety video. We tape the reason we do the video is to keep honest people honest. So if you damage something, yes, you are going to pay for it. Parts and labor are not free. Then June 20th this year. Renters beware. Do not rent from these two businesses. They are the same scammer owners. Do not go here or there are other businesses which are directly across the street. It's called Waterworld Jet Ski Rental. That's interesting. I guess that's another one. <laughs> I did not read the reviews and it almost ruined our beautiful vacation. This business is a scam. They attend to bill you for damages and rocks and the impeller, I think they meant propeller, which is extremely common because the impeller is a vacuum that sucks up everything in the water. What is an impeller? They keep writing impeller. Maybe, maybe that's technically what it's called. Due to the low water levels, the jet ski was dropped off in shallow water. Upon starting the jet ski in the low water levels, the jet ski was in the rocks. The rocks could have very well been sucked in. The water conditions are part of doing business, and that is not the fault of the jet ski renter. The jet ski was older. However, it ran well until it ran out of gas two and a half hours into a four-hour rental. We were advised that for $20, they'd bring us more gas. We decided to end the day on the water. We were picked up, and an employee of the business drove the jet ski through the low water and rocks on the tow trailer. The rocks could have gotten into the impeller at that time due to the low water levels. Then, as if this was not bad enough, they told us we owed $110 for gas. The owner said the jet ski had a 17-gallon tank, and we emptied it. Despite that fact, we ran out of gas after two and a half hours of driving it. I walked back over to Waterworld Jet Ski to watch them fill out the alleged broken jet ski with gas, and it took 8.6 gallons of gas and had a 13.2-sized tank. Mm, so they were supposedly billed for uh, 17 gallons of gas for a 13-gallon tank that was only 8.6 gallons down. These scammers do this to poor, unsuspecting people all the time, and it's Time that someone report them to the Better Business Bureau, which I'll be doing as well. Please save yourself a lot of aggravation and get your jet skis from anyone else. These two businesses are one, and they are total scammers. By the way, something I want to tell this person, uh, Lynette S., the Better Business Bureau is not a government agency. They are a private company that just posts ratings of businesses and try to uh, intervene and come up with uh, solutions, but they can't compel a business to do anything, and they have no power. They are occasionally useful if a company cares about its rating, but I imagine this company does not, and they don't give a crap. So the Better Business Bureau is, is wrongly thought to be a government agency. It is not. The only way to do anything about them is to report them either to the city of Bullhead City or to sue them. Of course, you could write bad reviews as well, which you did. Barley B then responded. Again, uh, same day. This guy must be scanning Yelp every single day because he always gets to it the same day. We video every vessel prior to leaving the property. A jet ski gas lasts three to three and a half hours, depending on weight ratio, chopping into the water, and level of performance. May I say you guys were not lightweight. Oh, boy. <laughs> so he's calling them fat. He's saying they took so much gas up because they're fat. That's actually kind of funny. 
that is three and a half hours, depending on how it chops into the water. And may I say, you guys were not lightweight. <laughs> wow. You guys went into the shallow, sucked up rocks, which I have video of and will show you too. But, ooh, you're trying to deny it and say, no, you didn't. That's interesting. So I wonder if he does take video of people using these watercraft and then will selectively pick anything that he can show as shallow water and say that's what damaged it when almost all the water shallow. You start to get aggressive with the cashier and the cops were called on you. That's why you took off. The reason we do a videotape is to protect ourselves from people like you. The videotape keeps honest people honest and liars like you at bay. This is the same response I gave to your friend and brown water that you've seen in the picture that's all concrete part of the launch ramp. See, the person was trying to show that this area with the brown water it's like some blue water, some brown water. Is it really shallow water where they dragged the boat through and the rocks probably got in there? He's saying this is just uh, part of the launch ramp, so it's brown because it's a concrete under, which, which, which might be true. But, yeah, obviously this whole thing seems shady. That's why you run away when the cops got called on you. I have a police report from June 4th. Keep in mind these are all like within a short period of time here. It's not like we're doing the last 10 years, the last few months. June 4th, 2022, from Ruby C in Pomona. We had a great time until we had to return the boat. We got charged for damages to a propeller, $440 plus, when this is completely out of the consumer's control. I'm talking about a small scratch while navigating the boat through the river. The river ranges from different depths. How is it possible for someone renting a boat or anyone in particular to know how deep the river is in every angle? This should be disclosed to all consumers that the propeller is somehow going to get a minor scratch no matter what, and a... 400 plus fee will be applied to your regular rental fee. We had no idea we did any damage to the propeller at all until returning the boat. This is how minor of a damage it was. It was a family of three renting a nine-person boat. Then Barolai B, of course, has his response, this time a shorter one. When we give you something in good condition, we expect it back in good condition. If you damage it, then yes, you're going to pay for it. (laughs) From PWG... Do not rent from these criminals. This is last year, June 19th, 2021. I hit a small patch of sand for two seconds and scratched up their already scratched up propeller, and they charged us an additional $525 on top of $700, plus the pontoon stunk like rotten feet. Criminals. The cashier was kind, very nice, but watch out. They'll slay you. I'm pissed, and on my girl's birthday, too. How sullen. Look at my past Yelp reviews. I never leave bad reviews. I totally felt the need to let others know about this lousy outfit. They're going to scam you. I found the same new propeller on Amazon for $155. Renters beware. So then Barolai B, of course, responded back on the same day. He said, I'm sorry you feel that way. The propeller does not just cost $155. I'm sure I can find lots of stuff on eBay for a cheap price, but then you get cheap stuff and the pontoon does not smell like rotten feet. It's not a closed compartment. It's an open-air boat. You may want to check your shoes, sir. (laughs) Barrel I.B., despite what other problems he may have, he he does have kind of a good sense of humor. He he said that the boat doesn't smell like rotten feet. He should check his own shoes, this guy. Maybe it's his shoes that smell like rotten feet. He went on to say, uh, happy birthday to your girlfriend. (laughs) What an asshole. July 24th, 2022. These go on and on. I'm not going to read them all. We take like six hours to read them all. But Cindy A. from Downey, California. How is this place still in business? I am so puzzled by the amount of one-star reviews by people who've gotten scanned. 
Aside from this, why is that owner responding to each customer trying to justify his scam with an outrageous story about how cops were called, claiming to have video footage of the scene? LOL, this is ridiculous. Save yourself the trouble. Do not support this shady business. Barrel IB responded, I put over 60 vessels in the water every day. We videotape everything because videos don't lie and people like you lie. 95 to 97% of the customers comes back with the vessel in the same shape we give to them. 2% of them may have an unfortunate mess up. 1% idiots like you. (laughs) I shouldn't be laughing at this, but it's kind of funny in a sick way. That don't want to obey the rules and act like an idiot. They can do whatever they want and don't hold responsibility for the damage they do. Parts and labor are not free. If you damage it, yes, you pay for it. Okay, Karen, do you like this answer better? He's <laughs> calling this woman Cindy a Karen. <laughs> okay, Karen, do you like this answer better? Oh, my goodness. So there's uh, a lot of these. And a lot of responses from Barlai B. A lot of allegations of the people being liars by Barlai B. I mean, really, these reviews, there's tons of them, but they all pretty much say the same thing. And obviously, uh, I do not recommend this place in any way, shape, or form. I wanted to read this one because this, I kind of laughed at this one when I was going through it earlier. This is two years ago, but still. July 13, 2020, take two minutes to read this. It may save you a ton of money, says Jerry W. from San Clemente, California. If you're yelping this business, you're smart. I have only done a few reviews when it deserves additional attention. This place, this char- place charged $500 plus 100 labor to replace a propeller that was lightly damaged, normal wear from sand. Believe me, normal wear. The propellers on their boats are all new when you rent, so you bring it back with scratch paint, they argue damage. They make you sign a contract and don't pay cash. Here's the replacement propeller, part number 9411-135-15. Costs $64.99 at Bass Pro Shops. Wow. Took five minutes to replace the propeller, but still charged $100. That's $1,200 an hour for labor. And for the added effect, he struts around with a Glock on his hip. Believe me, you rent here, be prepared. And the five-star Yelp reviews you see, you know they aren't legitimate. That's from Jerry W. Now, Barrel IB, of course, had his answer. Uh, this time he took a few weeks. Maybe Barrel I was on vacation. But uh, a few weeks later, on uh, August 7th, 2020, he responded, Don't forget the mention after four or five times of a propeller hit in the rocks, how much does it cost to change the lower end of the engine where all the gears get messed up? 5200 and no, the labor is not 1200 an hour, so stop exaggerating. I think Barrelai doesn't understand basic math, that $100 to replace a propeller for five minutes would be 1200 an hour. States on the contract how much the propeller costs in labor. Now, I guess that part's true, but that doesn't mean you can charge that. As far as the gun on my side, this is Arizona. We have the right to carry a gun. That means we're not criminal, and we still have the privilege of carrying one. I think he's trying to say that we're not criminals. Do you go to a steakhouse and take your own steak and have them cook it for you? <laughs> he, he used the steak argument several times in other reviews where he's basically saying, yeah, $100 labor, you may think that's excessive, but if you go to a steakhouse, uh, do you complain about how much it costs to cook the steak? You're not paying the raw cost of the steak. You're paying an upcharge for the cooking. And are, are you complaining about that? So... Why are you complaining that we're charging you for labor? Which is a dumb argument. If something takes five minutes to screw on, it's not $100 labor. 
What about the positive reviews? Well, here's one from May 17, 2021. My family has been coming to the river and renting jet skis for our convenience. This year, we decided to go to Five Star. Lita and Barry were very friendly with amazing customer service. The way we look at it, you get what you pay for, and we definitely did. Great, hassle-free, and smooth experience. Definitely would recommend to anyone looking for a good time, because we had a blast. The Padillas. And this is written by a person named Anesa P., presumably Anesa Padilla. Now, does this mean Anesa Padilla is fake? No, this is probably a real person. Uh, it could be a friend of Barrel IB. It could be a customer that just has never had a bad experience there. And he asked them, hey, can you write something for us? Because trolls are writing one-star reviews for us. Uh, it could be a lot of things. But when you go to a business and most of the reviews are one or five-star, you almost always stay away. And I'm not even going to blame our caller here for not looking up reviews. I assume you didn't look up reviews beforehand. Oh, I, I definitely didn't. And, uh, yeah, big mistake. Yeah. So I'm not going to blame you for that. I blame myself a little bit. I'm not going to blame you for that because I actually didn't look up reviews at any of the boat rental places I went to as recently as like mid 2010s when I rented on Lake Mead. I ended up fine because nothing happened, but it could have, and I could have been screwed the same way. So there's just some things you don't think of looking up in that way, and then you're sorry afterwards. It's more obvious to look up hotels or restaurants. That's what you tend to think to look up. You don't tend to think to look up things like boat rentals, but the truth is you really just, in this day and age, should look up everything and see what people write. Because a lot of times when I have had bad experiences, I go later and look up the reviews and go, well, crap, other people dealt with this too. So I, I should have looked this up, and I didn't, and then I'm sorry. So, yeah, anyone reading this, I have to assume, would probably not rent there, though a few of these reviewers claim they rented anyway, and even after reading the bad reviews, which is bizarre. So this is something that happens all over Bullhead, apparently. It happens in Tahoe. I won't bother reading those, but I remember running into those type of reviews when I was looking to rent a boat there. I have to imagine a lot of places with a lake are pulling this scam. So let me give you guys some advice now on how to avoid this. And also, well, I kind of already told you what to do if it happens. Where, uh, Well, I'll tell you anyway, because I have more to say about that. But first of all, to avoid this, number one, most important, read reviews. Read reviews and rent with a place that has a lot of reviews, not one that has five good reviews out of five, but I mean, go to one that has a lot of reviews, 100 reviews, even 80 reviews, something like that or more, where there's few to no complaints about damage scams. Now, I can't say zero complaints because there will be people who legitimately damage the boat and then feel like they shouldn't have to pay for it. So there probably are some damage charges that people get hit with that they're unhappy about that really they should be responsible to pay. And then they go complain about it on Yelp. So you do have to watch out that you don't get misled by that. But anything more than a few of these, and with these being a small percentage of the reviews, anything more than that, stay away. Don't go, well, you know, I see a lot of these damage scam allegations, but the owner, you know, he's explaining that the person really damaged it. And I see so many five-star reviews, so this place has got to be okay, right? No. You see anything where there's a chronic problem with damage charges, then absolutely do not rent there. No matter how badly you want to rent the boat, do not rent there. Second, 
do not use cash. I cannot stress this enough. Do not use cash or you're never going to get back. Because when you use the credit card, then at least you have a way to charge back if this occurs to you. Then also, be careful where you go. Don't take any chances. Because as you can see here, very minor damage will often trigger these outrageous damage charges. And you may get back and think the boat looks fine and performed fine and you didn't hit anything and you're fine. And uh, it turns out it's damaged anyway. So anything that looks a little bit shallow or anything a little bit questionable, don't do it or it uh, might end up burning you later because they have your signature agreeing that you're going to pay for any damage and there's no way to rent a boat without that. Next, do not ever sign anything when they claim there is damage. Even if they claim you have to, even if they claim that you're not allowed to leave without signing, even if they claim that they're going to call the police and you'll be arrested, call their bluff. Say, no, I don't have to sign anything that I don't want to sign that is never required in America. I'm not going to sign it. I have a right to leave here. And if you don't let me leave, I'm going to call the police. And do call the police if they won't let you leave, if they're forcing you to sign something. And also, if they are holding on to your license or anything like that and say they won't give it back to you until you sign something, refuse. And if necessary, again, call the police and say they are holding your license hostage and you want it back and there's a dispute about uh, what they say is damage and you want your license back and you're happy to leave all of your information for them to take whatever civil action they want. So make it clear to the police when they get there that you are not trying to get out of paying what you should legitimately owe and you're, you're happy to leave all the information for them to civilly come after you if, if they feel that this is warranted. And then the police will take your side in, in most cases here. But do not ever be intimidated that you have to do what they're saying because they're holding on to your license or they're telling you you can't leave or whatever it is. Because once you sign, I acknowledge I damaged this propeller, then it's pretty much done for you. You're, you're never going to win at that point. Then also, definitely if this has happened charge it back. Unless you're 100% sure that you caused this damage, unless you're 100% sure that you did something that caused this to happen, that you really have damaged it, and that the amount of damage is reasonable for them to charge you this, and that they're charging you a reasonable amount. So let's say you did break the propeller. If they're going to charge you five times what they should be charging you, that's another problem. And if they can't justify this charge, if they can't prove that this propeller costs this much, or at least near this much, and if they can't explain why five minutes of labor is $100, then yes, charge back again. Never find a reason to blame yourself. That's what scammers want. Scammers want you to think, okay, well, this is on me. You know, I, I shouldn't have been so stupid. I shouldn't have been so naive. You should always fight back and not find a way to blame yourself. Charge it back. There's no harm in attempting a charge back. It's also unlikely these places are going to sue you if you win the chargeback, especially if they're doing this to a lot of people. They will just uh, accept the loss and move on, especially if you're out of state. The last thing they're going to do is try to uh, do an out-of-state small lawsuit to get 600 bucks out of you. That I guarantee that's not going to be their business model. So always charge back, and that's why you should use a credit card for these deposits. Uh, another trick I guess you could do – I wouldn't do this myself because it's too much of a pain in the ass – but one thing you could actually do, believe it or not, that would work if you are worried this might happen, if you really want to rent that boat, but you're worried this might happen, is use a credit card that you don't care about very much anymore and then cancel it before they can hard charge it. I'm pretty sure they cannot actually put the hard charge through after the authorization if you've canceled it while you're on the water. I, I bet no one's ever pulled this before. 
but you can pull this. In fact, uh, I know someone who knew that a hotel was going to hit them with an unfair charge. I think I told the story on here before. And they actually canceled their card before they checked out the one they had on file with the casino. And uh, therefore, they were in the driver's seat as far as how much they were going to pay because they couldn't just be hit on their credit card. So uh, I wouldn't suggest you do this every time you rent a boat. That's obviously not uh, convenient at all. Who wants to cancel credit cards? But you can cancel the credit card while you're on the water, and they probably cannot hard charge you at that point. So that's something that you can do as well. And as I said, they're unlikely to come after you civilly for this. So you can uh, get back and say, I don't agree with this, and give your information and say, you can sue me if you don't agree, and, and sorry. But I, I would suggest this not renting from a place that does things like this, that has any history of doing things like this. Always read a lot of reviews. Look at both Yelp and TripAdvisor. And if you're seeing more than one or two reviews about this scam, and if you see anything about propellers, that's especially a red flag. Because as everyone's noting here, it's very easy to nick the propeller without even knowing. And that the propeller's fine, and it doesn't require that amount. Also, if they are making you up front agree that you're going to pay some exorbitant amount for something that isn't that expensive, then just abort the rental right there. Say, no, I don't agree with that. No, I I don't want to pay $600 for a propeller no matter what happens. That's not what it's worth. Even you can stand there and Google. You can say, what's the name? You know, what's the brand of this propeller? What uh, can can I look up how much this really costs? I I just want to do this before renting. Don't, Don't feel bad about seeming like an asshole. You've got to protect yourself. So don't just sign to anything beforehand if it seems funny. Also, if there seems to be some real strong emphasis on damage where they keep showing something to you over and over and saying, if this comes back damaged, there's going to be a charge. If they, if they hit you with that over and over, just leave. Don't take the boat on the water because uh, there's a reason they are obsessing over this. And just follow your gut. Follow your gut regarding this. If, if the business seems like it might be shady, if the reviews seem to indicate that they have a pattern of doing this to people, don't think you'll be the lucky one or the responsible one who this doesn't happen to, because you're going to get burned. And there's especially no excuse to run into this when you have already become aware of it. So these are ways to avoid it. And once they've already charged you, and you have lost the chargeback for whatever reason, I don't know if he's going to win or lose the chargeback. I'm going to be interested to see that. I haven't seen any reviews where anyone's talking about charging back, so I don't know if anyone tried that. I would think they would, but who knows? It'll be interesting to hear if this chargeback is successful or fails, but a lot of times this depends on the person reviewing it, so you won't even get much info out of that either way. But if the chargeback fails, it's not necessarily all over. You can call up and threaten to sue them. You can also threaten a uh, social media campaign to bring attention to all the other bad reviews and bring attention to their business practices, and they may actually back down. They also may not, but sometimes if they think that you're going to be more trouble than the $600 that they scammed from you is worth, they may actually back down and give it back to you. That's, uh, in general, a good way to handle business scammers is make it clear to them that you're going to be a huge thorn in their side for years to come. And at some point, they may back away and say, you know what, fine, take it back. Uh, We don't want this hassle anymore. 
I've seen that before as well. In fact, I've helped people get back money where businesses have stolen from them with that exact tactic where I, I basically tell them that such and such uh, consequences are coming. When I say consequences, I mean legal consequences. I don't mean you're going to come down there and beat anybody up. I don't mean you're going to throw rocks through the window. I, I don't mean anything illegal. I mean where you're, you threaten various consequences of, of publicity and legal action and, and criminal complaints. And uh, you, you can even make up that you have influence that you don't. You can claim you, you know people at the local TV station, the local newspapers uh, the, the, of of popular internet blogs that write about uh, travel, they can't verify whether you do or don't. And you can claim you're going to really, really make this public. You think they'll believe me if I tell them I'm going to go on Poker Fraud Alert Radio? I, I think they will at this point. You can play it to them. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah th- th- this, th- this is something where it will work at times, where if you make a big deal, they'll back down. And at times it won't work. I'll tell you what never works. What never works is yelling at them, hey, you're ripping me off. You're scamming me. Guilt never works. You can't say, how can you do this to me on my wife's birthday? I mean, you saw, you saw the guy making this night comment about uh, happy birthday to your girlfriend. I mean, he's, he's mocking the guy for being there on his girlfriend's birthday and having it ruined. Uh, scammers or unethical businessmen never feel bad for the consequences on your end. So don't expect to appeal them as to don't expect to appeal to them as human beings because that that will never work. Don't expect to yell at them or call them scammers and get them to give it back. Don't expect that you're going to reason your way into getting the money back because a lot of times they know exactly what they're doing and it's just a matter if they can get away with it. So what you have to do is make it clear to them that this is not going to be free to them, that there's going to be consequences, and consequences that, much like you were not able to do anything to them initially for getting you, that they will not be able to do anything to you with what you're going to do back to them. You're just going to, you're going to publicize it everywhere. You're going to make sure everyone knows what they're pulling. You're going to get it in all the local media, in all the media for, of travel sites, that you're, you're very well connected with these and you're going to get it everywhere, and it's going to massively affect their business, and there's nothing they can do about it because it's the truth. They can't even sue you because it's the truth. You're, you're going to get together a class action lawsuit. You're going to contact everybody on Yelp and TripAdvisor to get together for this class action. He's going to lose a fortune, that you're going to spearhead this whole thing, and that you're willing to put a lot of time and effort into this because you do not take it lightly being ripped off. So this is your last chance. A, a shitstorm's about to come. This is your last chance. Give the money back. Sometimes they... Call your bluff and say, okay, try it. Try it. We're fine. Sometimes they're just delusional. Sometimes they think they're really 100% in the right and nothing can hurt them. And then they're also not going to budge. Other times they will budge. So you don't know. So that's another suggestion what you can do when they absolutely won't budge. What they want you to do is just walk away quietly. That's what they're hoping. They're hoping you're just going to grumble, say this sucks, tell them on the way out you're pissed off, and that's it. That's what they're hoping you're going to do. So uh, sometimes doing the opposite of what they're hoping will get satisfaction. And at the very least, if it doesn't, it may prevent others from being victimized the same way. And it might uh, also just uh, really put a dent in what they're doing or at least really frustrate them and you'll get some satisfaction out of it. Uh, Something else you can threaten is you're going to start websites that when people Google that business, that they will get your site first. Say, I'm an expert with search engine optimization, that I'm going to... Make sure that when people Google your business's name, they're going to get this informational website that explains what your business is pulling. 
and that everybody who Googles your business's name is going to see this first. And that's going to be up for the next 10 years. So you give this to them to think about it. Don't ever put this in writing because you don't want them to be able to cast you as a disgruntled customer that's trying to harass them. So don't put this in writing. Even if it's all legal, you don't want to put in writing that I'm going to do A, B, C, and D. Just tell them on the phone. Call them up and say, this is what I'm going to do. Don't threaten anything criminal. Don't threaten you're going to hurt anybody. Don't threaten you're going to vandalize anything. Drove, get this. So the speaking of vandalize, speaking of vandalizing, I drove back by there uh, like the next day. I was going to refuel on gas at the gas station next door, and I drove back by there and looked at the place, and there was like the the whole side of the building is just gravel. There's really nothing there, but then there's like ten huge rocks just lined up right against the uh, <laughs> the, the building that are just basically like. He's ba- it, it, what it looked like to me was that he's just daring anybody and anyone to come and throw a rock, one of these rocks through his window or whatever. <laughs> just what it looks like. There's no, there's, no, there, there's no other rocks around. They're like neatly lined up right up against the building. Hmm. It, it just what it, it's just what it, it, what it looked like to me. You know what? That might be something that is there on purpose. Maybe he has cameras all over the place to record yep. anyone doing it and then hopes he can get additional money from them or get them put in jail, or whatever it might be. Yeah, that that's very interesting if that was left there for that purpose. But yeah, d- don't threaten things like that. And obviously the guy carries a gun on his hip just in case anyone gets violent or starts to threaten to get violent when they don't like what's happening there. And he has the right to carry that. He has the right to defend himself there, even if you are attacking him because you're angry about being scammed. So... Don't even threaten things like that. That's not the right way to go. The right way to go is to threaten to shine a major light on everything. Because as I always say on the show, scammers love secrets. Scammers do not like their practices being known to the public on the internet or elsewhere. They don't want people to know. I was going to suggest we need uh, Chris the Moneymaker to go rent a boat. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, anything that uh, brings light to this issue. I wonder why the local TV stations haven't done a report on this yet. Like in Las Vegas, there's some stations. I know Channel 8 used to do this. I think Channel 13 did this sometimes, where if you would bring concerns like this that are occurring in the Las Vegas area, that they would go investigate and attempt to interview the business owner and they would often shame a lot of uh, shady local businesses for things they're doing. And, And I gave them props for this, these TV stations doing it. So I don't know if uh, Laughlin, Bullhead City has the same thing. There's actually three cities in that area in three different states. There is Needles, California. There is Laughlin, Nevada. And there's Bullhead City, Arizona. And they're all right around the Colorado River. And it's in an area I call Three Corners because it's where California, Nevada, and Arizona all meet. So it's called the Tri-State Area in the Southwest there's a few names for it, but it's Needles, Laughlin, and Bullhead City. So I'm surprised there's no media outlet there that's willing to do a story on this or if they're even aware of this. That may be something worth contacting and just showing them these reviews and even shining a light on that 
in that way can sometimes spur the city to do something about this because what the city can eventually do is revoke the business licenses of the businesses that are behaving in this fashion and provided that there's no corruption on the city level which is a big if because many small cities have corruption i have lived in some small cities where there's substantial corruption in the city government but it provided there's not and provided that they aren't just do nothings there then they may not like this either especially if it's wasting the police department's time over and over but i have to imagine they're aware of this because if the police keep getting called about these matters i'm sure the police are very aware of what's happening and i'm sure the police have told the city what's happening and the city not doing anything about this is pretty suspicious so just be aware and not just in laughlin make sure to look at this anywhere you rent boats do not ever rent a boat without looking at the reviews first now if it is associated with a very large organization like a large company then it's not that likely this will happen. Like, for example, if a Harris Laughlin rent boats, I don't know if they do or don't, but if they do, it's not likely Harris Laughlin's going to do this to you. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's not that likely because they're not a small operation. They're not going to risk their good name on, on some kind of small-time scam like this. So the, the bigger the organization, the less likely they are to do this. But also... You're just going to get the Philippines. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's the one problem. Even a, a smaller operation that has tons of good reviews with almost nothing bad, they're unlikely to do this to you. And something that has tons of reviews like this, they're pretty likely to do this to you. So keep that in mind. And while I have, was not present for any of this, and I can't say with 100.0% certainty that there's anything shady going on there, I think common sense from listening to this phone call and from reading these reviews on Yelp, I think it's pretty obvious what's happening, especially if you read the reviews of other similar places in town, both owned by this same person and not owned by the same person. It seems to be a chronic problem in the Bullhead City area. And as I said, I saw allegations of this in Tahoe as well, repeatedly with some operations. So, Beware, just something to know is happening. And, and I thank you for coming on to tell us about this. And this is something I'm definitely going to really watch out for if I ever do rent that boat on the Colorado River. Yeah, I will uh, keep you posted on everything. And I really appreciate you doing this. I literally texted Druff yesterday about this and he put this whole thing together in like a day. So that was, is really, uh, means a lot. And I did not expect it. So yeah, it was, just, it, it, and I had a blast too. It was, cool being on here okay well thank you very much for coming on david and uh we will talk to you later yep have a good one all right well i hope you uh found this segment interesting now i want to talk about the propositions 26 and 27 in california regarding sports betting and if you're not in california then you may say this segment is something that does not interest you because it's a state that has nothing to do with you. But there's a lot of interesting elements to this, and a lot of this has to do with Indian gaming. And that's why I think everyone should pay attention to the stuff we're talking about here because it really applies to Indian gaming everywhere, which has expanded big time across the country. 
So California has a pretty crappy situation with online gambling right now and with sports betting. And when I say it's crappy, it is non-existent. It's more than crappy. It just doesn't exist. In the most populous state in the nation by far, we're about one in eight people in the country live in California. It's close to one in eight, a little bit less, but it's close to one in eight. Between one in eight and one in nine people live in California if they're in the U.S. It's a huge state, 40 million people, but no online poker, no online gambling of any kind, no sports betting. There are casinos. You can go to brick and mortar casinos. You can play video poker. You can play slots. You can play blackjack. Believe it or not, you cannot play dice game like craps. You cannot play roulette. So there's a lot of casino games you can't even play in the state. So you're basically limited to table card games, poker, and machines. And these all have to be Indian casinos except for poker rooms. Poker rooms don't have to be Indian. So Commerce isn't Indian. Bay 101 isn't Indian. The bike isn't Indian. But anything that offers real blackjack or any kind of gambling machine, those do have to be Indian casinos or they also can't operate in the state. And there's nowhere that you could sports bet legally in the state. So pretty bad gambling situation in California. And some people are surprised by this because the perception is that Democrats support the expansion of legalized gambling and Republicans oppose it. And it's easy to picture this because you picture these puritanical religious Christian Republicans saying, oh, no, 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 gambling is a sin. You cannot have gambling. It is very, very sinful. We can't allow this. And then the Democrats are like, oh, yeah, 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 freedom, freedom, freedom. That's not really the way it is. The truth is there are Republicans that support the expansion of legalized gambling and Republicans against it. There are Democrats who support the expansion of legalized gambling and Democrats against it. And California being a very blue, highly democratic state, just controlled up and down by Democrats. Maybe a few local areas are controlled by Republicans, but at the state level, it is controlled immensely by Democrats. It is lagging behind in legalized gambling. So that shows you it's not really a partisan issue. And the real reason that California has been stuck here and has not been able to legalize anything is because of the Indian tribes. I absolutely hate Indian gaming. Indian gaming was meant to bring Indian tribes out of poverty. It started with a noble purpose. The noble purpose is to make Indian tribes self-sufficient, to increase employment, to fund social services for these tribes, which are often in dire need of them. Tribes can take care of themselves. Their poverty can end. Their lack of social services will no longer be a problem. And people can go to them and gamble and have fun, and then the tribes will be supported. And people even feel good because there's a lot of allegations, some probably true, about the mistreatment of Native Americans, a.k.a. Indians, in the past, of course, this is the distant past before any of us were born, but you know the country's history that there's a lot of sympathy for the plight of the Native American, and there probably was some mistreatment way back when. So this makes people feel even better that this may help them to finally 
rise out of their cycle of poverty. However, like many well-meaning programs, it failed, and it did not become what it was supposed to be, and it got taken advantage of, and it grew in all kinds of ways it wasn't really intended to do. So what ended up happening was that Indian tribes that had casinos would make a few members of the tribe really, really rich, and most of the rest of the tribe was not all that rich. And not everybody working at these places were members of the tribe. There were many outsiders working there. In fact, I I know someone personally who works in an Indian casino in California that is not Native American in any way. And these tribes remained poor, and all the issues that they thought it might solve were not being solved, just made a few of these Native Americans very rich. And as far as the customers of these casinos, they were getting screwed left and right because you have no consumer rights on Indian land. If you have any dispute with an Indian casino, then you cannot sue them in state court. You must sue them in tribal court. You have to sue them in their own court. Well, as you can imagine, if you're suing the tribe in their own court, you know how it's going to be ruled. It's always going to be against you, so there's no point. But it goes beyond getting screwed from a civil standpoint. You can also be screwed from a criminal standpoint where they can arrest you on very flimsy charges, such as engaging in advantage play there where they can falsely accuse you of cheating. They can arrest you and they can charge you and you're going to be criminally charged in their tribal court. So this is a disaster. Their courts should never be adjudicating anything involving matters that occur at their casinos. These should always be heard at outside courts that are not affiliated with them. But that's not the way it is. That's not the way it is in California. That's not the way it is anywhere in the country. The tribal land has its own tribal justice system. And when you set foot on their land, you set foot in their casinos, you are part of it. And so basically, you have no recourse if they screw you. And that's awful. That's absolutely terrible in a casino environment. The only recourse you have is to try to shame them on social media or maybe on traditional media if the story is big enough and they are willing to cover it. Other than that, you have no power if they screw you. And some people don't realize that, but it's awful. It's a terrible situation. It's one we should not have in this country. The fact that this was ever allowed in the first place as part of this model is mind-boggling. I don't know how these idiots who thought this was okay, these idiots at the state level who first approved this, I believe the first Indian casinos were in California. Maybe they weren't, but uh, whenever these first popped up, the fact that they were basically considered a sovereign nation when it comes to any disputes is just absolutely terrible. What the state should have said before allowing Indian gaming was, we know you're considering yourself sovereign land and all that, and under normal circumstances, we're okay with that, but if you want to have gaming then you have to agree that anything that occurs here will be adjudicated in an outside court. And if you don't like it, then you're not going to get Indian gaming. You're not going to have gaming in the state. And of course, the state can say that because the state is what authorizes them to offer this gaming in the first place. Like, why is there no sports betting right now in certain states like California? Why don't the Indians just do it anyway? Because it's their land. Well, because they can't, because they are still part of the state and the state has to allow this. So the state could have said, you know what? You're not going to exist unless you provide a better way for consumers in some dispute 
to get this adjudicated in court or consumers who are being accused of some wrongdoing that whether it's civil or criminal, it has to be heard outside of your tribe. Nope, they never required that. So I am very, very anti-Indian casino and anything that they want, I tend not to want because I don't want to see them expand their power any further. They also are very selfish when it comes to power. They don't want to share. They do not want anyone else having a piece of their pie. And that's what these propositions are all about. 26, in a nutshell, is that they pretty much have almost all, and I'll give you the exception shortly, but they have almost all the action with sports betting. 27 basically says everybody gets to have a piece of the pie in sports betting. When I say everybody, I don't mean any average Joe can just set up a bookmaking operation in their house. I mean that uh, any existing licensed gambling operation like the many card rooms and companies like FanDuel and ones like that can offer sports betting. So that's in a nutshell what 26 and 27 are and the difference between them. And these are two separate propositions on the November ballot this year in California regarding authorizing legalized sports betting. And they're in bitter competition with one another. Bitter competition. The question is, and I think you already might have a guess, a pretty good guess of which one I support and which one I don't. The question is, which one should you support? Should you support neither? Should you support both? And what are all the details? And of course, a very big question that everybody has is, what happens if both of them pass? And I will answer that for you. So let me start by describing what each of these propositions does. Then we will analyze them. So Proposition 26 allows for in-person sports betting only at tribal casinos and four racetracks in California. Now, the racetracks are not tribal. The racetracks are just racetracks where you can bet on horses. And the tribal casinos have decided that they're willing to allow these racetracks to get in on the sports betting action. Now, why are they okay with that? Why why don't they want to exclude the racetracks? Well, because they need allies in this because they're fighting against the rest of the card rooms in California and FanDuel and DraftKings and all that. So they need allies and the racetracks are not otherwise that much of a threat to them because the racetracks are not casinos. The racetracks are just racetracks. So they're like, okay, it's not a huge deal to us if racetracks offer sports betting along with us because people will be coming to our casinos anyway. Uh, and the racetracks, they don't really go to that instead of casinos. So we're, we're pretty much okay with that. They'd rather have the whole thing themselves, but they're willing to include the racetracks. So the racetracks and the Indians here are in cahoots with this one. Then it also authorizes additional table games because remember, they don't have a full list of table games they can offer. They can offer card games, but they can't offer, uh, as I said, things like uh, craps and roulette. So this would allow them to add additional table games to their offerings, including craps and roulette. It requires anyone who wants to place a bet to be 21 years or older, and they have to present ID to place bets. And it enacts a 10% tax on profits from sports betting at racetracks that would go 
to programs for gambling prevention, mental health, and the general fund. General fund meaning for the state. And keep in mind that this is not taxing the casinos the same way. It's only the racetracks. So this is what the racetracks have to give up in order to be part of this effort, is that uh, they have to pay a 10% tax on whatever profits they make in sports betting. Not in gross money bet, but in the profit when it's all said and done on the sports betting part of their operation, they have to take 10% and cough that up to the government for gambling prevention programs, mental health programs, and the California General Fund. That's 26. Here's 27. 27 allows online and mobile sports wagering. So remember, this is not just uh, in-person betting. This is online and mobile sports wagering for people 21 plus at established online betting sites like FanDuel. It establishes something called the California Online Sports Betting Trust Fund, which I'll explain in a little bit. Wagering may be offered by federally recognized Indian tribes and eligible businesses that contract with them, meaning that Indian tribes can get involved with this too, as can other businesses working with them that make contractual agreements to provide it through them. So they can also offer this in person. And it allocates tax revenue to homeless programs and some of California's tribes. So it claims to give a little piece of this to the tribes as well. As you can imagine, 26 is supported by the Indian tribes, such as the Pachanga Band of Luceno Indians, the Yosha Dehe Wintu Nation and Agua Caliente Band of Indians, and other Indian tribes. Proposition 27 is supported by BetMGM LLC, FanDuel, and DraftKings. So basically, you have FanDuel and DraftKings and the big casinos on one side, and you have the Indian casinos on the other, and they've got the racetracks with them too. And there has been a lot of bitterness on both sides because these are dueling propositions. Now, what if both pass? Because both can fail, one can pass and one can fail, and both can pass. So what if both pass? You, you have some contradictory information here. The California Constitution says very clearly that if there are two ballot measures that conflict and they both pass, the one that passes by a higher percentage of the vote takes effect and the other one is ignored. Now, the authors of Prop 27 were a little afraid, hey, what if both of them win, but we don't win by as much? They wrote into their measure a provision that says, we, the people of California, declare that Proposition 27 does not conflict with Proposition 26. Well, that's dumb. You, know, you can declare it all you want. That doesn't make it true. I, I can declare that Santa Claus slides down my chimney every December 24th and leaves gifts for my son, but that doesn't mean he actually does. You can declare anything you want, but uh, that doesn't make it true. I do believe these have uh, conflict, and I do think this is going to be a problem if both pass. But they're attempting to put that in there because the authors of 27 want to get something out of it if they finish in second place but still pass. I don't think the courts are going to be okay with that. They're going to do an independent analysis of whether they can be operated together or whether one would conflict with the other. 
and that would only happen if they both pass. And I have a feeling that they will be considered in conflict and only one will be declared a real winner. But as I said, they are two separate measures and you're voting on them separately. There has been a lot of TV and radio ads and internet ads attempting to bash the opposing proposition. So the 26 people are putting out a lot of ads bashing 27, and the 27 people are putting out a lot of information about 26, and there's a lot of misinformation on both sides or misleading information. So I'm going to play you one of them. This is uh, one of the ads by those who are pro-26 trying to bash 27. California voters beware. Prop 27 is being promoted by out-of-state gambling corporations. It would authorize a massive expansion of online sports gambling in California, turning every cell phone, laptop, and tablet into a gambling device that could lead to more addiction, financial ruin, and homelessness. Vote no on 27, the corporate online gambling proposition. Ad paid for by Yes on 26, No on 27, Coalition for Safe Responsible Gaming, sponsored by California Indian Tribes. Committee major funding from Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria, Pachanga Band of Indians. You heard the end there who really was behind this. Okay, I'm going to play this again now. I'm going to stop it and comment on each claim they make. California voters beware. Prop 27 is being promoted by out-of-state gambling corporations. Okay, true. But what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that, really? Why does it have to be in-state gambling corporations? I have news for you. A lot of things that you buy every day in your state are mainly benefiting out-of-state corporations. Why Why does everything have to be local? I mean, I guess it's nice if it's local, but it doesn't have to be local. So just because out-of-state corporations are going to benefit from 27 doesn't mean 27 is bad. It just means that the companies that are going to benefit from 27 happen to not reside in California. But who cares? The, the main question is which is better for the people. Let's go on. It would authorize a massive expansion of online sports gambling. In- yeah, I would. That's true. However, the Indian casinos want to do a massive expansion of sports betting in their brick and mortar casinos. It's not online, but how can the Indian gaming interests be complaining about the expansion of gambling? That's what they always want. They want more gambling. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the future that they try to ask for online sports betting to be allowed. 26 doesn't authorize that, but I wouldn't be surprised in the future if they ask for that. And the truth is, you either have sports betting or you don't. And whether it's online or not online shouldn't really matter. California, turning every cell phone, laptop, and tablet into a gambling device. Oh, every cell phone, laptop, and tablet is a gambling device. Ooh, well, guess what? It already is. It's not that hard to Google bet on sports and find a lot of different sites, some of which will never pay you to take your money. So it's actually better if we get legalized and regulated online sports gambling, provided that the lines are okay. If they're 15 or 20 cent lines or it's impossible to beat them long term, that will suck. But Provided that doesn't happen, provided we have normal lines, it's much better to have them licensed and regulated by the state government than these offshore operations, some of which will never pay you. So that's not a bad thing 
that it's being changed to that. That's not a good argument. That could lead to more addiction, financial ruin, and homelessness. What do your casinos do? Have the Indian casinos not led to people having gambling addiction, financial ruin, and homelessness? I saw plenty personally. Last time I spent a lot of time at Harris Rincon, a.k.a. Harris Resort, Southern California, which is an Indian casino, I saw a group of people hung out there that basically lost all their money gambling, they were addicted to meth, and they still hung out at the casino every day begging. In fact, I was one of the people they begged. So I beg to differ that restricting the gambling to brick-and-mortar casinos prevents gambling addiction. It doesn't. Again, either you support gambling or you don't. You can't have this middle ground where the brick-and-mortar casinos is okay, but online is terrible. No, no, no. Vote no on 27, the corporate online gambling proposition. Okay, but what's wrong with that? What's wrong with the corporate online gambling proposition? Don't you want corporations managing the online gambling? Who who do you want to manage the online gambling? Uh, Joe the bookie in his mom's basement? Is that who you want managing your online gambling? Or the Indian tribes where you can't sue them except in their own tribal court? What's wrong with corporate interests managing online gambling? Tell me that. Who, Who should manage it if not corporate interests? And I'm not a big corporate kiss ass, but I'll tell you what I want managing my online gambling is a corporation that is licensed and regulated that I can sue if there's a problem and that I can make a complaint about to the state if there's a problem. That's the ideal situation. So I don't even know what they're criticizing here. So and then the rest of this is just them saying who this was paid for by, which they're required to, which gives away this is really the uh, Pro 26 interest. <laughs> so I'll tell you some facts about uh, 26 and uh, the truth on 26, and then some facts on 27 and the truth on 27, and then we'll discuss what to vote for. So on the Yes on 26 website, they claim that uh, it's going to authorize in-person sports wagering at tribal casinos and four racetracks. That is true. They also claim they're going to authorize craps and roulette at these casinos. That is true. They claim that they're going to establish safeguards to ensure safe, responsible sports wagering by limiting participation to those over 21 prohibiting advertising to minors and protecting against underage gambling. And it does do these things, but how much they're going to actually try, who knows. Prop 26 claims it's going to strengthen enforcement against illegal gambling activities and provide resources to prevent and treat problem gambling. Well, I wouldn't really say that. Uh, Basically, what they're doing is they're giving through the Attorney General's Office of the State a few more tools to enforce illegal gambling or go after people who are doing illegal gambling, which is a little scary. And uh, it creates a situation where individuals can bring claims if the attorney general has had the opportunity to do so, but didn't do so. But I I don't think this really does very much. And the last thing I want to see is where they can prosecute people who are engaging in illegal gambling. I'm fine with them going after illegal gambling operations, but not where customers are doing it. That would be pretty bad. They claim this is going to bolster tribal self-sufficiency. I've already told you about that. No, 
they've been trying this for decades now. It hasn't worked. They claim it's going to create jobs and economic opportunities for all of California. Now, that's not true either. It's going to create some jobs at these actual places for allowing these uh, bets on sports and allowing these new table games like craps and roulette, but it's not going to have a significant impact on the job situation in California. California has 40 million people. The number of jobs it's going to create is very minimal compared to the population, and it's going to have basically no impact for the state in that way. The website says Prop 26 will generate tens of millions of dollars to support state priorities. It will raise some new taxes, but it's at most going to bring in tens of millions of dollars to the state, and that's not a lot. The state uh, is huge and has a huge budget. It's going to be a drop in the bucket, so don't don't really think this is going to be a lot of money for the state, and you've got to support it because it's going to help the state so much. It's, it's not. The No on 26 website put out by the 27 people say that uh, tribal casinos have a history of unsuccessfully challenging the legality of local card rooms. That is true. Some are saying that this isn't relevant, but I, I would say it's it's true here. That And it's definitely true. And I, I think it's somewhat relevant in that the Indian casinos are basically being selfish and they think that they should have control of all gambling, even the long-standing card rooms which existed before they did. The No One Twenty Six website says they're taking it a step too far by exploiting the Private Attorneys General Act, PAGA, that was originally meant to protect workers. Now, it is true that this PAGA Act in California is meant to allow employees to collectively sue employers for workplace violations and that uh, Prop 26 would allow gaming tribes to sue other gambling organizations over potential legal violations. And this could include card rooms if they're accused of violating gambling laws. This is really exploiting it in the way where they're trying to expand it to where maybe it shouldn't expand this much where a business can sue another business. But uh, I don't know if that's really a fair claim. The reason they want to do this is because they've been irked that what these card rooms are doing is that in addition to offering poker, they've been offering what they call California games, like California Blackjack and and other table games, which aren't quite Vegas-style table games. And then they are not allowed by state law to be house banked, which means that they can offer them and people have to pay a commission when they play, but that the wins and losses have to either go to the players or a separate unrelated organization that's banking them. And that many of these card rooms are basically self-banking through sham corporations or that they are in cahoots with these corporations to give them big kickbacks here to where it pretty much is house banked. So the Indian casinos have felt like these card rooms have been long violating the laws here. In fact, a lot of these card rooms will kick you out and ban you if you attempt to offer to be the banker, which should always be your right. But for whatever reason, the California Gaming Commission just doesn't care. So the Indian casinos have been trying to punish them for this and get them in trouble for it. And so far, it has been unsuccessful. So basically, that's the reason they want to see this expanded to where they can finally sue 
these card rooms for this violation and pretty much kill their table games or at least kill their main form of profit from the table games, which is basically either uh, banking them themselves or being in cahoots with a corporation that is banking them. Uh, Whether this will be successful, I don't know. I would like to see this practice stopped. I think it's very shady what these card rooms are doing for once the Indian casinos are right about something. So I don't mind if they have this ability, though I don't really think it should come from the Indian casinos being able to sue them. I think the state should just take action. That's what should be happening here is that people should be able to complain if they're not allowed to bank. And then these casinos should either be fined or threatened to lose their license or both. The NOAA 26 site also says that local communities will lose more than 32,000 good paying jobs that generate 1.6 billion in wages annually. There's no real info that would suggest this is true. I don't understand the point they're trying to make that local communities will lose these jobs. I guess they're trying to say that uh, because some of the action will move over to the Indian casinos, the local communities will lose these jobs. That's that's not really a very strong claim, even if it's true. That, you know, jobs move all the time wherever the dominant industry exists. So th- this is dumb to say, well, if, if they're successful, we're going to lose jobs here. Well, that's always what happens when the competition is successful. So that's kind of a dumb claim. They claim that the measure will force card rooms out of business and result in a loss of $500 million in local tax revenue statewide, meaning less funds for public health, homelessness services, senior centers, and after-school programs. Well, it is about $500 million that all these card rooms, meaning like poker rooms, are paying in taxes together in the state of California every year, but there's no real reason to believe that Prop 26 passing will cause them to lose all of this and go to business. So that's misleading. Another claim says that California and local communities will lose $5.6 billion in economic output generated by card rooms. And again, just like the last one, that uh, is, is kind of false. So that No on 26 website is honestly not very good. It's, it's making a lot of misleading claims. However, However, they're missing the important claims. The important claims are that, number one, this should be something that is open to everybody. There's no reason that Indian gaming should be allowed to expand to have sports betting and that regular card rooms should not. In fact, I've always believed that everybody authorized to offer any kind of gambling in California should be able to offer everything. There shouldn't be these people can offer this, these other people can offer that. No, it should be everybody can offer X, Y, and Z. And if you want to say they can't offer ABC, that's fine too, but it should apply to everybody. It shouldn't be this uh, Indians are under some rules, local card rooms are under other ones. That, that's stupid. And the whole idea that the Indian casinos are here to make tribes self-sufficient, well, we've seen decades of this and it's failed. And also, they should be bringing up on their website that these Indian casinos have a horrible record with consumer rights and there's no way to sue them. That should be brought up on the No on 26 sites and it should be bringing up that if people have issues with the newly allowed sports betting that they have no recourse. So that should be really front and center of this whole thing. And I've had to explain this to people who say, oh, I want to vote yes on 26. Come on, let's give the Indians a chance to do this. I go, no, 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 no. You don't want to let the Indians offer sports betting. No, 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 no. Do not. It's, a, it's going to be a disaster. So big no on that. So I, I, a big 
opponent of 26. I do not want to see 26 pass. I do not want to see where the Indians get any more power to offer things compared to everybody else. In fact, I would prefer that there's continued no sports betting allowed in California until everybody is allowed to offer it. And if we have to wait a while till that happens, then so be it. Why? Because I don't want this precedent set where the Indians have control of yet another segment of the California gambling pie. I don't like it because then wrestling that away from them is going to be tough. I'd rather wait some time. I can play sports bets. I can go on offshore sites that have a fairly good reputation and place my bets there. In fact, there's a few of them that pay out, that are not known to cheat people. And yeah, they're not perfect. They have some idiosyncrasies and some things I don't agree with. But bottom line is when I want a sports bet, I can and I can get paid out. And that's really all I need at the moment. I'd prefer it's something that's licensed and regulated and in state, but it's not essential. And everybody in the country can do this. If you don't have legalized sports betting, you can do it on a site like America's, or not America's, you can do it on a site like uh, Bet Online or Bet Any Sports or Heritage Sports or Bovada. So you have those. So do you really need legalized sports betting? No. Be nice to have, but you don't need it. So you got to do it right in the first place. Now, what about some information about 27? Oh, you know what? Here, here's an ad. I'm going to play this ad first. My tribe has lived on this land for 12,000 years. We call it Oleomi. You call it California. Our land, our culture, our people once expansive, now whittled down to a small community. Only one proposition supports California tribes like ours while providing hundreds of millions in yearly funding to finally address homelessness in California. Vote yes on 27 tax online sports betting and protect tribal sovereignty and help Californians that are hurting the most. Okay, so oddly enough, this Yes on 27 ad, it doesn't really address 26, but this Yes on 27 ad does it from the standpoint as if it's an Indian gaming ad, which is really weird because this really is not the Indian gaming ad. So what are they talking about here? How is this an Indian gaming ad when 27 is not about that? Well, the tribe they're talking about is the Middletown Rancheria Pomo Indians of California. And I've never heard of this tribe. I've never heard of this tribe. It's, it's probably some small tribe in California, and they, they've probably been talked into supporting this in some way. I'm not sure what they're getting out of this, but but be an, understand this. Understand this. 27 is the corporate sports betting proposition where you're letting the big corporations like MGM and FanDuel and DraftKings into the game and also allowing the Indian tribes to do it. And 26 is only the Indian tribes and also nothing online. When you boil it all down to the facts, that's really the difference between the two. So this is not really an Indian gaming proposition, but it does allow Indian gaming as well. They claim that they're going to tax online sports betting and protect tribal sovereignty and help Californians who are hurting the most. Well, it does tax it, yes, but it's really not addressing tribal sovereignty at all. And in fact, there shouldn't be tribal sovereignty when it comes to gambling, as I already explained. So that's not even a good thing. And I'll tell you, when I have the choice, if 27 is the one that passes and not 26, 
I will go with whichever operation is not an Indian operation where I actually have some recourse if they screw me. So I actually don't want the tribal sovereignty part of this. That's not a positive, that's a negative. Since we already talked about the no on 27 side of things from that previous ad I played, let's move on to analyzing the way I'm going to vote and the way you should vote. Of course, you can vote whatever way you want if you're in California, but I'm going to suggest you vote the way that I am advising here because I'm not an expert on everything, but I am an expert on this. I have a lot of knowledge on this. And I've talked to some people recently, friends, family members, acquaintances who say, hey, Todd, what's your opinion on 26 and 27? I know you're knowledgeable about this stuff. And then I tell them and they say, well, but what about how 27 makes 90% of the money go out of state? And I say, so? Well, but it's going out of state. It's not staying local. So? And I say, do you really care if the money goes to Indian tribes and a few people in the Indian tribes get really rich? Is, is that better than if it goes, goes to MGM or FanDuel? Well, uh, but it stays in state. I go, okay, look, you got to get this out of your head about the staying in state nonsense. We've got to look at what is good for, number one, the sports better, and number two, the general residents of California. Okay, so for the sports better, there's no question that you want something where there is recourse for the gambler if he gets screwed. You're only going to get that from 27. So big yes on 27. I want to see legalized sports betting in the state, but I do not want to see the Indians controlling it. I want to see corporations controlling it. That's the way it should be. That's the way it is in Vegas. That's the way it should be in California. So don't worry about where the money's going. And don't worry about the Indian tribes. Do not vote on 26 out of guilt, saying, well, but we've got to help the Indians. They're all still having so much poverty, and there's so many people with drinking and drug problems that need social services that aren't getting them, and they've been historically screwed in this country. Why should we let these big, greedy corporations like MGM profit off of Californians? They're not even located here. Let's help our own Indian tribes. That's the right thing to do. No. No, because they don't want to do anything back for us. They routinely screw people. I've done stories on this show where they screw people. Time and time again. I was unfairly detained at a California Indian casino. And I had to sign a bunch of bullshit I didn't want to sign just so they would let me out of there. And I wouldn't be detained there for 10 hours or several days. So I signed something that I assumed would probably be harmless, but otherwise I would never have signed because I had no power. And it was very unpleasant and very unnerving. I hated being somewhere in California where I did not have the rights of a California resident or a U.S. citizen. And that is your situation if you bet with Indian tribes. So do not give them more power. They don't deserve it. You might say, well, okay, I agree with you that it's better if 27 wins, but don't we want to vote yes on both so at least we get legalized sports betting either way? And I say, no. Because, again, it's better to wait for it to be done right than to do it right now in the wrong way. And giving it to the tribes is the wrong way. By the way, If you like to think that you are or will be or might be one day a winning sports better, 
because nobody bets on sports to lose, right? I mean, most of you do, but you like to believe that maybe one day you can get a strategy that will work and that you can start crushing the books. Well, how would you like it if finally, when you learn how to beat sports, that you are banned for learning how to beat sports? Now, while this can happen if either of the propositions is passed, there's nothing against people getting banned. It is much more likely to happen if the Indian tribes are controlling everything. Indian tribes are notorious for being obsessed with nobody getting over on them. They are much quicker to ban people who are seen as having an advantage than the corporate casinos. In fact, they even are known to remove machines that are not positive expectation if the machines just, for whatever reason, seem to be hitting a lot for certain people and if the machines are not uh, very negative EV. So if it's a very negative EV slot machine that someone gets lucky on a few times quickly, they'll leave it there. If it's a video poker machine with 99.5% payback with perfect play and uh, for some period of time the machine is not making a profit, they will actually take it out because they don't want anyone to win. They don't want anyone to have a chance to win, even more than the corporate casinos do. You think the corporate casinos are bad about winning customers? Indian casinos are worse. So if you want a ticket to getting banned quickly, if you're a competent sports better, which by the way, a lot of books will do, a lot of books will get rid of the competent sports bettors, the ones that will do it much faster will be the ones that are located in Indian casinos. So you definitely do not want them in control. Anytime someone says, we want to offer such and such gambling, but we are going to be the judge, jury, and executioner of any kind of dispute, and we can criminally charge you if we don't like something you did, and tough luck if you don't like it, but can you please expand what we can do? Can you please expand our power despite that? Well, can you change that? No. Well, can you give consumers a little more? No, 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 no. It's going to stay the same way. We are in control of you at all times, but can you please vote on something to expand our power? Please, please, please. Come on. We've been oppressed. We're oppressed people. We've always been oppressed people. Well, okay, then can you help the consumer? No! No helping the consumer. If we say that we are not going to pay you something, then we just won't pay you. If we say that we think advantage play is a criminal offense, then you're going to jail. But please help us. No. No. I'm not doing it. Big fat no on 26. Big fat yes on 27. Please. Trust me. That's the way you should vote. I'm going to remind you as we get closer to the election. No on 26. Yes on 27. And I am not a shill in any way. I have no connection in any way to any of the corporate interests that are going to benefit from 27 passing. So when you hear this from someone who works for a company that works with BetMGM, yeah, of course they're going to support 27. I'm not that guy. I don't work for any of that stuff. I don't take ads for any of that stuff. I'm totally neutral on this one. But as a California resident, I can tell you, you do not want to give the Indian tribes any further power. Period. 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355. You can text me at that number too, 775-372-8355. If 
from the 773 right before the show. Can you start a little late tonight? I need some time to get home. Sorry. It was one of the few nights we started kind of on time. Someone else sent me a, a story. Well, this is interesting. I think I have to cover this. As much as I don't feel like adding a topic, I think we have to add this topic. So I'm going to add a topic here, which I'll tell you about later. Thank you for sending that to me. Next topic, the Sapphire Strip Club wants to put gaming machines in the club. And at the moment, this is not allowed, but they are looking for an exception to the law. So what is the Sapphire Strip Club in Las Vegas? Well, the Sapphire Strip Club, you may have passed it by if you've driven around Las Vegas. The Sapphire Strip Club is actually a pretty big club in Las Vegas. Las Vegas is full of strip clubs, as you might guess. And there are some very large ones, and there's some medium ones, and there's some small ones. I don't go to these. And if I did, I would admit it. But uh, I don't go now, and I really never have. I've probably been to fewer than three strip clubs in Vegas my entire life. And I, and I say that honestly. So I'm just not really a strip club guy. So I'm not an expert on them. I know some things about them because they're of some interest to me just being in Vegas and the whole culture surrounding them. And actually where I used to live in Vegas for some years, there were a lot of strippers who lived in my complex because it was close to the strip. And a lot of them just like the buildings, whatever it was, there were a lot of strippers and high-end hookers that lived in that building. But uh, I really don't go to these strip clubs myself because I just kind of find them to be frustrating because you are pretty much paying a lot of money and the money adds up even if you're not paying for anything really expensive. But you're paying a lot of money to basically be teased by pretty girls but not do anything with them. So really, what's the point? I mean, if you're going to... If you want to do something with a girl that you want to pay money for, then get a prostitute and do it. And if you don't, then don't. But this is kind of a middle ground, which is the worst of both worlds, in my opinion. So this is something which I really haven't had much interest in. And usually when I have gone to strip clubs, the few times I have, it's been with groups of people that are just kind of going as a big group. And then that's kind of a different thing. But even in some of those, I've been invited to come along and I just haven't. Sapphire Strip Club, which is actually called the Sapphire Las Vegas Gentlemen's Club, does not have good reviews on Google. There's 736 reviews, and they have 2.5 stars. I almost think they would be located in uh, Bullhead City, Arizona and renting boats, but no. Sapphire Gentlemen's Club uh, has a lot of bad reviews, but it is big and it is popular. It's located on Sammy Davis Jr. Drive, which is a little bit east of the 15 freeway. And it's uh, in the northern part of Las Vegas. It's uh, If you keep driving north past the Fashion Show Mall and you get to where Resorts World is, it's uh, kind of across the street from Resorts World. Remember, I've mentioned before that Resorts World's not in the best area. That's uh, a good example of what I mean. <laughs> so on one side of Resorts World is Circus Circus, and then across the street is, is Sapphire, and then there's a, a medical marijuana place and uh, a liquor store. And 
the Denny's, so this is not the nicest area to walk around in at night. It's described as a massive gentleman's club offering skyboxes, private rooms, numerous stages, and pole dancing classes. The classes are uh, aimed at women, by the way. And I'll read you some of the reviews. As I said, they have 2.5 stars. By far the most reviews are one star. This is, again, one of these things where most of the reviews are one or five, but one very much outnumbers everything else. Here is a review from three months ago from a woman, Danielle Ingraham. She wrote three months ago, went to see men primarily. They don't have them anymore. $50 per person for cover. Decided to try to see the girls, but he could only stand at the tiny stage. Otherwise, they wanted $200 for a table with an hour left in the night. ATM fee is $20 for every $100 you pull. Wow, it's an ATM machine that has a $100 limit and a $20 fee. Wow, I I know those are horrible at strip clubs, by the way. The ATMs always bring enough money. And uh, walk by the back ATM to see an incredibly intoxicated man standing there with a dancer helping herself to his bank account. Huge red flag. We ended up turning around and leaving. Been to other clubs in Vegas. They're much better. Another one wrote, uh, this is John Brown. I don't know if it's a real name, but uh, John Brown wrote a month ago, absolutely terrible and a scam place. Never think about going there. Entry fees, $50 per person, even for ladies. We paid $100 to enter, meaning I guess him and his girlfriend. However, that does not give you any place to sit as all the tables are marked reserved. To get a place to sit, we have to pay $200. that will get two chairs and a small table. However, even after paying 200 you get to sit there only as long as you keep ordering drinks, one after another, which are ridiculously priced, where even the water is a minimum of $17 per person. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Even after paying that, you don't get to see the girl dancing on the stage because so many other girls loitering around are blocking it. Don't even think about the lap dance. For $50 a dance, the dancer will dance three feet away for less than 30 seconds with clothes on. For any other dance, they will force you to go to the private area where it starts minimum 200 to 300 and you must order drinks for the dancer, which starts at 120 Even after spending several hundred dollars, you don't get any enjoyment. All the staff is rude. There's constant pressure from all directions to just pay more and more and more, but in return, you only get stress and frustration. By the way, uh, the owner did response, uh, did give a response, and this owner did not give the flippant responses and humorous responses that this uh, Balalai B guy did at uh, the boat place. This is what the ownership of Sapphire wrote back to John. Thank you for visiting Sapphire Las Vegas, John. We recommend that you review the packages available on sapphirelasvegas.com or text blah, 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 anytime to arrange an experience just for you and your group. Hoping to see you again on your next visit to Las Vegas. Yeah, it's a terrible response. I think I'd rather have the guy insulting me like that Balalai B. <laughs> then there's uh, allegations that there's unauthorized charges there. Donald Amick, who actually has a local guide badge on Google, which means he's given a lot of good reviews in the past, good meaning quality ones. He wrote, uh, read the lowest reviews first, referring to one-star reviews. Most of them are spot on. Never give them your credit card. Hold on to your cash with both hands. Had to be mean to the girl so I wouldn't be taken advantage of. Was able to get out with everything I brought, minus the cover, so good on me. Was only there for 30 minutes. Bottom line, visit your own risk. Renee Sagnelli wrote a week ago, they charged my debit card 300 extra for no reason. No cover if you drive yourself or walk in, which I guess different than what others are saying with the 50 $40 lap dances are a good price ridiculously overpriced private at 300 ridiculously overpriced ATM fee at 40 
After visiting here, I checked my bank account. I noticed 100 and 200 transaction for no reason. They were very pushy about taking and keeping my debit card. Don't ever give them your credit card. Bring cash only. Or don't ever come here because they're being very scammy. And then he goes on with a long story about something else about the server. I won't bother to read. But a lot of stories with allegations that they charge your debit card or credit card without your permission that everything's ridiculously expensive and you're not really getting what you're expecting. And Anyway, the place does not sound good to me. If I were to pick a strip club, I would not go there. It is very large. I will tell you in general, and this again is from someone who doesn't really go to strip clubs in Vegas but has some knowledge of them. In general, the very large ones tend to have the prettiest girls. So if you're looking for like the really, really hot girls, the ones that probably would never date you in real life, and maybe ones that are hotter than you ever have dated in real life, uh, then they typically will be at the big clubs. That's where they make the most money. But if you're looking for a better experience and more value for your money, you're better off at some of the smaller ones. But at all of them, be very careful. Do not let them hold on to your credit card. Do not sign anything without being really careful about what you're signing. Don't leave blank spaces where they're signing about uh, you know, what they can charge you because then they can write anything they want there. There's been a lot of horror stories at strip clubs all over Vegas with people getting like $18,000 charges on their credit cards. I'm not even kidding. Where they get kind of blackout drunk and are told to sign something and just sign it and then they just write in whatever numbers they want. I- I'm not saying that happened to Sapphire, but I've, I've heard this happening elsewhere in Vegas. So Really don't ever give them access to your credit card there or debit card. Always use cash and bring enough cash with you and hold on to it tightly. Don't get super drunk to where you don't know what's going on. And as I said, if you want the better value, which is never going to be great value, but if you want the better value, then you should go to a smaller one because you're going to be out a lot of money at a place like Sapphire and not get very much for it as you hear from these reviews. Anyway, this isn't really a story about Sapphire and alleged wrongdoing in the reviews, though. I have to say with 2.5 stars and 736 reviews, which is a ton of reviews, that's a very bad sign, especially with the one star being by far the dominant star level that's being given. So I would avoid this just from the reviews alone. But they are trying to get the permission to offer machines, gambling machines, inside the club, which up until now, no major strip club in Vegas is able to have this. And Sapphire is trying to be the first one. Sapphire actually calls itself the world's largest strip club. I don't know if that's true, but it is very large. And they are trying to get the Liquor and License Board to allow them an exception to have machines in the, uh, in the business. I'm talking about uh, like video poker and slot machines. They would not have a lot of machines. At most, they could have 12 machines because uh, they really are under uh, a lot of restriction as far as what they can have. They are claiming that they took massive losses due to the COVID-19 pandemic. It is true that strip clubs were closed pretty early in the pandemic, 
and then pretty much the last thing allowed to open back up. So they claim they are still suffering from that. And even though they've been open now for two years, that they have been struggling and not getting as many people as used to come pre-pandemic, and that basically they need these machines to make up for the difference in revenue. And they're trying to be determined suitable to hold a slot machine license, which they currently do not have. The machines would not be in view of the girls dancing. That would be a restriction they would be under. They would have to have these machines in a separate area, but at least they would be there, and degenerates who wanted to gamble on these machines would be able to take a break from all the stuff going on with the girls there and walk over and play slots and video poker or whatever. Uh, These would actually be bar top machines, and they would be installed in a 1,000-square-foot area of the club, and it's a 40,000-square-foot club. This would be in a 1,000-square-foot area, and looks like at a bar somewhere. Again, they would not be able to see the dancers there. And Sapphire claims that they've had a 25% decline in the number of customers that they're attracting yearly. They claim that they were getting 500,000 customers in 2019 and that in 2022, they're on pace to get about about 75% of that. So they need this to make up for this whole thing. At the moment, there's only two other clubs that allow this or that are allowed to have this in the Las Vegas area, and both are on the small side. One is called Play It Again Sam, and the other one is called Club Platinum. Now, I don't know where Play It Again Sam is. Club Platinum is actually very close to where I used to live in Las Vegas in the 2000s, and I remember it looked so small, it was kind of hard to picture that even being a strip club. It just looked like a very small business, and I was like, how could they even have poles in here? The thing doesn't even look that tall. I guess they do, but that's definitely not a large club. And this would be the first major club to have these machines. I can't imagine 12 machines in such a large club that supposedly attracts several hundred thousand customers per year would make a tremendous difference, but I I guess every little bit counts. And I'm guessing that they think that these degenerates who are drunk, who have money to blow, that why not soak them for badly set pay tables, badly set meaning bad for the customer, and maybe even slot machines. I don't know if it's just video poker or slot machines, but whatever it is, uh, I think they believe they'll make a lot of money from these degenerates over the year. Virginia Valentine, who is the president of the Nevada Resort Association, told the commissioners that granting the license to Sapphire could set a precedent to license gaming at other locations and that uh, they shouldn't do this without evaluating unintended consequences. So basically, she's saying that if we allow Sapphire to have it, then it's going to pop up everywhere because they're a major club. It's the difference between allowing this at somewhere like Club Platinum, which is tiny, and a major, major one like Sapphire, then it's pretty much going to set a precedent that every club in the city can get this, and then it will have, quote, unintended consequences. Now, she doesn't explain what she means by that. And by the way, the Nevada Resort Association is a trade group that does represent uh, the casinos. So obviously you see why they don't want competition there. And she doesn't state what these unintended consequences are, but she may be implying that there's going to be a lot of problem gaming issues over there and that it's going to 
become rampant throughout the city. Now, the burden to prove what's called viability to have the suitability to offer these machines is on the applicant. So this Virginia Valentine and the Nevada Resort Association, they don't have to prove why this is bad. Basically, Sapphire has to prove why this is good. Jim Gibson, who's commissioner, said, my view is that there are really wise kinds of foundations here that ought to keep these uses separate, referring to strip clubs and gaming machines. I would hope that as we go forward that they address that concern because I think it's on them to carry the ball that is, it is effectively not just not bad for us, but good for us to make this exception. So this Gibson guy is saying, I don't want to just hear why this isn't going to hurt anything. I want to hear why this is going to be good for Las Vegas to have these machines. And if you can't show us why this is good for Las Vegas, not just neutral for Las Vegas, but good for Las Vegas, if you can't show that, uh, it's not going to happen. Now, strangely enough, his son whose name is Bryn Gibson, actually chairs the Nevada Gaming Control Board. And they would actually be hearing the request for licensing. And Sapphire would be seeking a restricted gaming license, which allows for a maximum of 15 slot machines in the facility. I don't know why I read 12 earlier, but whatever, 12, 15. And usually this type of license is given to convenience stores and bars and grocery stores. So, you know, when you go to a grocery store or CVS or something like that in Vegas and you see in the corner there's some machines. They're allowed to have those, obviously, but they can't have like a massive casino inside. You can't go into Albertsons or Smith's and see 50 video poker machines. That would not be allowed. So they have a restricted gaming license at these places where they can offer up to 15 machines. Sapphire has an existing license to serve food, liquor, charge admission fees, conduct sales, and act as an entertainment cabaret, and they've had this since 2003. Since 1979, Clark County, which is where Las Vegas is located, has an ordinance requiring that gaming and adult entertainment venues are separate. So I guess prior to 79... You actually could have these together, and for whatever reason back then, they decided it's going to be separated going forward. And right now, there's only two exceptions. Now, I don't have that much of an opinion on whether these should be allowed or not. I don't think it's a huge deal if they slap 15 video poker machines in sapphires. I mean, it's at the grocery store, it's at the bars, it's at the convenience stores, it's in the casinos. So does it really, really matter? If the strip clubs have them too? No, I don't think that's going to really make any kind of impact. What I would love to see would be the city or county evaluating all of these complaints and making it easy for people who are ripped off at a strip club to complain. And if there are a certain number of valid-looking complaints from the public, that these places get shut down. And I don't know why this isn't happening. It sounds like a lot of these strip clubs, not just Sapphires, need some stricter regulation and need to be under the threat of losing their business license for unethical practices. Now, as far as the high prices, they can do that all they want. If they want to charge $50 cover, they can. You don't have to go in if you don't like that. If they want to charge 200 for a table, they can. 
Now, people have to understand before they go in what they are paying for. So it, uh, it is unethical for someone to pay $50 believing that that's going to pretty much be it in, unless they want to lap dance or something or want to tip the girls dancing. And then they see there's basically nowhere to sit or stand unless you get one of these expensive tables. And then when you get one of these expensive tables, then you have a hard time seeing anything. Like This stuff should be disclosed. It should be made clear that, uh, okay, you're going to pay the 50 but you're not going to be able to sit anywhere unless you want to pay another 200 for a table. So are you okay with that? Like This should be clear to the consumer, and the, the consumer is not happy with it when they walk in. If they want to walk back out and get the $50 refund, they sh- should be able to get that refunded. Uh, but uh, as far as high prices, that's up to them what they want to charge, as long as they're clear about it, as long as there's a refund policy that's reasonable. But... Anything regarding any kind of scamming or where credit cards are charged without people's permission. And it's easy to prove this stuff. The county could send in undercover agents and pretend to get smashed and hand their debit card over and see what occurs and then uh, really clamp down on these places hard if unauthorized charges show up. If someone put me in charge of managing a small team to do stings on these strip clubs, I'm sure I could clean this up real fast. So if they wanted to, they could do it. Nothing special about me. I'm just saying that even me without any kind of formal law enforcement experience could do this. I'm sure people in law enforcement could even do better. So the fact that this isn't happening, the fact that there's all these horrible reviews, a lot of them saying the same thing, and this has been going on for years and apparently no one does anything about it, that's a problem. The fact that it's not limited to one club is a big problem. That's what concerns me. I don't give a crap about these machines. What I care less about are what the girls are doing in these private areas. I know some people complain about, oh, you know, some of these strip clubs, they're kind of makeshift whorehouses. And once these girls do the private dance, then they give blowjobs or they have sex or whatever. Like, yeah, they're technically not supposed to do that. And Yes, it's technically prostitution, but I don't care about that because it's a victimless crime. If some dude wants to go back there and pay for a stripper to give him a blowjob or to have sex with him during a lap dance, whatever, you know, I don't give a crap about that. Nobody gets hurt. Uh, Way, way better to have that going on than scamming. Way better. So they should be focusing on that. They should be focusing on any scammy aspect of these clubs and Come down on them hard. Warn them all first. Say, we're going to come down on all of you hard for any kind of scamming, any kind of unauthorized charges. We're going to be aggressively investigating all of you. So this is putting you all on notice that if we see this going on, and if we catch this, you're going to lose your license for good. They would clean up real fast. I promise you that. So I don't really care. I'm not even going to follow whether they get their slot machines or not, but I'd love to see the whole scene cleaned up. And keep this in mind. If you go to a strip club, read reviews, just like the boating thing. Read the damn reviews. If you're seeing a lot of unsatisfied customers, if you're seeing a lot of people alleging scamming, do not set foot in the place. Do not assume that it won't happen to you because it very well might. Don't just say, oh, well, that guy got himself really, really drunk. He probably doesn't remember what he bought there. No, they probably took advantage of him. Usually when people go online and post a 
scamming allegation against a business, there's a pretty high chance it's true. Once in a while, it's not. Once in a while, there's two sides to the story, and it turns out the customer was the one who was the piece of shit. But especially if you see the same story over and over from unrelated people, as the years go by, the same song is sung, then it's almost surely happening. And this is about any business, not just boat rentals or strip clubs. So reviews are out there. We have access to so much more information than we used to. Think about in the 1990s or beforehand. You couldn't go look up these reviews. You just had to ask around and see what people think is the best place. Now you have so much information, so use it. Okay, so there is a conservative troll named Alex Stein. And he is a comedian. He likes to go around the country. And one of the things he's liked to do recently has been troll city council meetings. And he's done this in New York. I think he's done this in Chicago. He's done this most recently in Las Vegas. And I have to admit it was funny. And I wasn't sure at first if I was watching something that was a troll job, or if I was watching something serious. When I first watched it, I didn't notice it was from Alex Stein. Had I noticed that, I would have known that this was a joke in the first place. At the beginning, I'm like, okay, is this just like an unhinged guy? Or is it possible that this whole thing is just a troll job and they're trying to see how far they can push it? So I'm going to give you the spoiler right now. It's a troll job. None of this is serious, but it's funny, so I'm going to play it to you. Anyone else on the public comment, please come down, state your name for the record. Hello, Mayor. My name is Alex Stein. And, um, um, you know, after hearing that testimony, it just shows me that, you know, Las Vegas is really not heading in a good direction because after my experience a couple nights ago, I had a very terrible experience where um, I think these casinos take advantage of people by giving people free drinks. Wait, excuse me. You said your name was Alex Stein? Yes. Okay, thank you. What I'm saying is these casinos give people free drinks and then they become vulnerable and then end up gambling more money than they have. Yeah. And I was the victim of that. And I lost a lot of money. And I'm facing a lot of issues right now. My wife's boyfriend recently got her pregnant. And I'm here for a church event um, speaking. For I'm a member of the Church of Scientology. And I don't normally drink. But I'm very vulnerable. I'm in a position now where I don't know what I'm going to do. Because financially, I'm going to have to take care of this baby potentially. Because he's out on parole right now. So right when I got to the part about the wife's boyfriend and that he's here for a church convention, I go, okay, his wife's boyfriend got her pregnant and he's here for a church convention and he's part of the Church of Scientology and he's got to take care of this baby. Right then I knew it was a troll job. Right then. The the whole part about the gambling, I thought at the beginning might be real, like a disgruntled gambler was complaining that he was allowed to get drunk and then shot off all his money. The second we got to the wife's boyfriend part, <laughs> I knew it was a troll job. I just wanted to see how far the Vegas City Council would allow him to proceed. So let's listen. And he has an upcoming case where he could be facing a long time in jail. So potentially, I'm going to have to financially support this baby. And I come to Las Vegas for a work event, and I get fed alcohol, and I get entirely way too intoxicated. I go to the ATM. I use my credit card. They make it very accessible to be able to gamble with my credit card. You know this, Mary Goodman. They make it absolutely incredibly accessible, Councilman, to be able to take all I have. 
And now I got to go back to Clearwater, Florida, and I have nothing. Now, this is being addressed not just to the city council, but to Mayor Carolyn Goodman. So after this, after I start drinking, I'm, 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 I'm very, I'm very distraught. And the one good thing about this city, I will say, the one good thing is, uh, of all the cities I've been to, it's the first city last night at 4 a.m. I saw multiple people on Fremont Street taking the vaccine. That's the only place I've seen a 24/7 vaccine uh, operation in the United States of America. So of course, what he's referring to there is not actually people getting the vaccine at 4 a.m. He's saying on street, Fremont Street at 4 a.m. He saw multiple people getting the vaccine, and this is good. So, of course, he's referring to people shooting up drugs at that time that he's pretending to have been confused and believing that they were injecting each other with the COVID vaccine. And that's here in Las Vegas. I saw lots of people on Fremont Street doing the vaccine, and I, I want to commend you on the one thing. But the vulnerability of the tourists that come here, like myself, it, you're preying on people like me. And then I end up meeting a nice Filipino girl. I take her back to my hotel room. Come to find out, I, I cost money for her service to come to my room. Mary Goodman. I, I, I end up having a, a good time. We start kissing. We take off her clothes. She has, she has male genitalia. She's a transgender. <laughs> so this is where they start to get a little uncomfortable. Up till then, they let him rant, and I, I have to imagine they were suspecting that this was a troll job. But at least he was just saying things which is kind of funny, but not that offensive. Well, now he's getting into talking about bringing a hooker back, a girl he thought wasn't a hooker. It turned out not only was she a hooker, but then a penis pops out and she's transgender and he's horrified. Well, then this starts to get into territory where they're worried that maybe you know, like anti-trans rhetoric is going to come out of this guy's mouth. So they're starting to get worried here. Mary Goodman. Excuse me. This, we're in a public venue, and I think, please, could you, please, excuse me, could you please be calm, and whatever. You guys are preying on me, Mayor. You know, when I'm out there, I'm vulnerable, and now I have a person Now, the reason it gets soft is because like, it's a different camera angle at this point. So I'm not sure if you can hear this well, but he's going out of how they're preying on him in the city, that he gets drunk, he goes to his room, and all of a sudden he sees male genitalia with breasts excuse me excuse me i think unless you have an issue that we can address no 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 please please you do have issues he was trying to ask them to have some kind of ordinance that they have to disclose whether they're a male prostitute with male genitalia or a female who's not transgender and she just doesn't want to hear it anymore. Come and yeah. just take one day at a time. Try. Who's going to pay for my wife's boyfriend's kid? I, that's not our responsibility. Who's going to pay for my wife's boyfriend's kid? Well, that's not our responsibility. Responsibility, sir. They gave me all the alcohol. Sir, this is not the first council meeting you have come into. You actually go through council meetings across the United States and do this performance. So please leave our chambers. Oh, at so that was some other woman there. The, the Female you heard talking, the older sounding female was Mayor Goodman. This is a middle-aged female who, I'm not sure if she knew this the whole time, but at this point she's very aware that he's a troll and he does this to many city councils around the country. At the moment, thank you. That's a performance now. A chick with a dick's a performance. You need to remove him. Marshall's removed. A chick with a dick's performance now, huh? And uh, so she's trying to get him removed very quickly. And then the marshals come over and do so. Him right now. 
This is so the marshals walk him out he doesn't resist or anything because this is a comedy act so he's not really worked up like this so of course when the marshals come over to walk him out he walks out with them and just kind of shouts as he's walking away yeah. Yeah, well he does that's arguably my favorite part where they're they, they think he's gone and he's off camera you you assume he's gone by watching this and they're going yeah he needs help yeah he definitely does but then he's like what see you kick me out then you talk up behind my back he does. He does. I have chance with him. Yeah, he gave me a chance. Okay. Um, anyone else listening to my comment today, please? This is a first, you know, in 11 years, that was a first. So. Uh. <laughs> so Alex Stein uh, posted this on his own Twitter, which is at Alex Stein 99. He was very proud of this one. It got 2,318 retweets, 663 quote tweets, and 12,800 likes. So this one uh, went over pretty well. And you really have to be a conservative comedian to do things like this at this point. Because, you know, if anyone else who's not a conservative comedian does something like this, they'll be accused of being transphobic and they'll have to go on an apology tour. Oh, I didn't mean to offend the trans community like this, blah, blah, blah. See, you're not allowed to make jokes anymore. It's very sad. You're you're not allowed to make jokes anymore that people will consider offensive unless you are a, quote, conservative comedian, which is too bad because I liked a lot of comedians when I was younger, even not like a lot younger, even somewhat younger. But prior to very modern times, I liked a lot of comedians who were liberal, who clearly voted Democrat every time, but they were funny. And they weren't afraid to make offensive jokes. But now every comedian who's not conservative has to be afraid of being canceled. So the only way you can avoid the cancellation is if you were really aiming your comedy at those who are never going to cancel you. That's too bad. Comedy used to have a special place where they were allowed to say really offensive things and push the envelope because that's what comedy is about. Comedy is about being irreverent it's about saying outrageous things doing outrageous things and not having to apologize or watch what you say and comedy is also important for social commentary even if you're not a political comedian sometimes social commentary is done through comedy that's very effective and when you have to constantly worry about who you're offending then the whole art of comedy goes away. So nowadays, most comedians, all they're really allowed to do is either make fun of white Christian heterosexual males or make fun of Republicans. You can do that. You can make fun of Republican candidates, Republican figures, conservative figures, white Christian males, straight males. That, that's what you can make fun of. But, but uh, anyone outside that group, you can't really make fun of them. And if you try, then you're going to be under fire on social media and be pressured to go on an apology tour and say you didn't mean to hurt people's feelings. So it's sad that everybody can't do things like this. 
Like this isn't transphobic. I mean, this is uh, this is a funny little bit that the guy's going to the city council meeting and saying he got drunk and went back with a girl that he thought liked him, and not only was she a prostitute, she was a chick with a dick. Okay, yeah, that's that's not uh, transphobic. It's not saying he hates all trans people. It's just a little funny bit that he went home with a girl who wasn't a real girl, and uh, he was drunk, and then she was a prostitute also. And you know what's wrong with that? It's it's a it's a comedy bit. This kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, some of these phony phone callers on Howard Stern, people like Captain Jenks and others who would inject themselves into real media situations. They'd call into serious talk shows or whatever and then act serious at first and they more and more ridiculous and sometimes even throw in something about Howard Stern and all of a sudden say Baba Booey or Howard Stern's penis and then they'd realize they're being screwed with and wouldn't know how to react. Those were always really funny bits to me because you you get to see institutions which normally take themselves too seriously get pranked and they don't know how to handle it. That's why these are so funny. Like a city council meeting always takes itself too seriously. Way too seriously. So this type of thing is funny to me. I especially like the end where (laughs) you think he's gone (laughs) and they're saying that he needs help. What? You kick me out? You talk about my back? What is this? Anyway, I just wanted to play that to you. Thought you might enjoy it. No real social commentary here, aside from that you have to be a conservative comedian to even be able to do anything like that anymore. Let's take a call. Caller, you're on the air. Calling Poker Fraud Alert. Calling Poker Fraud Alert. Well, yeah, that's who you reached. Hello, who is this? Hi. This is a good fella. Good fella. Okay, so what's going on? What do you like to talk about? I always enjoyed to hear uh, your thoughts on Mike on, you know, this guy, I, I held him in high regard for some time. And uh, I don't believe um, for some years he's been involved with the site. And you do believe that he has been. Well, uh, let, me, um, let me say and this. I think this is interesting. Well, let me say this. I don't know what he's involved with and what he's not. I severely doubted when he claimed he sold it many years ago after the after he got busted and then... Uh, shortly av- at first, he actually said he's restarting the new one, the the seals that exist yeah, right now. Exactly. Then, then sometime not too long after that, he claimed he sold it and didn't say to who. Now, maybe he really did. I have no proof either way, but I right. guessed that may or may not be correct that he was still involved in some way, and maybe he still is today, and maybe he's not. He has gotten involved in a lot of other things uh, in cryptocurrency and nfts and all that stuff so he he could have other income sources now which have nothing to do with that i was very confident just that regarding his passion and all these things and the big telltale sign for me at that point in time um was that the guy uh moves operation to another country and launches launches it dude and he says you know Government put guns in my, my my face and blah, 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 and all this stuff. Screw the government. I'm going to Antigua, boys, and we're reopening the shop. And he does it like a boss, bro. I have to give him credit for this. He did it like a boss. And, like, he... Pretty cool. Where else have you seen in history that someone has done it? I'm giving uh, a guy credit where it's due. Um... Again, I don't know the guy. I've never even spoke to him. 
Um, and then, you know, as years go by, I, I grow much less fond of him, and I'm kind of where I'm at now. And I'm not I really don't care, but um, not that I'm less fond of him. I, I think he's a co- cool guy and everything, but, like, it's just like I was – this was like fanboy stuff, okay, at, at that point in time in my life. And um, this is so cool to me, though, still, this part that when have we ever seen someone ever do that, uh, you know, he kept the site in um, operation uh, from being confiscated with guns in his face and going and reopening it. This is cool. And there was always a joke. Uh, he did that in front of a green screen around the around the site. Um, he did that in front of a green screen. And with that said, you know, I've been around around this time and after. You know, it was just, I had such a hard time believing that he was gone. But with all that, no, he he really I, went. No, he he really after, left. He really went to Antigua. That was oh, true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then he he really oh, did yeah. restart. It was just an inside joke. He really did start seals. He really did restart seals, and he uh-huh. was straightforward about that. And uh, that was true. Then all of a sudden, he's supposedly not involved anymore, which may or may not be true. Right. Right. And, right. Uh, so and then he toned That's down. The thing. You move. Initially, he had a very defiant attitude to the government, but then that changed. Then he said, wait a minute, I, I better not do this because I want to come back to the U.S. one day. I don't want to just hide in Antigua for the rest of my life. I want to be able to freely come back to the U.S. And at that point, uh, he got lawyers, uh, Chesnoff and Schoenfeld, who are very, very good at uh, disposing of charges in Nevada, and he probably paid a lot of money for them, but he hired them. And he also had the strength of being in Antigua instead of uh, in Nevada. So he basically said, I'm not coming back unless you guys give me a favorable plea deal. So he pled down to a very minor misdemeanor. And then uh, this was all agreed to before he, this was agreed to before he set foot on U.S. soil. And uh, so once that deal was in place, then he was able to come back. He was put in jail for about, a few hours and then quickly released on probation and the only thing he had to do was uh stay in the u.s for two years and have some sort of a sham job because he had to quote have employment as part of his uh probation and then at the drone store with which was run by a friend of his and then uh after those two years he returned to antigua and now he's free to come and go to the u.s all he wants i I have people asking me how is mike on how is mike on coming back how is he coming and playing in these these poker tournaments and stuff in the u.s why are they not arresting him i said they're not arresting him because he's not wanted it's over it's done he's and he's completed probation and he's done and he's a he's freely allowed to come back to the u.s as much as he wants and he's not going to be arrested so i don't know if he continued to secretly run seals or if, if he really it's did sell it that he goes back dude that's the crazy fucking thing yes absolutely well uh, it's not um, as crazy as you think because he, he started a life over there and it's not something i would want but he started a life there and he probably has a, a very nice house he bought because you you get a lot more there than you do in the u.s for the same money and he uh so he's established things there i know he wants to eventually start or maybe already has started and i don't know about it some gambling sites from there so uh, he's he seems to like being there and that's that doesn't necessarily mean anything about the present operation of seals it just means he he still but likes the, being the, there the obsession that he had dude in moving that over is just so that's at the time that was my thought process and it's still in my head that you just you you know, up and left that was a lot of passion that he, for doing that that was a lot of you know cool cool that he did that um i felt 
Um, did you know, and I don't know if he knew, but uh, did you know that Antigua has a, uh, like, a, some type of claim against the United... I don't know the right terminology, but there's some type of claim against the United States. Yes. That, you know, yes, I know about this. It has free to do with... Trade. It, yes, it has, it's a free trade claim against the U.S. Mm-hmm. because they claim that uh, by the U.S. making their online gambling sites illegal that it's uh, harming free trade and is uh, an unnecessary burden upon their citizens providing these sites. I, I feel that that claim is very weak. It's not going to stand up. Every country... I like ha- it. They, they, you can like it, but it's not going to ever go anywhere. The, uh, every country has a right to say, well, we don't want to allow do, this. Right? What? You know what they do with that, right? They say... Well, because of this, now we have the uh, right to now make up for that money, and we will exploit your actors, and we will take and give your movies away for free. Yeah, I've seen that, but I I don't know if they've really done it. I've seen that threat that this is the way they're going to collect is by pirating U.S. uh, intellectual property. But I I don't think this is... uh fair of Antigua to do. I don't support these actions. I, I if you want to if you want to offer if you want to offer offshore gambling to US residents that's one thing and I'd be a hypocrite if I say that's terrible because I actually use these sites. So I I'm not going to say oh that's awful they these shouldn't be offered it's it's awful because then why am I playing on them? But I will say that I don't feel these places have a right to offer it to U.S. residents if the U.S. doesn't want that, and if they suffer consequences from doing so, then tough luck. That's that's part of of the risk they're taking when they offer this. And truthfully, if these were allowed for all U.S. citizens, then U.S. companies would get in on it and do it a lot better and crush them. So the only reason they're doing well is because there is no competition, or the competition is very light and weak. And uh, so that's the when when you're succeeding because there isn't competition because you're doing something illegal. You can't complain when the government clamps down on you and gets you in trouble in some way or some other consequence because all this time you were gaining from the fact that you were doing something which you're not supposed to. So that's what people miss a lot of times when they complain. Oh, why is this? company suffering all they're doing is offering gambling well but they were offering gambling when everybody else who might want to otherwise can't in fact i would run one of these sites if i could do it legally it would be very lucrative and easy to do i'd, I'd love to run one of these from my home but, but i don't It'd be great you i mean in, integrity could be there and um, a lot of good things could be there it's funny that you say that um i find that i find it shocking that you say because uh, you're an obvious advocate of this um this area what is online poker big advocate in the area i feel that you saying antigua does not uh should not um, do what they're doing in my opposing view is that this is the smartest move that they could make in pressuring by saying that they're going to exploit uh one of the our biggest um you know areas and this pressures uh, or one of our biggest uh, lucrative areas, which is acting, and this is the only angle in way in way of pressuring uh, the United States in our favor, the land of the home free, or whatever you want to call it, the land of the free, home of the brave, whatever. Well, we can't play online poker, and you know this country is fighting for us. This little tiny island is fighting for us more than our own country is in this area. And the only reason our country won't allow it to happen is simply because they can't line enough uh, politicians' pockets and, and grease up everybody that, that, that walks by. They can't figure out how to divvy it up. 
Well, this this country, and that, Antigua and the others are not doing it for us. They're doing it for themselves. Absolutely. And, and it's, not, it's just not their place, though, to tell the U.S. what they can and can't allow. They can suggest it, but they can't tell the U.S. you have to do this or we're going to do this consequence on you and we're going to take illegal action against you. So they can try, but the bottom line is if the U.S. wants, they can really harm them. But what do we do? Them. We meddle in every single aspect of every country sometimes. You know? Well, that's a so, much more complicated I mean, discussion. But I'm, I'm just saying here that when, when some small country wants to offer some kind of illegal service to U.S. residents, then, you know, if, if they want to, fine. But uh, if they're going to suffer consequences from it, then that's the way it goes. That, that's part of the whole game. And they, they can't have the best of both worlds where they, they get no competition because others can't do this, but then they complain when there's any kinds of consequence. It's either, it's either it's all allowed and everybody gets to compete and the best one wins, or it's all not allowed and nobody does it. If there's a middle ground, like what they're trying to do here, then they've got to risk the consequences. Otherwise, it's not fair to everybody else. And that was, that's been my point the whole way, is that if it's not open to everybody else, you don't want to punish those who are actually following the rules. You don't want to punish those who would like to be in the space but can't because it would be too costly for them, either personally or professionally, to uh, to break the law and do it anyway. So, like, that's why I don't do it. I, I don't want the feds knocking on my door and taking me to jail. That's, that's why I don't offer online poker for my home. Otherwise, I would. If it was legal, I would do it. And, and so if I see other people doing it and making money... I'm not going to cry for them when they get in trouble because I would know I'd like to be part of it too, but I can't. So it's, it's, it's not fair to me otherwise if they get the best of both worlds where they can do it and then nothing happens when they're caught. So that's, that's why that bothers me. Not just for me personally. I'm saying for any industry, I don't think it's good practice to say it's okay for someone to walk in with no competition because something's not allowed and then make extra money from that and then expect no consequence. It's just not fair. It's not fair to everybody else. That's the, but at the same time, uh, if people want to use the services, then fine. I'm not going to say we need to boycott them. That's why I use it myself, because I want to play online poker, and I can't where I am, so I, I, do, I play it where it's available. But that doesn't mean I'm going to say this is an outrage if they get in trouble for it. Anyway, uh, I, I thank you for calling in. We've been on for a while here. I've got a lot of topics I have to get to, so... Uh, Thank you for oh, calling. Okay. All right. And yeah, I'll, so. Well, hey, thanks for letting me call in. I'll you talk to you later. Day. Bye. So that was a good fella. A lot of uh, topics from the past there. He was bringing up nothing about tonight, but just uh, various things heard over the years here from Poker Fraud Alert Radio. Moving on, it is time for the third week in a row to have the popular segment called... Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. Some people told me I could do okay with a thousand crickets. And I said, no, I'm getting 10,000. So I got 10,000 crickets. So this intro had the proper effect. This is Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history. This is a segment we do on and off on this show. Last three weeks now, I guess it's been on because we've done it three times in a row. Usually we either do Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history or Druffy Time Theater. For a while we were doing a lot of Druffy Time Theater, and I think we might go back to that next week. But for now, we have been doing Mojave Desert and Las Vegas history, which is a bit of a more serious segment than Druffy Time Theater. Depends what you like about this show. 
But I figured since we've done a lot of uh, Mojave Desert stuff lately, that it was time to go back to Las Vegas for this segment. And I thought a good topic would be something that has history and also has presence. That is, it's there right now. And it's still a major figure in Las Vegas. And I'm talking about Caesar's Palace. Caesar's Palace has been there for 56 years. It opened in 1966. A lot of people who listen to the show were not born when Caesar's opened, including me. It would be almost six years until I would be born after Caesar's Palace opened. The Caesar's Palace you see today, while it does have some of its original structure, also has a lot of expansion and differences compared to the 1966 Caesars. But I'm not only going to talk about its evolution over the years, I'm going to talk about the history behind it and the man behind it. The man behind Caesar's Palace was J. Sarno, S-A-R-N-O. He was born in 1922. He only lived to the age of 62. Shortly after his 62nd birthday, he died of a heart attack. He was actually at Caesar's Palace when he died of this heart attack in 1984. Something that some people don't know, in fact, a lot of people don't know, is that there probably would have been a gigantic hotel in Vegas, which would probably still be standing today, had he not died. He was just about to develop a massive property called Grandissimo. It was to be a new hotel and casino with 6,000 rooms. It was going to be the biggest hotel in the world. However, it didn't actually get going yet. This was just plans for the future, plans for the very near future. And when Sarno died in 1984, Grandissimo died with him. But it would have been interesting if he lived longer, if we would have seen that property and how it would have evolved over the years itself. Would this be a really major property in Vegas today if this were built in the mid to late 80s? But let's get back to what actually was built by Jay Sarno, Caesar's Palace. So as I mentioned, Caesar's Palace opened in 1966, in August 1966. So it really has been open just about exactly 56 years. And it was the first major property that had a luxury element to it. And it really changed the way people viewed luxury in Las Vegas because it really didn't exist prior to this. Now, yes, there were other major hotels that already existed in 1966, for example, the Flamingo, but Caesar's Palace was meant to eclipse all of that, and it was meant to kind of change Las Vegas and change the way people see Las Vegas when they come to stay there. Now, Sarno, of course, uh, built up to doing this, he didn't just show up out of nowhere and build Caesar's Palace. You also might wonder, given the 1966 time frame, if 
any kind of mob money was involved? And the answer was yes. Sarno was not really a mob figure, but I will get to where the mob money came in. Because, you know, in the 60s, there was a very heavy mob influence in Las Vegas, and that influence only grew in the 70s and in the early 80s before starting to decline and then uh, disappear entirely, for the most part, in the early 1990s, as we have discussed before. Sarno actually originally was building hotels in other cities. His first lodging project was the Atlanta Cabana Motor Hotel. And that's what a lot of hotels were called back then, was uh, motor hotels. That's where the term motel comes from. But some things that uh, you see as a motor hotel are not really what you would think of a motel today. A motor hotel was kind of, in the old days, a hotel you would stay at that you would drive to. That's what it was called, a motor hotel. And that term's gone away, I remember, from when I was a kid, but you don't see any motor hotels anymore. Anyway, the Atlanta Cabana Motor Hotel had 200 rooms. It was in Atlanta, not Vegas, not anywhere near Vegas. In uh, 1958, it opened. But the reason I'm mentioning it, not just because Sarno was behind it, but it had a few resemblances to Caesar's. Because it had some uh, Roman-style statues outside. It had a modest fountain next to the open-air swimming pool. And it also had a uh, grand stairlight chandelier and curving stairway in the lobby. And it had a uh, seven-story high wall covered in light blue tile facing the street. And more importantly... The Atlanta Cabana is famous for something else. It's the first hotel project ever that received a loan from the Teamsters Central States Southeast Southwest Area Pension Fund. That is Teamster money that was through the mob. So the loan was $1.8 million, which of course is worth a lot more today. This was in the 1950s. And if you use an inflation calculator, 1958, of uh, 1.8 million, that would be about 30 million today. So that's substantially different. 1.8 million wouldn't get you very far building a hotel right now, but 30 million, still not a ton of money, but they were able to build this hotel, which was uh, 200 rooms in Atlanta. Jimmy Hoffa was involved in this. Yes, the same Jimmy Hoffa who eventually disappeared and still don't have a complete answer who killed him. Then uh, Sarno built another hotel in Dallas and another one in Palo Alto, California, the same Palo Alto, which is where Stanford is located and also where Phil Helmuth currently lives. And he lives there, by the way, because his wife is a professor at Stanford, so... He moved to where his wife's career is. That's why he's in Palo Alto. He was originally from Madison, Wisconsin. But this is not a segment about Helmuth. I just mentioned that because of Palo Alto. But in uh, 1959, Jay Sarno met Jerome Rosenthal, who was a entertainment lawyer in Hollywood. And he represented a lot of uh, major stars of that day, including like Doris Day. 
And he got Doris Day and another agent named Martin Melcher to invest millions of dollars with Sarno for their next hotel project, which was the Palo Alto Cabana. Remember, he had the Cabana Motor Hotel in Atlanta. So this is another cabana. And this was built in Palo Alto, California this time. And I'll get to it in a little bit why you don't know about these properties anymore. You may think, well, I've been to Palo Alto. I don't know of any Palo Alto Cabana, but I'll explain why. So in 1962, the Palo Alto Cabana opened, and that one is really considered the prelude to Caesar's Palace. And if you go Google the pictures of the Palo Alto Cabana, you will see that a lot of it does have some similarities to the front of Caesar's Palace, at least the original front of Caesar's Palace. And it had a large imitation of the statue of the headless Greek goddess winged victory of Samothrace, and a series of 30-foot lighted fountains, and a statue patterned after Michelangelo's David, and these were all between uh, two driveways they had coming in. And this was located uh, kind of back from the street, similar to how the original Caesar's Palace was. You may say, wait a minute, I see Caesar's right on the street. No, no, those are, those are later built towers you see on the street. But the original Caesar's is built back from the street, if you think about it. So where did Las Vegas come into this? Did he just randomly pick Vegas because he had built in... Atlanta, Dallas, and Palo Alto was Vegas just kind of what was next. And remember, Vegas was not very big at this point. Vegas, it wasn't tiny, but it was much, much smaller than it is today. But he was going to Vegas because he liked gambling. Jay Sarno was kind of a degenerate gambler. And he started gambling more and more. And he actually flew back and forth to Vegas to gamble in between business meetings. So he got so into the gambling thing, he couldn't even wait until he'd have his normal vacations to Vegas. He's like, well, let's see, I've got a business meeting on Monday and one on Wednesday. Oh, well, Tuesday's open. Okay, I'm going to fly to Vegas, gamble on Tuesday, and fly back and be back in time for my Wednesday meeting. So he would do things like this. So he kept going back and forth a lot to Vegas. And what he was noticing maybe from his own losses, that these casinos were raking in money. And he said, oh, wow, look at this. Why am I wasting time with these hotels in non-gambling destinations when I could make money in two ways if I built a hotel here? I could make money from the hotel and the restaurants and the services it offers, and I could make money from the gambling part. They've got to be raking it in here. So he thought, why don't I build a hotel here he also noticed that the hotels in Vegas were not very good. So he thought that his existing Cabana Motor hotels in the three cities where they'd been built were substantially better than anything that Vegas offered. So he thought, what if I build something with equivalent or better quality to my existing Cabana hotels in these other cities in Vegas, then this should really kill it because anyone looking for a luxury stay will go to me. So he started looking for locations to build a hotel. He ended up building on the Strip near Flamingo Road. And uh, this land was actually already owned by Kirk Kerkorian, who, of course, did a lot of developing of his own later. But he leased the land from Kerkorian. 
And then he got from Jimmy Hoffa another pension fund loan of $10.6 million, which, of course, is a lot more than that $1.8 million. So if you think about like in uh, 1964, uh, $10.8 million would be like $103 million today. So that was a pretty hefty loan he got at the time. And again, Caesars funded with uh, Teamster pension funds, which of course had a lot of uh, mob connections to them. So again, Caesars was somewhat financed by mob money. And he started to uh, build Caesars. When he developed the Dallas Cabana, there was a woman named either Joe or Joy Harris. I'm not sure which one it was. But Ms. Harris was apparently very attractive, and Jay Sarno really wanted to date her. In fact, he kind of implied to her that if she were to date him, that she could be the chief architect of this Dallas cabana that he was building. This was in the mid-50s. And she said no. (laughs) She wasn't attracted to him and said, nope, I don't want to date you. And if you're not going to hire me for that reason, then oh well. Well, Sarno was impressed enough with her work to where he hired her anyway. And so she did really all of the interior designs of the Dallas Cabana and then later the other hotels that that he made, including Caesars. So Joe Harris was really involved with the internal designs in Caesars. Then they had this... uh, architect Melvin Grossman for the designer of the outside. And he ended up building Caesars with 680 rooms. And it was set back 135 feet from the strip. Remember, just like this one in Palo Alto, he really wanted these set back away from the street. He was very obsessed with that. It had five 65-foot tall fountains, which was unusual at the time. Today, there's so many different gimmicks on the strip that kind of gets lost in that. But the fountains were a big deal. People used to always talk about the Caesars Fountains. That was like a landmark there in Las Vegas in the 60s and 70s. So that was something that he wanted to have there. He had more of these imitation statues of David and the winged victory of Samothrace and... uh, He had cypress trees on property, and then he had various Roman-style statues at the hotel entrance that he based on St. Peter's Square in Rome. And it didn't just stop at how the place looked. He also made sure that the employees dressed the part. Men dressed as Roman soldiers, and women dressed as Cleopatra and served as greeters. And uh, the cocktail waitresses wore sexy toga dresses. And, of course, all the cocktail waitresses were young and attractive. You didn't see any 70-year-old cocktail waitresses back then like you see today. Hanging from the ceiling of the lobby was a 100-foot chandelier. It was created from 100,000 German-made crystals. The rear outdoor swimming pool was built with 8,000 pieces of marble from an Italian quarry. And he tried to base this upon a public pool in Pompeii. And he had two-story suites 
on the property that had very nice views of the Las Vegas Strip, which at the time was not really the main part of Las Vegas. Back then, downtown was the main place people went, but the Strip had some action on it, and people would have views of the Strip from these suites, very nice views. He also built a large showroom that was intended to resemble the inside of Rome's Colosseum. It's called the Circus Maximus Showroom, and it had 800 seats, and that showroom is still there. It's called the Colosseum, and it's still there. It's not called uh, Circus Maximus anymore. There is also a 250-seat lounge with a reflecting pool built there called Nero's Nook, and I believe that uh, is where uh, Cleopatra's Barge is today. I think that. I'm not sure of that. But if you've walked by Cleopatra's Barge with that uh, boat sticking out, I think that's the same place. Circus Maximus had a lot of major stars at the time coming and performing there. Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., Judy Garland, Woody Allen, Cher, Aretha Franklin, and many others performed in the Circus Maximus showroom. Now, have you ever seen Caesar's Palace with an apostrophe? Caesar apostrophe S palace. In fact, maybe you think that's the way you're supposed to write it. Well, no, I used to make that mistake too. And it's not the same mistake as stupid people make when writing something. Like sometimes I'll see like three pizzas, pizza apostrophe S. Well, that's always wrong. That's using a contraction improperly because that would really mean three pizza is, which of course is nonsense. So you would just spell pizza, spell pizzas P-I-Z-Z-A-S without an apostrophe. Well, that's not what's going on here because you would think that Caesar apostrophe S palace is correct. Like it's the palace belonging to Julius Caesar. And I always thought that. I always called it Caesar apostrophe S palace. And then one day someone pointed out to me on my sister site, VegasCasinoTalk.com, which I encourage you visit and register an account. It's an, another form I manage and own. But on VegasCasinoTalk.com, a number of years ago, someone told me, I'm not writing it correctly. It's actually Caesar's Palace, plural, not with an apostrophe S. And they were right. But why is that? Why is it missing the apostrophe, which can feel weird when you write sometimes? Well, this was intentional. Jay Starnell was asked, why are you calling it Caesar's Palace with an S instead of apostrophe S? Isn't this supposed to be Julius Caesar's Palace? And he said, no, it's called Caesars with an S without an apostrophe, because I want everyone who enters to feel as if they're a Caesar. And I want the patrons of this hotel to feel like they're leaving the real world and entering a fantasy world. So Jay Sarno wanted you to feel like a Caesar. He wanted you and everybody else visiting Caesars Palace to feel like a Caesar. So you're all Caesars. So that's why it's Caesars Palace. Not one Caesar, but everybody's a Caesar. That's the reason for the lack of apostrophe, in case you're wondering. The opening party was very, very lavish and expensive. In August 1966, they opened and had the opening party with 1,400 people who were invited. It wasn't open to the public, but they invited 1,400 people. And they spent a lot of money on this. How much was spent, remember, $1,966 on just the opening party? One million dollars. 
Yes, $1 million in 1956 money was spent on that opening party. It's one thing to spend a lot of money on building something, but this is just on a party to celebrate the opening. And they spent a million nineteen sixty-six dollars which was about $9 million today. As an expensive opening party and uh, 1,400 people were invited, as I said. So what happened since then? And how come you don't hear much about Jay Sarno anymore? Now, one reason is because he's been dead for 38 years. But another reason is because he died after selling the property. In 1967, there was already some controversy when Evil Knievel, remember he was the guy who always jumped things on his motorcycle. He was very popular, remember, in the 70s when I was growing up. I even had a little Evil Knievel action figure that I liked to play with. So I, I was like a fan of his as a kid. But anyway, Evil Knievel attempted to jump over these famous Caesars fountains on his motorcycle in 1967 and failed and almost died. So I almost wasn't a fan of Evil Knievel because he almost croaked five years before I was born, thanks to attempting to jump over the Caesars fountains. That was the first controversy, but a much bigger controversy came in the following two years, because the federal government said, hold on a second, Mr. Sarno, where did you get the money to build Caesars Palace? And there was some concern that Caesars Palace was built with mob money, and he was being aggressively investigated by the federal government. So as I guess was some sort of agreement to get him out of this investigation, because it wasn't 100% clear that he had done anything illegal, but it also wasn't 100% that he was in the clear, I guess an agreement was made that he would bail out of the whole thing and sell the property. So he did. In 1969 three years before I was born, he sold Caesar's Palace for $58 million to Clifford and Stuart Perlman, two very nice Jews, two nice Jewish boys who took it off his hands. And that's good because there wouldn't be any problem with Jews involving mob money in the Caesar's Palace that had just been purchased. Would there be? I don't know about that, because it turned out that it went from mob money to mob money. That Clifford and Stuart Perlman, who were not known mob figures themselves, secretly used Jewish Miami mobster Meyer Lansky's money to buy it. (laughs) Oops. So, that didn't exactly remove the mob influence. It just changed which mob figures were involved. The reason Frank Sinatra ended up at Caesar's Palace was because of a fallout with Howard Hughes at the Sands, which is now the Venetian. So in order to spite the Sands, he went over to Caesar's, which was only a year old, and signed a three-year contract. And there was a little bit of a problem there with Sinatra in 1970 he was playing baccarat and he was betting uh, $8,000 per hand which was a lot at the time and he wanted the stakes raised to 16000 and oddly enough 
his request was denied, I guess because the casino didn't want to take that amount of risk. Obviously, they're still playing with an advantage over him, but there's more variance the higher the stakes, and I guess they didn't want to take the risk. So they told Frank Sinatra, even though he's a performer, they're sorry, you're going to have to stay at a maximum of 8,000 per hand. So Sinatra began shouting, and then a hotel executive named Sanford Waterman came to talk with him, and uh, it just got worse. So he started making threats to Sanford Waterman, and Sanford Waterman started making threats back to him. And at one point, Waterman pulled out a gun and pointed it at Sinatra. And Sinatra didn't do anything back to him, but he did walk out, went back to Palm Springs where he lived, and uh, just did not finish the rest of his time to perform there. Uh, Waterman was booked on a charge of assault with a deadly weapon, but was released without bail, and then charges were not filed. And part of that reason was because... uh, Sinatra would not make a statement regarding the incident. However, Sinatra said he's never going to perform at Caesars again after that whole thing that happened. But uh, in 1974, he came back there and performed for the rest of the 1970s. I guess he got over it. And in fact, he was performing at Caesars when his mother died in a plane crash in 1977. There was a fire at Caesars Palace not too long after the infamous fire at the MGM Grand that killed 80 people. This was the following year in 1981. A fire broke out and uh, 16 people were hospitalized. In uh, that same year, in 1981, the Perlmans, remember the ones who had Meyer Lansky's money behind that purchase from Jay Sarno, they ended up selling their shares after failing to get a gaming license in Atlantic City because the New Jersey Control Commission, the Casino Control Commission, knew that they were doing business with the mob and said, "Uh uh-uh, you may have gotten that uh, casino in Vegas, but you're not getting one here. So they decided that uh, the casino industry is kind of a dead end for them. So they sold their interest, and that was the end of the Perlman Brothers. The Teamsters still had a presence at Caesars in the 1980s. The annual Teamsters convention was held at Caesars with a massive, lavish party. In 1992, the forum shops opened. Now, they're still around. The forum shops is a high-end mall which is connected to Caesars Palace Casino. And it has been redeveloped since it originally opened in 92. There was a major redevelopment in 2004, In fact, uh, I walked through it while it was being redeveloped in 2004. I was uh, right when I was kind of transitioning over to living in Las Vegas. And I remember I had had just gambled at Caesars Palace and I was done, but it was like 5 a.m. And I remember walking through the forum shops, which somehow was open to walk through, even though everything was closed. And it was really, really creepy because it was just me and nobody else in that gigantic mall. And it even had that fake blue sky above my head. So it really felt like I'm walking in like a post-apocalyptic world where it's just me left alive. It was really weird. But anyway, uh, it opened in 92. They redeveloped it in 04. Now we're getting to more modern history. 
one of them had a major effect on poker. In 2005, Caesars Entertainment, which was the owner of Caesars Palace at the time, merged with Harris Entertainment. In fact, Harris Entertainment is what acquired Caesars Entertainment, but the confusion comes from the name change, where Harris changed its own name to Caesars Entertainment five years later because the Caesars brand was a more prestigious brand than the Harris brand. So they actually changed their name to Caesars, which they had ownership of because they acquired Caesars Entertainment. But that merger happened in 2005. Now, what had happened right before that? Harris had bought the Binion's Hotel and Casino in downtown Las Vegas. And what did Binion's own? The World Series of Poker. So Harris owned the World Series of Poker, and then they took it and sold Binion's back to another buyer. So they got what they wanted out of it, and they essentially sold it for about the same price. So they got the World Series of Poker for free. And that is why the World Series of Poker is a Caesars operation, because Harris bought it, and then Harris bought Caesars, so it all became one and the same. Caesars has had a number of expansions. The initial tower that was built there was called the Roman Tower. And I'm not sure if that was the original name of it. I think it was just Caesar's Palace, and it probably was called the Roman Tower at some point when other towers were built. But the first tower was the Roman Tower and still exists today. You can stay there. You can tell it's old. You can even see these little balconies there that you can no longer access, but you could at the time. I got stuck there once, and let me tell you, it was kind of depressing. It felt like I was in a different hotel. Because I was used to staying in the 2000s-built Augustus Tower. And what had happened is they gave away my room. And my choice was either to stay in a room very low on the Augustus Tower on Flamingo Road, which was very noisy because traffic is zooming by it constantly and I was not going to be able to sleep, or take something in the Roman Tower and move the next day. I was pissed off at them for giving out my room. And and since then, I've been calling in to make sure they hold a room for me. That was a tough lesson to learn. But uh, anyway, I dealt with it at the time and took a room at the Roman Tower. And I go up the elevator and immediately I notice the ceilings are low. Like they're like eight foot ceilings, which felt really weird because the Augustus Tower has at least fairly high ceilings and definitely not eight foot ceilings. I mean, my house has higher than eight foot ceilings. So an eight foot ceiling felt really weird. It felt almost claustrophobic. Felt like I was in some cheap old hotel. It was not renovated at all. The room was small. The elevator was slow and old. The whole thing was not luxurious at all. It's funny that that was the luxurious property when it opened in 1966. Of course, things had changed. It uh, obviously degraded over time. It's not just that the standards had changed, it's that the property itself got old. But it was still even hard to picture that in 1966, this was considered like a really luxurious place. Anyway, I stayed in that one night and moved and I swore never again. So that was the first tower. Again, I don't think it was called the Roman Tower when it opened, because if you only have one tower, then why would you call it something? A short time after that, the Centurion Tower was built. And that is currently called the Nobu Tower. In fact, that is actually called the Nobu Hotel. The Nobu Hotel 
and I'm getting a bit ahead of myself here because that was, I think, something that opened in, uh, I think it was 2011 or 12 or something when the Nobu Hotel opened, but that was the Centurion Tower, and they just renovated it in Nobu style and renamed it. But the Centurion Tower itself opened in 1970, four years after the original Roman Tower. And you could tell is still an older tower, even though the interior looks newer and more modern. You can still see from the structure that it seems old, and the rooms are quite small. A Poker Fraud Alert member actually got me a room at the Nobu Tower. That's the only time I've been there. And I actually gave it to my parents. And I'll say that for two people, which my parents are, because obviously their kids are long grown up, for two people it's fine, but you would not want to have a third person in these rooms. They're, they're quite small in the Centurion slash Nobu Tower. And I guess they're even remodeling it again, which is pretty soon afterwards, but I guess it's a new remodeling. Maybe they're going to make the rooms bigger. I don't know. There was also the Forum Tower, and that was opened as as the third tower there, opened in uh, 1979. The Roman Tower was named the Julius Tower sometime in the 2010s. I forgot when. And then the Forum Tower is still called the Forum Tower, and that was opened in 1979. So that was the third tower. So the three old towers there were the Roman slash Julius Tower built in 66, and I guess they built some more on it in 1974. Then the Centurion Tower, which is now the Nobu Tower in 1970, and the Forum Tower in 1979. I would suggest avoiding the Julius and Forum Towers as it's pretty clear that these are old. Now, they're closer to the parking lot and the casino, so that's one good thing about them. They're not out of the way. And I'll explain shortly how Caesars is like a really funny shape now. And it's very confusing if you haven't been there before. But those were the first towers, and you can tell they're older. No matter how much they try to put lipstick on that pig, you can still tell it's an old pig. So <laughs> you should try to avoid those towers. The more modern towers began in 1998. The Palace Tower was built and opened in 1998 and it is kind of near the pool then the Augustus Tower was going to be a major expansion of Caesar's Palace and that was going to be the first tower that actually faces the street and I, I think Jay Sarno would be turning over in his grave if he got to see the Augustus Tower even though it's a nice tower it's right on Flamingo Boulevard so it's quite noisy unless you're on one of the higher floors. With that said, it has a very nice view of the Bellagio Fountains. So that is the tower I actually like best, despite the noise. I try to stay on what they call floor 36 and higher, which isn't real floor 36 because I think it begins at like 23. But I stay on floor, quote, 36 or higher. And then I want to stay to the left of the elevator. And I want to be fairly down the hall and facing the fountains. And if you get that, then you get a very beautiful view of the fountains at night and during the day too. But I, I like the night even better because you also get to look down the strip. It's a very, very nice view you get there at the Augustus Tower. And that's the tower I recommend. But you don't want to stay low 
because then you are going to be hearing a lot of traffic noise because Flamingo Road is quite noisy. Anyway, the Augustus Tower, the plans began in 2003. It was completed in 2005. It had 949 rooms when it was completed. And the Augustus Tower was designed to have more upscale luxuries and service than the other parts of the resort. So this is supposed to be the tower you go to if you want to stay in rooms that are really nice. That's where the nicest rooms are supposed to be. And in fact, the service over there was supposed to be better, which is kind of funny. The Octavius Tower opened seven years later in 2012. That was a 668-room tower. That one does not face the street. That is uh, internal to the property. And that does not have much of a view. And that is the problem with the Octavius Tower. People used to always say, oh, I want the Octavius Tower. It's the newest, nicest one. No, not really. It was pretty equivalent to Augustus as far as how nice the rooms were, yet it had no view. Sometimes it had a pool view, but that was about it. So if you wanted a nice view of the strip and the fountains, you needed to stay in Augustus. So the one that's along Flamingo is Augustus. And all these towers are still there. None of them have been wrecked or changed into anything else. The only thing that's really converted has been the Centurion Tower to being Nobu. But all of it's still there. So Caesars now has all these towers. Now, because of this, the whole parking situation at Caesars is a mess. Because the parking structure was originally built for the main casino and the towers next to the main casino. So if you stay at the Augustus Tower or the Octavius Tower, especially Octavius, you're walking a long way and making all these strange twists and turns to get over to Augustus or Octavius from the self-parking structure. So beware of that. And not only is it a long walk, it's a weird walk. You're going to be taking turns you wouldn't expect. It's not going to be obvious how to get around there. The first time I was there, I was going crazy. Now I know it like the back of my hand, but it's very confusing to get over to Augustus and Octavius from the parking structure. So that was the last tower that was built in 2012, the Octavius Tower. As I said, the forum shops are still open. I don't believe that Caesars is going to do any further expansion. They are constantly renovating it, even though the Augustus Tower opened in 05. These rooms get beaten up real fast. Vegas hotel rooms age really quickly, kind of like a Vegas cocktail waitress. They tend to age quickly too, but so do the hotel room. So a hotel room built in 05, by the time you get to the mid-2010s, it already looks old. It already looks kind of run down. It doesn't look horrible. It's not like a beat up little motel, but it doesn't look luxurious anymore. It has a worn look to it already. So they started to renovate it in the late 2010s, and that's done. So when you stay in the Augustus Tower now, you're actually staying in renovated rooms. And it looks a lot better. I did feel like the Augustus Tower rooms were looking tired, and now it looks nicer again. So they spent a good deal of money renovating those. I'll give you a little trick. If you cannot get an Augustus Tower or Octavius Tower room at booking time, don't panic. Book something else. Book the best thing you can get that's not one of these two. And then when you go check in, ask 
And when I say ask, I mean aggressively ask. Don't just take no as a first answer. Just say, hey, can you look? Can you make sure? Can you see if anything is dirty and needs to be cleaned? Like, just keep asking, can I have something in the Augustus Tower or the Octavius Tower if that's what you want? And they'll probably find you something, especially if you're diamond or higher. So they, they always have extra rooms that aren't sold there that you can be given. So that's something you should keep in mind. I've stayed in Caesars so many times in the past 10 years, especially between 2012 and like 2017. I stayed there constantly because I was a seven star and I could have these rooms for free. So I gave up my place in Vegas and just kept staying at Caesars. I I logged a lot of nights over there. So I know the place super well. And that's why these tricks work. And I even stayed there fairly recently, and it still works. I couldn't get in Augustus' room when I, bu- when I booked, but uh, I was able to talk them into giving me one at the front desk. Caesars used to have a poker room, but it closed. They now have a, a club. I think the club expanded further. There, the club used to be right next to the poker room. I believe they wrecked the poker room and expanded the club, from what I remember. And... I believe they closed Cleopatra's Barge, which, as I said, I think that was that original bar and lounge there that uh, eventually became Cleopatra's Barge with a replica boat that kind of sticks out. But I believe that's been closed from what I've seen recently. They have a pretty large sports book, and that is still very much operational. And that is by where the poker room used to be and where the club is. They also have various restaurants on property that uh, mostly are aligned with celebrity chefs of some kind. I know that they have some contracts with uh, Gordon Ramsay. I think uh, Giada opened up uh, something over there. Her main restaurant's at the Cromwell. But she has something over there. They have... Some knockoffs of famous restaurants around the country, which are never as good as the original. So they have the old Homestead Steakhouse, and uh, they had Rayo's, I think it closed, and Mr. Chow, the Chinese restaurant. And all of these are famous restaurants that uh, really are, are just copied in name only. I mean, they're allowed to use the name, but they're they're nowhere near as good as the originals. So don't think you're going to the same thing just in a different city. And Caesars has a few other locations. They have Caesars Atlantic City and Caesars Windsor, and they're eventually going to have Caesars New Orleans. Harris New Orleans is converting to become a Caesars property, which of course is the same ownership, but it's going to be called Caesars because I always thought it should have been because it resembles much more of a Caesars than it does a Harris. It is a high-end property, and it never made sense why it was Harris branded, and they finally realized that, and they are converting it. So that will be the fourth Caesars property. In case you're wondering where Windsor is, it is near Detroit, but it's not in the United States. It is in Ontario, Canada, right across the river from Detroit, and they get a lot of people from Detroit coming across to play over there. I have stayed at Windsor once. I have stayed at Caesars Atlantic City once. Caesars Las Vegas is the best of the three and the biggest of the three. Caesars Windsor is kind of weird. 
Caesar's Palace is a pretty iconic Vegas location, and it has been in a lot of uh, TV series and films. It has been in Hell's Angels on Wheels, was the first film it appeared in in 1967, just a year after it was built. Where It's At from 1969, The Only Game in Town in 1970, The Electric Horseman in 1979, Rocky III in 1982, Oh God, You Devil, 1984, You Ruined My Life, 1987, Rain Man in 1988, that's where Rain Man was gambling, counting cards, Hearts Are Wild in 1992, Fools Rush In in 1997, Ocean's Eleven in 2001, Intolerable Cruelty in 2003, Dream Girls in 2006, Iron Man in 2008, The Hangover in 2009, of course, uh, that was very prominently fe- featured there. Uh, the movie 2012, which was in 2009, The Hangover Part 3 in 2013, and uh, Step Up All In in 2014. Maybe more, but that's the list I have here. It also appeared in some TV series like The Partridge Family, The Simpsons, The Sopranos, The Strip. Marvel's Angel, Angels, Marvel's Agents of Shield, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, and even though this is not on this list, I remember it in Sanford and Son. Remember a '70s episode of Sanford and Son, I think from '74, '75, and Sanford, played by Red Fox, went to Caesar's Palace, and you actually got some exterior shots of the real Caesar's Palace. So it wasn't just in the story; you actually got to see him going there and falling in the fountains and interestingly they showed him driving into Vegas on Las Vegas Boulevard which nobody does anymore now people go through I-15 but you saw him driving past the welcome to fabulous Las Vegas sign which was how you got into Vegas back then but is no longer now you have to go out of your way to get to that sign but they showed that and they showed him at Caesars showed him falling in the fountain all that so that was prominently featured there I forgot the plot of that whole episode but remember Caesars appearing there and noticing what was still the same and what was different. But that was that place is a big deal. Caesars was a big deal when it opened, still in the 70s, and all the way through today. And that is where Caesars is very unique. Because can you think of a major hotel in Las Vegas in the 60s and 70s that is still a major hotel today? I don't mean a hotel that's still open. I mean a hotel that is considered one of the major, at least fairly nice hotels of Las Vegas. Just about all of them have either been wrecked or are such has-beens that it's a cheap place to stay when you don't want to spend a lot of money or you can't get anywhere else to stay. Look at the Flamingo. The Flamingo is a low-to-mid-end hotel. It's not an iconic place in Vegas anymore, except for its history. It's not a major hotel in Vegas anymore. It's still there. It's older than Caesars Palace, but it's not what it once was. Yet Caesars Palace, because of all the additions and renovations, is still a major property. In fact, it is considered the flagship property in Las Vegas of Caesars Entertainment. It is the only old-school hotel in Vegas which has maintained its status over the years. Everything else has been destroyed or fallen upon hard times and become a budget hotel. So that's one way that Caesars has stood out from the rest. 
And it seems like this is not going to change. Even when Caesars Entertainment was having all kinds of financial trouble in the 2010s and filed for bankruptcy, they were never considering shedding Caesars Palace itself. They were considering shedding other assets. They were never going to get rid of Caesars Palace itself. That was considered completely off the table. That was one asset they were not going to sell. Now, yes, there was the merger with El Dorado recently, and that's the last thing we're going to talk about here regarding the history of Caesars, which, of course, now we're getting pretty uh, modern. So Caesars uh, expanded throughout the country, and now we're talking about Caesars the property, not just uh, Caesars Palace. They expanded throughout the country, and they were a major casino operator, with Caesars Palace being its flagship, and they owned properties in a lot of different places, all under this uh, Total Rewards, a.k.a. Caesars Rewards system. And they eventually merged with uh, El Dorado, with El Dorado technically being the ones acquiring them, but it was really more of a merger, and that took place in 2020. So the reason I'm mentioning this is because El Dorado is the present owner of Caesars Palace because they acquired Caesars Entertainment. So not only did they add a lot of properties to the Caesars portfolio because they merged, but also now technically it has a new owner and a new CEO took over. But that's for all of Caesars Entertainment, not just Caesars Palace. But it did uh, technically change ownership, even though it is still named Caesars Entertainment. Because again, just like with Harrah's, Caesars was the better known brand, so El Dorado renamed itself to Caesars Entertainment after acquiring Caesars Entertainment. So that's where it stands today. There are almost 4,000 rooms between all the different towers at Caesars Palace. 3,960 rooms. Now I've got a question which would seem to be something you could easily answer, but then you're going to think about it and go, wait a minute, what is the answer? What is the only permanent show presently at Caesars Palace? I don't mean a show that's there sometimes. I'm talking about a show that's always there. What is the only one? There's only one permanent show in all of Caesars Palace. Can you think of what that might be? Is it Celine Dion? No. What is it? What is the only permanent show there? The only permanent show is Absinthe. Yes, and it's not even in a real theater. Absinthe began in 2006, and it's in this weird back area where you pass, if you walk down the stairs after initially going up from Flamingo Boulevard, either up the stairs or an elevator, and then you you walk down to get into the entrance of Caesar's Palace that leads you kind of towards the uh, front desk. And on the way there, you'll pass this weird tent, and that's where Absinthe is. It's been in a tent for its entire 16 years. And audience members sit in a circle around the stage in these really cheap fold-up chairs. They never upgraded it. In fact, I've never been to this show and part of the reason is because it looks very uncomfortable. It looks like you're just crammed in with a ton of people on fold-up chairs. It just looks very, very uncomfortable. It looks like 
an uncomfortable cramped tent show. <laughs> so I decided that I don't really want to see this, even though some people really like the show. It, it's a very kind of obscene show. It does have some very good acrobatic-type performances that I've heard about, but uh, I just don't like the whole setting it's at. So that's why I've never been to it. It's it's a 90-minute show, but that's the only show they've had there in the last uh, 16 years that's permanent. I had always thought maybe this is going to be something that's just there a very short time, and that's why it's in a tent. It's, it's really weird that a 16-year running show is still in a tent. Like, why not give it a better space? But that's where it's been. In fact, they had to shut down production for some time near the beginning of Absinthe when inspections by Las Vegas Fire told them that this uh, tent has some kind of safety violations. I'm not sure what they were, but they were told to shut down production, and I I guess they corrected whatever the violations were. And originally the show was on a 90-day trial, but it did extremely well, and then they were able to continue operating, and they're still around uh, today. So that's the only permanent show there. So that's why you probably are having a hard time picturing which shows are permanent in Caesars, because there aren't any. They do have shows in that Coliseum, and they do have shows that come and go, but that's the only one that's always there. But there's some casinos, some hotels that are very, very associated with a certain act that's always there. I mean, like even the Rio had Penn & Teller for all those years, not Caesars. You've probably heard of Absinthe, but it's, it's like, it's not something you think of right away when you think of major Vegas shows. And it's not a major Vegas show. It's kind of like a mid-grade Vegas show. It's funny that's the only one at Caesars and it's still in a tent. <laughs> I have one more thing to tell you here. If you want to do self-parking at Caesars, and again, it's going to be a long walk from self-parking to... It'll be a long walk from the self-parking to Augustus and Octavius. But if you do want to do self-parking, there is a trick to get into the self-parking that most people don't know. So let's say it's a Friday or Saturday night, and the strip is really, really, really busy with bumper-to-bumper traffic. And you're already in a big line of traffic on Flamingo after getting off the freeway and turning right. And you're like, oh my God, I'm going to have to sit in all this traffic, then turn left and probably wait a few cycles to even turn left. And then I turn left and I'll be in a tremendous jam on the strip. Then I got to turn left again into Caesar's Palace. And then like this is going to take forever. Well, there's another way in. There's another much quicker way in to the Caesar's Palace self-park. This is a trick. Only locals know, and even many of them don't know. So if you turn left into Caesar's Palace at the same place where the Bellagio Valet area is off of Flamingo, so you'd be going on Flamingo east towards the strip from the freeway, and there is only one traffic light that you would have to stop at, and it's one that uh, to the left goes into Caesar's, and to the right goes into the Bellagio. Except if you turn left, it seems like you're really not going anywhere because it looks like you're just going to the Augustus Tower. And indeed, it's only valet parking there. And I think you have to be diamond or higher, maybe even seven stars or higher to use that valet. So I'm not suggesting using that valet. 
So you turn into that as if you're using that valet, except you continue turning left. So you turn left and you turn quickly left again. And you follow down this little back road within Caesar's Palace, which looks like you're not supposed to be there, but it's just fine. You're perfectly allowed to be there. It's not restricted. It just looks like you shouldn't be there. So you keep driving and you follow it around the only way you can go. And eventually you will pop out on a weird street. In fact, as soon as you can, go ahead and turn left out of it and you'd be on this weird kind of back street that you probably haven't been on before. So you get on that street and you turn right and you drive only a little bit more and guess what you'll see? You'll see a traffic light that is called J. Sarno Way. Yes, same J. Sarno. He has a little street named after him, almost internal to Caesar's. But you turn right on J. Sarno Way and what do you know? Right there is the Caesar's self parking lot on the right. So you get to the next stop sign, turn right, and you're in Caesar's self parking. Then to get out, you do the reverse and you can get yourself right back to Flamingo Road. It's a little trick. So keep that in mind. It's much faster to get into the self park that way. I'll give you another little tip that Caesar's Palace, the parking structure, has an extension to it. And the extension has its own elevator. So if you park in this extension, you'll get in the elevator and you'll think, okay, well, I'm going to go down to casino level. Nope, there's no way to get to casino level. If you park in the extension part of the self-parking, then you'd have to get in that elevator, go down to either floor three, four, or five, and then walk a bunch to the other elevator, which you take to the casino. Sound like a pain in the ass? Yes, it is. So what I suggest is to park on either three or four, or five, I guess, if it's at night. Five is an outdoor lot, so the sun will beat down on your car in the summer. You probably won't like that, but if it's at night or if it's cooler outside, you can park on five. Otherwise, park on three or four and park in the area that is not the extension, meaning the part of the lot that's closer to the main elevator. And then even if you park in the extension, it's not a big deal. The thing is you only have to take one elevator then because then you just can walk over to the right to the main elevator and then take that down to the casino level, which is level one. And then you're right there in the casino. It does not require two elevators. Do not park on six or seven or otherwise you're guaranteed to have to take two elevators because six or seven it's all the extension lot. So don't park on six or seven unless you have to, unless you enjoy taking two elevators. So that's another little trick. Something else I will let you know is that late at night, people start to leave Caesar's Palace and get some really good parking spots in the self-park. When you're going to have the hardest time finding spots is kind of like early evening when people are just getting there and not leaving yet. If you show up at Caesar's Palace at 2 a.m., you should be able to get some nice spots that were just abandoned right by that elevator on 3 or 4. So that's my suggestion to you regarding parking at Caesar's Palace. The secret I probably wouldn't give away because I don't want you taking the spots I'm taking, but I hardly go there anymore, so I don't really care. So those are my suggestions for you if you want to park at the self-park of Caesar's Palace. And that's all I have for you 
about Caesar's Palace. Let's go to something completely different. Gigi Poker ran a bizarre combined stacks forward format, and it's getting some controversy. Now, keep in mind, I'm all for innovative poker formats. Poker sites should be commended for experimenting with tournament formats, which are a bit different, a bit out there. Something that people may find weird at first, but maybe they'll enjoy it. That's what online poker is for, because they can take a lot of chances, because they have a big player pool, because they're not physically having to allocate space for the event. So if the event is a fail, no big deal, you don't have it again. However, they need to put some thought into what they're doing and not do things that are harmful to the poker economy or the community. Now, the funny thing is, GG Poker has been criticized from the other direction, that they are pro-hostile, according to some people. Some people believe that GG Poker bans winning players, that GG Poker really directs all of their marketing and energy and VIP program towards recreational players who are chunking off money there and don't really want pros on their site. So it's funny they would hold a tournament like this, which really seems to benefit the pros. But whatever the case might be, I want to tell you about this tournament, and you're going to think it's crazy when I describe it to you. This was brought to my attention by a listener who was reading somebody else's Twitter. The person's Twitter they were talking about is a person who goes by Dr. Kamikaze. And I believe Dr. Kamikaze is a Canadian lesbian. You can find them on Twitter as Dr. Dr. Kamikaze, exactly as it would sound or be spelled. And they really remind me of like a Canadian Vanessa Selbst. They claim to be a Ph.D., with history of consciousness, whatever that is, from UC Santa Cruz. They claim to be a filmmaker and poker enthusiast and a three-times Poker Stars Scoop champ, which is the spring championship of online poker. And Dr. Kamikaze lists their pronouns, which is always a bit of a red flag in my opinion. Dr. Kamikaze lists herself as she slash they. (laughs) what now this person whatever their birth gender is I think it's female but I will admit that it's hard to deduce their gender from looking at them in one way they look like a dude in another way they kind of look like a girl so it's kind of hard to tell if it's like an effeminate guy or a butch girl I believe it's a butch girl So this is actually one person putting down their pronouns actually is helpful. Like, I think it's ridiculous when I see obvious dudes who are born male saying, well, I'm he, him. That's dumb. We know you're he, him. Or when there's an obvious female who was born female saying she's she, her. That's just stupid. That's just trying to virtue signal. Now, I will give Dr. Kamikaze credit here that it's not obvious what their preferred pronouns would be. I can't even tell what their birth gender was from looking at them. So I'm still not even convinced this person was born female, but it's, it's either like a butch lesbian or, or a a transgender male. I, 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 I don't even know what this person is, but I think it's a butch lesbian. Anyway, they want to be called she, they, 
The they is very stupid. I, I don't understand the they thing. They, them, any of that stuff. Why, why would you refer to someone as they? Why? If you want to be a guy, then okay. You want to be a girl, okay. But wh- why they? You're not multiple people. So I don't get that at all. But that, that's not the point of this. I'm just mentioning this separately. And as you might guess, Dr. Kamikaze has me blocked. I don't even remember why. I know I debated with this person a little bit about something like not related to poker, some political thing we were debating like a little bit. And I was not rude at all. I, I made no remark about their appearance or whether they're a dude or a chick. I, I said nothing like that. I was not like personally insulting at all. I guarantee you I was not. But they didn't like what I had to say about some political matter and blocked me, which is so lame. I, like, I hate when people do that. They can. It's their right to do. It's their Twitter account. They can block who they want, but it's dumb. I have not blocked a single person who is politically different than I am. I've never blocked anyone over politics, no matter how stupid or fanatical or weird their political opinion is from my point of view. So I can think you're horrible politically. I can think that you're wrong about everything and that you're obnoxious in your presentation of your beliefs, and I will never block you for that reason. Never. I've never blocked one person for that reason. In fact, I've blocked very few people, period. I've blocked a few people, like very few over time, who have just trolled me with like anonymous accounts or whatever. Like, if there's just some like relentless troll who's only there to try to anger me, then I might block them. But even there, I give people like a long leash before I do that. But I've never blocked anybody for political beliefs. And I've interacted with people who are very opposite of me politically, who've told me that I'm entirely wrong, who not only bash my politics, but accuse me of arguing in bad faith and accuse me of of lying and accusing me of being a stooge for the Republican Party and uh, a Fox News robot. I've, I've had all these allegations, all these false allegations regarding my political takes. They don't just say, oh, I disagree. They, they make allegations against me. I've been called a racist and a homophobe. I still don't block them. I, I don't. I'll respond, but I don't block them. But I've had so many block me just because they disagree. They'll sometimes like argue with me at first, and then when it's clear to them I'm not an idiot, then they block me. And the reason they block me because they like arguing with stupid people. They like arguing with simpletons so they can show how smart they are and how they can run circles around these people and beat them in a debate. But when they're arguing with another educated person, then it's tough for them. Then they go, oh, crap, this isn't an easy layup. So, yeah, I don't want to deal with this guy anymore. So they block me, which is dumb. It's their right to do, but it's dumb. So Dr. Kamikaze did that at some point. I don't remember why. But I will admit this Dr. Kamikaze seems like a smart person. I think she probably has other issues, and I definitely don't like her politics, but... She seems like a smart person. She says she has a PhD. I can believe that. So I will say that despite that whole speech I just gave about Dr. Kamikaze and blocking me, that I agree with her here. So I'm going to read what she has to say about this GG Poker tournament, and I will tell you that I agree with her. And then we will have a discussion about what's wrong with this whole thing. So this is what she tweeted on August 20th. So I just got a booking to coach for day two of the big GG Poker Mystery Bounty Tournament, and this has to be the biggest scam slash predatory tournament that I have yet to encounter. Why? Read this thread. So she goes on and does a fairly long Twitter thread about the 
mystery bounty tournament. Now, keep in mind, mystery bounty tournaments can be fun. They had a great one at the World Series of Poker, which Poker Fraud Alert listener Matt Glantz was fortunate enough to win the biggest prize, where he won the million bucks. But these are fun tournaments, these mystery bounty tournaments, and they're very appealing to both pro players and recreational players. Mystery bounty tournaments have been a big success, and I have no criticism for the mystery bounty tournaments themselves. I wouldn't want to see all tournaments or most tournaments being in this format, but I think having a few of these is nice for poker and kind of reinvigorates people's excitement for the game, especially rec players. So I think it's nice to have these. So no problem with GG Poker having a mystery bounty tournament. I'm, I'm forgetting where it got invented, the mystery bounty. I don't think GG invented it, but it doesn't matter. I think it's a good format to have occasionally. So she goes on to write, this tournament has scores of day ones. Okay, fine. What's not fine? People who play multiple day ones get all their stacks added up for day two. This has almost certainly led to collusion and massive structural edge for high stakes pros at the expense of Rex. Let's stop here. People who play multiple day ones get all their stacks added up for day two. Can she really mean that? Is this true? Is it true that if you play a bunch of day ones and you finish with a stack at the end of day one and you play a number of day ones that you don't just take the best stack, you actually add all your stacks together and continue with it? Is that really possible? Yes. Unfortunately, yes. That is the format here. Now, the best stack forward format where you take the best of your stacks has a huge flaw to it, which Alan Kessler has correctly pointed out many times, and that is when you're getting near the end of the day and you have a stack that you're not going to want to take forward because it's kind of short, at that point, you go, oh, well, I might as well dump this off to one of my friends or at least someone at the table who I like, especially if you've already played a day one and you're finishing with a better stack on the previous day one than this present day one and you're at the final hand, there's no incentive to keep these chips, so you might as well dump them off. And that's a huge problem with best deck forward. Now, this doesn't have that problem because you add all your stacks together. But there's a gigantic problem. The gigantic problems are described, and in my opinion correctly, by Dr. Kamikaze. Number one, collusion. High stakes pros, especially ones with stables, meaning groups of players who are staked, are highly incentivized to encourage horses to dump to each other or their coach. Stables with large number of players playing every day one would have a massive edge this way. Number two, this tournament simply isn't playable if you don't have the time and money to fire for every day one. Remember, she said that there's like, quote, scores of day ones. I don't know if that's really true, if there's like 40 or more day ones, but there's a ton of day ones. So she's saying if you don't have the time and money to play every single day one, you're at a huge disadvantage. And she's right. She said those who have the bankroll and time have such a huge advantage over others. This is a tournament that was heavily marketed to recreational players to build up the prize pool who, in effect, have no ability to play an optimal strategy for this tournament, even if they know what it was. And we can see the effects of this already, she writes. Day two is tomorrow, and the average stack is 40 big blinds, but lots of high-stakes pros are sitting with as many as 500 big blinds. This is such a huge advantage when 50% of the prize pool is in bounties. That's a great point. That's a great point. See, I can say she brings up great points, even though she blocked me on Twitter, even though I don't care for her otherwise. But 
This is a great point. Poker tournaments, in some way, have a law of diminishing returns when it comes to big stacks versus average stacks versus small stacks. And that's where the ICM calculations come in. If a tournament has to end prematurely for whatever reason and they calculate what everybody gets based on their stacks, they're not just doing it based on exact number of chips you have. So, for example, someone with a 40,000 chip stack is never going to get double of what someone with a 20,000 chip stack will get. So there's always diminishing value with additional chips where each chip is worth less as you get more. And if you have very few chips, actually that's where each chip is worth the most. Why? Because with very few chips, you can occasionally luck into building it back up and winning the tournament or getting very, very deep. So those last few chips you have are very, very valuable. Whereas when you have a huge stack, the value is not as high because the advantage that the extra chips give you is just not enough to be equivalent to each chip's uh, average value otherwise. So that that's where they come into these ICM calculations. So on one hand, you could say, okay, well, look, Every chip that is in the tournament was bought for the same amount of money with people registering, whether it's uh, someone buying into a ton of day ones or just entering once. They're all paying the same to enter to get these chips. So someone with a 500 stack, if they got this 500 big blind stack from people dumping to them or just from entering a ton of times and it adding up, then they put so much into buying into this tournament that there's no way they could be positive expectation. Even if they're highly likely to cash, they'd have to get so deep and still run so well to even break even at that point that uh, they're probably not doing themselves a favor. That's what one person could argue. However, she brings up the very good point that when 50% of the prize pool goes to bounties, that is every time you knock someone out, you get some kind of prize It ranges from small to very, very large. That's what the whole mystery bounty thing is about. It's not the same bounty every time. She's saying that you have a gigantic advantage if you've got a monster stack compared to the rest of the field because you can knock just about anyone out. And every time you knock somebody out, then you get a bounty. So it's not just you get more chips. So let's say you have 500 big blind stack and you knock out an average stack of 40 big blinds. Well, if there's not a bounty event, you'd go from 500 big blinds to 540, and that's not going to give you that much more of an advantage. However, here you go from 500 to 540, and you get a bounty. So that is very different. So you can really rack up a lot of bounties when you can bust just about anyone in the tournament. She goes on to write, this structure should be considered absolutely scandalous And PSA, meaning public service announcement, it's very much advisable, especially for people who can only fire one bullet, to avoid tournaments with structures like this entirely. So then a guy responded. His name is actually just a guy on Twitter. He says, kind of agree, but it's for sure negative EV to try and bag day two with 400 big blind starting stacks, even if a good player, even a good player This is going to take over 40 bullets and $8,400 worth of buy-ins. No way those big stacks are worth that much. 
So then she said back, I haven't done an ICM calculation, but I'm inclined to think a 400 big blind stack in this tournament at this stage is worth more than that. The value of each mystery bounty alone is worth more than 1500 and the 400 big blinds is 10 average stacks, but you'd actually have to make a huge stack. And then she went and calculated this after that tweet because she was kind of curious if there's a chance he's right. And she said, yeah, a 400 big blind stack is worth over $19,000 just in ICM value right now. That is, if you look at what the average value is of that chip stack and how much money that's worth. Basically, if you were to have average luck from this point against all average players, what would you make on average? And you'd be cashing 19000 there. That's what she's saying. And the ability to collect all the bounties, which are worth 1500 each, is additional. I doubt any of the players who gambled with the strategy and got to this point are regretting it. So, okay, I'm not going to check her math here, but she's claiming that if you have a 400 big blind stack and spent $8,400 getting there, then you're doing great because your ICM value is 19000 and all these bounties you won, each one is worth 1500 bucks on average. There's a big range, but on average they're worth fifteen hundred. So you, you're 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 doing real well there. Now that's not to say you're guaranteed to have a four hundred big blind stack if you spend eighty four hundred. But this person's saying, look, even if you do that and you have four hundred big blind stack, then you're probably still behind. And she's like, nope, you're way ahead. <laughs> I think she's right. So then, someone asked her, how else are you supposed to meet the guarantee? And besides the top bounties would be paid out randomly, it doesn't just favor the big stacks. If anything, they're more likely to get most of the least favorable bounties. And she said, how is GG setting inflated and predatory guarantees our problem and not theirs? Pretty easy to just not do that, but they're destroying the whole ecosystem with such tactics. And your analysis of the top stacks is dead wrong. Now she's right about that, that a mystery bounty is a mystery bounty, and your chance of winning one, a big one, is the same as anyone else winning one. So anytime you knock someone out, you have the same chance to get one of the big prizes as someone who entered once and knocked someone out. Now you have much more of a chance to get one of the big prizes if you have a lot of bounties. So if you've gotten two bounties, you have twice the chance of getting one of the big prizes than if you had one bounty. So she's telling this guy he's all wrong, which he is. I agree with her too that even if they have some high guarantee that they set and they're like, oh crap, well, we got to do it this way in order to make the guarantee, that's not the player's problem. The player should not say, well, wait a minute, they shouldn't do this normally, but they've got to make their guarantee. No, they don't. (laughs) Uh, It's them who sets the guarantee. If they set it too high, that's tough luck on them. However, there's a question. There is a question. It's an important question. This is something that is disclosed to everybody before they play the tournament, that it works this way. They don't have these complex analyses regarding the best way to play, but no tournaments have that. No tournaments say, well, here's a tournament and here's the optimal way to play. You have to figure this out for yourself or or find a coach or some kind of course to teach you the optimal way to play or maybe try to figure it out for yourself. But provided they are upfront that when you enter that Every stack that you earn in the multiple day ones gets to combine for day two, which I believe GG Poker has communicated well, then what's the problem? Everybody is playing 
with the same advantages and disadvantages. Everybody's playing under the same rules. It's kind of like how I talk about that I used to multi-account on the Interpoker network in the mid-2000s. And why did I do that? It's because I was a cheater? No, it's because multi-accounting was allowed on the Interpoker network in the mid-2000s. And in fact, if you didn't multi-account, then you were at a disadvantage. And again, I don't mean multiple accounts at the same table or the same tournament. I mean, you could use several different accounts so it's harder to nail down your play style. And this was allowed by the rules of the network. So if it's allowed and if everybody can do it, then it's not unethical. It's only unethical when you are doing it when you're not supposed to and when nobody else can. And that I haven't done. So that's a big difference. And same here. Yes, adding all the stacks together from day one is weird. And I don't like it, but if everybody knows coming in, then what's wrong with it? It's just a different type of competition. Well, here's the problem, is that it really does tremendously favor someone who has the time and the money to enter all these day ones. It really is very hard to win this tournament if you do not have the time and resources to put into this. And that's the part where GG Poker isn't really being very upfront. They're being upfront with the rules, but they're not noting that unless you have a lot to put into this one, maybe you should stay away. And as she mentioned, this was heavily marketed to recreational players, and a lot of the recreational players don't understand this. Now, if you're just looking to min cash, then this one isn't that bad because there's a lot of buy-ins that got shot into this one. And the more buy-ins, the easier it is for you to kind of skate into a min-cash. But the harder it is to get very deep and make a lot of money, and the harder it is to get to a field there that isn't very pro-heavy. That's another big problem, is that if the ones who do have the resources to buy in again and again and again and keep increasing their stack with every buy-in... If they're the ones getting deep, which they're going to be, then you're going to get to the end and you're going to be against all these tournament all-stars. You're not going to be just against some tournament all-stars and others who just got lucky but aren't very good, as in a typical tournament. Here, you're going to be against like all top tournament pros. So that's not good at all. That's another way that recreational players don't understand what a big disadvantage they're at. And this really does corrupt the entire point of tournament poker. The point of tournament poker is that everybody's on equal footing. doesn't matter how rich you are, how poor you are, provided you can afford the buy-in. doesn't matter how good you are at coming back from a bad start. Because unlike cash games, you can't reach into your pocket and rebuy in a traditional tournament. In a traditional tournament, if you get unlucky and lose all your chips, tough luck, you're out. It doesn't matter if you're the best player in the field, you can't come back because you're out. And when you get further and further from that, when you introduce rebuys, when you introduce unlimited rebuys, when you introduce best stack forward, and when you introduce combined stack forward, where you can just keep buying and buying and buying and combining all the stacks that you had Well, then there's all kinds of potential problems, as Dr. Kamikaze pointed out. Not only are deep-pocketed pros at a tremendous advantage to go very deep and win, but also there's much more justification 
for people to collude and chip dump than in other tournaments. So this is just not a good tournament structure. There's too many faults with it. I'm not saying it's unethical to offer. I'm saying it's full of faults and it very, very, very much favors the deep-pocketed pro. I can't think of any tournament that is more guaranteed to have top pros at the end than this. And that's not good. That is not good. So while I'm not as strong in the belief that this is unethical and predatory, I do think this isn't good for poker. And it surprises me Gigi is offering this because Gigi really attempts to be the site that makes poker not predatory. Now, I don't agree with everything they're doing. I've said before, the pro is part of the poker ecosystem. And neutering the pro is like going into the normal food chain, the normal ecosystem that isn't poker, the normal uh, animal food chain, and starting to hobble the predators so they can't eat the normal prey as they usually will. That, that causes all kinds of problems if you're going to do that. So that's basically what GG Poker does somewhat to the pros that play there. And I really don't agree with that. I think there are some ways that they can stop predatory behavior from pros that do make sense, such as seat scripting or usage of any kind of tools. Like I am very much for clamping down on that stuff, but I'm against banning players just because they're good or restricting players in any way because they're good. But GG Poker, they've claimed the whole time that they are looking to present an ecosystem that is recreational friendly. And they've done very, very well. I'll give them that. They've made a lot of very good decisions. They are currently, by a good margin, the biggest poker site in the world. And I, in fact, met the owner of GG Poker. And in my brief interactions with him, he seemed like a nice and smart guy. And we had an interesting conversation. But I have to say, for a company that prides itself upon this, it's a little strange to offer a tournament which really, really heavily favors deep-pocketed pros. If you want to favor deep-pocketed pros, let them play high-stakes cash games where they're expected to be all deep-pocketed pros and maybe a few amateurs who want to take a shot who have the money. But tournaments are supposed to be something where everybody's got a shot and nobody has an advantage over anyone else aside from a skill advantage. And that's the way it should be. You should win tournaments based only upon skill and luck. Nothing else. It should be skill and luck and maybe discipline. Not your ability to buy into a bunch of day ones and accumulate, accumulate stacks. That's not the way tournaments should be. It's perverting the concept. I don't like it. The Mandalay Bay has decided upon a renumbering scheme. And it's kind of odd timing. I don't know why they're doing this now. This is one of these things I think you should either not do or do when it's timely to do. When you're doing it at this point, it just looks weird. The 32nd floor at the Mandalay Bay 
was the floor where the October 1st, 2017 tragedy took place when Stephen Paddock took high-powered weaponry to the room he had there on the 32nd floor, which is a suite, broke the windows, and fired down upon thousands of people at a country music concert below. And he killed 58 people before eventually killing himself when the police got near to breaching the door of that room. We've had a lot of discussion of that day and that situation, including a show which uh, spent a very long time in the whole thing. But something that has existed ever since this happened almost five years ago is the 32nd floor. You still could stay on the 32nd floor. Now, could you stay in Stephen Paddock's suite if you're one of these morbid people that wants to stay in a room like that? Answer, no, you never could after it occurred. Not only was the shooter's suite closed, but the entire wing has been closed that entire time. However, if you wanted to stay on that floor, you still could. You just couldn't stay really near that suite or in that suite, but you could stay on that floor. I don't know if people really were requesting the 32nd floor, but they won't be able to anymore because the Mandalay Bay is not only renumbering the 32nd floor, but they are renumbering floors 31 through 34 and changing them to 56 through 59 as a way to stop people from staying on those floors in order to commemorate that event in any way. Why are they also renumbering 31, 33, and 34? Well, I have a feeling that if they don't, then people will simply stay on the floor directly above or below and think it's close enough, or maybe it'll just seem weird with a floor that is in the middle of those four that has a different number. So yeah, they could change... 32 to be 33 and then make 33 34 and make the old 34 35 that would work too but there would be a missing 32 and then people would stay on 33 and say it's really 32 so they just wanted numbers that have nothing to do with these 30s so it's less meaningful to anyone who wants to stay on a floor like that so they are renumbering 31 through 34 and calling them 56 through 59. So I have to imagine you take the elevator up and there's it's going to go 29, 30, then 56, 57, 58, 59, which is going to look really weird if you don't understand the history behind this. In fact, most people won't. People are going to be told, hey, you're on the uh, 56th floor. And they go, wow, cool, 56 floors. Wow, I'm going to be really high. And then they go, uh, what? Is something wrong with this elevator here? Because I don't see any floors 31 through 55. Like, how do I get to those? Is there a different elevator? Like, am I really on floor 56? And you get up to you get up to 56 and you can tell you're not 56 floors up. Because I don't know how that's going to be dealt with. I guess it's just going to be numbered that way and people will just get used to it. A hospitality professor at Michigan State University, Michael McCall, said what MGM wants to do is move on from the tragedy and service customers without ignoring but without calling attention to it, referring to the tragedy. 
you don't want the 32nd floor to become a morbid tourist site. Also, it's being said that they might be doing this in order for guests and employees to not really think about what happened on the 32nd floor because this numbering system is now so far away from 32 that people won't really think of 56 as the location of the tragedy. I don't know if it's going to work. A lot of people don't even know what floor it was, but I would think that anyone who pays attention to this is just going to stay on 56 and say, okay, they may have renumbered it, but it's the same floor. The entire floor was closed in December of 2021 prior to Christmas before the holiday period ramps up. And in fact, it was still closed through the later part of December, which is surprising because that's actually a very busy time. They actually reopened it in January 2022. I guess that this fits in better. And I guess I understand the numbering better now because I'm looking at the numbering pattern of that building, which is 43 stories high, and they already had a weird numbering system. So it was 1 through 34, and then 60 through 63, and there was no 40 through 59. I'm not sure why they did this in the first place, but the top four floors are 60 through 63, with the last highest floor being 34. So what they're just doing is shifting it and moving it uh, where it stops now at 30, and 31 through 34 becomes 56. So it's going to be now 1 through 30, and then 56 through 63. So there won't be any kind of uh, gap that wasn't already there. They do have floors 35 through 39, and those are going to stay, but that's a separate elevator, and that's for the Four Seasons Hotel, which is actually part of the Mandalay Bay. It's got its own separate check-in, and that exists on floors 35 through 39, so that's a totally separate elevator system and always has been. has nothing to do with the shooting. The Mandalay Bay is still considering, I'm surprised after five years is still considering this. You think they've decided one way or the other, but they're still considering changing the name of the Mandalay Bay because this was the worst shooting in modern U.S. history. And there is some talk, maybe the Mandalay Bay should just change names completely. The company said that they need more time to monitor the effect on business. <laughs> really? It's been five years. But I guess they're waiting to see if this really brings down business, the fact that it's still called Mandalay Bay, or if people have gotten over it. Now, regarding people wanting to stay in famous hotel rooms with gruesome pasts, I can't really think of any other real gruesome pasts in hotel rooms that people want to go stay at, but I can think of a fictional one, and that's from The Shining. So remember The Shining? Remember that uh, famous hotel in The Shining and the famous room number in The Shining. In the book The Shining, there was room 217. In the movie, the room was 237. And I'm talking about the room where people are told not to go in. And eventually, Jack Torrance, played by Jack Nicholson, opens the room and looks in, and uh, that's where he has this weird encounter first with this... Uh, pretty girl in the bath and then he starts making out with her and she turns into this uh, really really old and decaying woman and she laughs at him and he runs out in panic so 
this this room was actually first uh, visited by his young son Danny Torrance in the movie after a ball rolls to him from that room and then a crazy woman tried to strangle him and they don't show that on camera but he uh comes back and tells his father Jack who then goes into room 237 and finds the scene in the bathroom what does this have to do with anything I'm talking about here well the shining hotel the hotel that's depicted in the movie isn't quite the same hotel in real life there there is a hotel that the exterior was based on remember the hotel in the shining is supposed to be in colorado the actual hotel it's based on in the exterior that's shown is the timberline lodge near portland it's in the mountains near portland what had happened was when uh, they were using the exterior of the timberline that stanley kubrick who was making the shining was asked not to use 217 that was in the book and to change it to 237 because there was no room 237 in the timberline but they did have a 217 so they changed it to 237 and the timberline said oh good now we're not going to have this problem. We're not going to have the stigma where nobody wants to stay in room 217 because of all the crazy stuff there. Well, what do you think actually happened? Of course, everybody wants to stay in 217 when they come to the Timberline. That is a very, very requested room. It is hard to get into room 217 even to this day, 42 years after The Shining was released. So despite everything that's depicted in the movie... People want to stay in room 217, even though 217 was the room in the book, and in the movie was 237, which does not even exist at the Timberline. (laughs) I don't know why they don't just lean into it at this point. Why not just renumber to where there is a room 237? Maybe have both a 217 and 237 so they could sell more rooms. That's what I would do if I owned the place. Clearly, it is not something that is dissuading people from staying there. Now, there's a big difference between wanting to stay in a fictional haunted room from a movie and wanting to stay in a room where an actual murderer killed 58 people. I would actually like to stay in room 217 or 237 at the Timberline. In fact, I was considering, when I was in the area, booking that hotel and staying in that room if I could. But then it didn't match up with my schedule. I was unable to stay at that hotel But it's something I'd still like to do sometime. Not that anything exciting is going to happen there, but it'd be kind of cool. You know, I stay in room 217 and say, hey, I stayed at uh, 217 at the Shining Hotel. I'm not going to be worried that some old woman's going to go strangle Benjamin from the bathtub. (laughs) Uh, But would I want to be in a room where someone actually murdered 58 people? Uh, Probably not. Not because I'm scared of, of the ghost of Stephen Paddock or anything, but... It It is kind of depressing being there, thinking that this guy just broke the window and shot 58 innocent people and hundreds more who didn't die. It wasn't just those 58, hundreds more got injured, some with major injuries that they'll never recover from. So it was a very, very tragic day in both Las Vegas and U.S. history. And I probably wouldn't want to go in a room commemorating that. But I would like to be in room 217 or 237 at the Timberline. 
That's the only thing I could think of that compares to it. Anyway, that's going to be done pretty soon. There will be no more Floor 32 at the Mandalay Bay. Have you heard of DEFCON before? No, I'm not talking about war games and the DEFCON level that kept going down, showing that there was going to be nuclear war because of Matthew Broderick's activities. No, 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 no. I'm talking about the convention DEFCON, which actually is named after that. DEFCON is a convention that takes place in Las Vegas every August. And by the way, DEFCON is a real term. That was not just from war games. It's a real term that's used by the various armed forces in the U.S., and it ranges from one to five. And five is where you want to be, because it means that everything's fine. But it got to be known to the public because of war games. I think that's why it's used for this convention. But it's a hacker convention. And it's been going on for quite some time in Las Vegas. And it's the largest and best known hacker convention. It has taken place since 1993. Now, obviously, with my long history online and even in that community way back when, when I was a teenager, I eventually heard of this. Well, shall I say, I heard of this pretty quickly when it came to be. I was no longer a teenager in 1993, and I was not in that scene in 1993. But I did hear about this from other people I knew who were in this scene. And in fact, I remember a a friend I had made in the computer science department in graduate school asked me if I wanted to go with him to DEF CON in 1994, the second DEF CON. And I said, maybe, and then I just ended up not doing it. But it's, it's an interesting thing to go to. When I say hacker, I don't mean necessarily criminal hackers, though there are probably plenty of them there as well. But these are mainly people there for cybersecurity topics and hacking topics and just anything that is related to the hacker culture and community, which sometimes just involves little competitions, nothing illegal, nothing which would or should be outlawed, but just people with the same types of interests challenging one another or seeing interesting devices that can be presented both to enable better security or break existing security. And you may say, well, why would there be a convention showing how to break existing security? Well, because you can only get better security if people can show examples of how they can break it. So you actually want people to attempt to break your security but not in a hostile fashion, so then you can fix it to where it is no longer breakable in that way. Now, if you went to DEF CON, would you meet hackers who do bad and illegal things? You probably would. And you'd probably meet others who used to do that and have since grown up or changed and don't do that anymore or now do it for a living to where they're uh, no longer causing any trouble but more making a living from it. 
and probably others who are still engaging in illegal activity. So you, you get all of that at DEF CON. DEF CON actually started as a farewell party for his friend by a guy named uh, Jeff Moss, who was only 18. And he started this for, uh, again, to his friend who was leaving the United States. And his friend was leaving the U.S. because his friend's dad was taking a job out of the country and taking his friend with him. And then what ended up happening was the friend's dad grabbed his friend early and said, you know what, we have to go out of the U.S. early, so we're taking you, I don't care about your party, and took him. So then Jeff was alone, and he said, okay, I can either cancel this whole thing or I can invite other people here to keep me company. So he invited all of his hacker friends to come to Las Vegas with him and have a big party there. And uh, word of this spread, and 100 hackers ended up showing up there in uh, June of 93 and had this party together, and that was the original DEF CON. And indeed, uh, as I'm reading here, it was from the movie War Games, which I had always assumed but never really looked into until right now. It's in front of my face, and yeah, that's where it came from, even though that term was not something that was invented by the movie War Games. DEF CON existed every single year since then until 2020, when it was canceled because of covid and they ended up having a virtual event instead over the same dates, but then it resumed in 2021 and in 2022. I am still interested in going sometime. Now, I've been out of this community for so long that I would be out of place here, sort of, but also sort of not. And I'm sure I would find a lot of this interesting. They have various little uh, competitions and challenges there. And little workshops. Such workshops would be uh, digital forensics investigation, hacking devices, playing with RFID devices, attacking smart devices. And a lot of times people at DEF CON will like to screw around with things they find at the convention, such as the hotel phone systems. In fact, uh, one guy I know, and I'm kind of friends with, he went and attempted to figure out the code to indicate that his room has already been checked by the maid, so he doesn't have the maid coming into his room. Because like me, he likes having nobody come in there. He puts up a do not disturb and hopes nobody comes in the whole time. Except uh, you can't do that anymore in Vegas because a lot of times they will force their way in after 48 hours of the maid not coming in the room. So he said, I'm going to try to figure out the code and I'm going to attempt to enter this so my room never gets checked. I advised him that's not a good idea because I said if they catch you, they may ban you from all the properties. And with so much consolidation to these days, it's like, is it really worth doing this? Like, what are you really gaining from this? I don't know if he did it or not. And I forgot the method he was going to be using to get this code. I forgot all the details of the story, but that was one of the plans. That's the type of thing that some of these hackers do when they come into town. They try to figure out everything. 
other times they'll try to see how secure the hotel Wi-Fi is and if and what they can access through the hotel Wi-Fi and if they can access people's computers that are connected to the Wi-Fi. Not necessarily do anything bad to them, just to see what they can see. So why am I telling you guys all of this here? By the way, it took place in 2022 at Caesars, Flamingo, Harris, and The Link. So it took place at several places. In 2021, it took place at Paris and Bali, just like the WSOP this year. Next year, again, it'll be at Caesars, Flamingo, Harris, and The Link. This year, it was August 11th through 14th. Next year, August 10th through 13th. By the way, if any listeners here would like to go to this next year, I guess you can tell me now, but closer to it, maybe in... uh, June or something, you can let me know because if there's any listeners who are interested in this stuff and would like to go, that'd make me more likely to want to go myself because, I don't know, it just feels a little weird as a I guess I'll be 51 then, a 51-year-old guy just showing up and strolling around there by myself with no one really to hang out with. So I'd really prefer to go with someone who has an equal interest in this sort of thing. So let me know if you'd like to meet up there or something, you have an interest in going to this, or even you go yourself. This year they had approximately 25,000 people attending, and as big as that seems, it's not as big as the 2019 DEFCON, which had 30,000 people, which is an all-time high. They also have been having DEFCON China events. They've had, uh, looks like, two of them. One in... 2018 and one in 2019. It doesn't look like they have uh, restarted those since the pandemic. For a while, they had it at the Riviera. Then they had it at the Paris and Bally's and Caesars. It's interesting how it was split to several hotels this time. I'm not sure why. Now, I haven't talked about DEFCON before on this show. By the way, that's probably like the worst place possible to meet chicks. If you want to go to Vegas and meet women... I can't think of a worse place other than the men's bathroom to meet women. Or maybe a men's bathroom or a gay club. Those are probably the only two worst places in Vegas to meet women than DEFCON. It's got to be like just about all dudes there. There's probably a few women, and they're probably all with dudes. There's probably like no single women who show up. And the few that are probably have like a million neck beards surrounding them and giving them attention. So that is not a good place to meet women. That's one thing you should not expect at DEF CON. But the reason I'm talking about DEF CON is not really about DEF CON itself. It is about the allegation that one of the DEF CON attendees was abused by hotel security and, more specifically, a hotel private SWAT team that raided his room without justification, so he says. So I'm going to play you this video, and then we will comment on whether I think that raid was possibly justified. Ben was in Las Vegas for DEF CON, the world's largest annual hacker convention. Ben's day job is in the field of cybersecurity. He was staying at the Paris Las Vegas Hotel. Around 11 p.m. on Sunday, August 14th, he's startled out of his sleep in his dark hotel room. There's pounding at the door. He walks to the peephole in his underwear, stares through, and sees what appears to be armed law enforcement and tactical gear surrounding his room. He's ordered out of his room, still in his underwear. Then they search his room, looking for firearms. 
but they're not law enforcement, but rather the hotel's special response team. They refuse to explain the basis for their belief that Ben has firearms in his room, which he doesn't. In addition to working in cybersecurity, Ben is also involved in the firearms community, and he operates the Open Source Ordnance YouTube channel where he posted the originals of the video you're about to see. Ben reached out to me, and I'll post up some of his interview with me. You'll find his channel link in the description, but check this out. This is highly disturbing. A private hotel security SWAT team busting in your room and searching it, giving no reason for doing so, leaving us only with a few different tinfoil hat explanations. Here's the footage, then let's discuss whether we have any constitutional rights at play here at all, because I see more of this happening. Okay, before we continue, first of all, this lawyer is not going to give an unbiased account because I believe it's this guy's lawyer. And if it's not, it's someone who's very sympathetic to the entire situation. So that's something to consider right here. Second, the reason for these hotel private SWAT teams, I have to imagine dates back five years to the Stephen Paddock shooting because there's been a lot of criticisms of hotel security ever since then. Even though I don't really think hotel security was at fault here, but regardless, there's been a lot of demands that hotels have better security and better ability to respond to a high-powered shooter like Stephen Paddock. So I guess there's these private SWAT teams that probably contract with them that are on call in case an incident comes up where they feel that there's a lot of danger and Apparently, they thought here it was justified. So let's listen to this and determine whether this guy was in the right or whether the SWAT team was justified to come there and pound on his door in the middle of the night. Sure. I mean, you don't see what happens because um, I was completely disrobed and uh, uh, safe from my underwear, and it was 11 p.m. at night. Uh, I'd just been rousted out of a uh, pretty nice sleep, um, and there was a pronounced banging on my door. This wasn't a, a, a considerate knock. Let me stop here. The reason the sound isn't very good is not on my end. For whatever reason in this video, they have him on video talking to the attorney. You could tell the attorney is the one recording this, and this guy who is the victim of this whole thing is on Skype or something or FaceTime, some kind of video call, and it's a poor audio connection. I, I never understood in these videos meant for the masses why they can't get the sound quality better. Just like that thing with a hustler we played the other week. This almost sounds like Charlie Brown's mom talking to the lawyer. I, I hate when the sound quality sucks like that, but let's go on. This was one of the cop knocks that you see on live PD where uh, uh, it's uh, demanding entry uh, very quickly. The The hallway surrounding my room there in the Paris uh, was uh, completely filled with uh, what appeared to be uh, a half dozen at least uh, individuals wearing tactical gear, armed, one carrying a, a large backpack of what I've been uh, told later was uh, entry tools. That At that point, they said, come out and show us your hands. Uh, at, at that point, again, I'd just woken up not 30 seconds prior. I slowly put my hands out the, out the uh, door and, and exited my room in nothing but my, uh, my boxer briefs. And it was not, uh, as they characterize, voluntary. They did not ask me. Excuse me, sir. Okay. I'm sorry. The They're showing now, they're back to the video of the incident. So you just heard the guy involved talking about it. 
and now they're showing the video of the incident which he took. Sir? Why are you talking to us? I would like... Well, we've already talked. I don't care if you record me. Okay, great. Can you please comply with the policy and check your firearm, sir, so we can what, not well, stop bothering you? Okay, let me stop it right here. So the guy who's speaking right now, the hotel employee who's speaking, is a hotel employee. So there's these guys in the outfit, which look like a SWAT outfit, with guns, and then there's a hotel employee with a badge on who looks like he's probably hotel security who is leading this whole effort and is trying to speak to the guest here. And so far, I, I got to say that the hotel employee seems reasonable so far, where he's saying, All we want you to do is check your firearm. So if you have a gun there, can you check it in with us and then pick it up at the end of your stay or pick it up when you're leaving the building? And you can enjoy the rest of your evening, like you said? Do you know for a fact that I you, have a firearm? Sir, you told me you did. When we just spoke outside, you, you told suspect me you did. that I have. No, sir. When I asked you, you said yes. You said outside your firearms in the flashlight. What? You said it's a flashlight. Oh, great. Well, let me put on some pants. Okay. Okay, uh, Jason. Yes, sir. Great. Fantastic. He's putting on some pants now. So, um, was... Now, we don't see him putting on his pants, by the way. We don't see him in his underwear. It's, uh, you're just seeing, like, the camera moving as he's putting pants on. Anyone of this, uh, hotel in this room earlier? No, sir. No. No. I don't know if, uh, housekeeping, I mean, are you talking security personnel or, or in general? First off. It, it, however, I could do a lock interrogation, I can tell you for certain, but. Please do a lock interrogation no. as soon as you can reasonably do so. Sure. That's no problem. But again, okay. can, First can off, you guys to... were both when you removed me from my room here. Like, can we, can we, we asked you to come outside and you came No, out. no, you demanded I came outside. And you allowed to sit, and you and you can't. I I would room. like you all to remove yourself from my room right now. Will you hold on? Again. First off, I want you to remove yourself no. from my room. Second okay, sir. You you are refusing to remove yourself yes. from my room. Thank yeah. you. Will you check in? Do you have a firearm in your possession? Your firearm, please. Into the hotel. open the safe. Please do not reach your hand inside the safe. Just open it for us, please. Eat a. If you touch your <laughs> okay. All right, let, let's. We have a lot to unpack here already. It's, it's getting pretty contentious. <laughs> he says, "Eat a dick." That's what they they censored that for the video, but it's pretty clear he was saying, "Eat a dick." So they said, "Open your safe and don't reach your hand in it," because they don't want him grabbing the gun in there and starting to fire at them. So they just want him to open the safe, and then they want to look what's in the safe. And he says, "Eat a dick." So. Here's what I'm already gaining from this. And remember, I like to watch these videos with you guys for the first time. So I get the genuine reaction watching it rather than trying to reproduce the reaction when I watch it for the show. So I'm watching it the first time just as you are listening to it for the first time, presumably. And I can tell you already, I don't like this guy very much. I'm talking about the guy who is the alleged victim here because he seems difficult and arrogant. Now, that's not to say that security has been perfect so far. They're not being really honest with him. They're trying to tell him that they 
asked him to voluntarily leave his room, and he did. And he's saying, no, you demanded I come out. And then, they're, yeah, well, we asked you to come out. You did. Yeah, but they were saying he better come out or they're going to come in here. So that's not voluntary. I believe him that they forced him to come out. And I believe him that they forced him to come out. And then they went in there and would not let him in there. Uh, at this point, they're letting him in to open the safe. And then he said, eat a dick. Which is never the right way to handle interactions with security. I, I can't really think of any time when it's okay to tell security to eat a dick. Like, I would never say that. I would never say anything like that. I wouldn't even say a less profane version of this. I just wouldn't behave that way. Now, I may say to security, no, this is inappropriate, or no, I'm not doing this, or let's get the police involved, or you're being unreasonable here. I I might say those words. I would not say eat a dick. So let's say they wanted me to open the safe. Well, I would think... I would open the safe if they asked me to, unless I suspected they're going to take something from me that I don't feel they should have a right to take. So, for example, if I had just done an advantage play and I had a bunch of money in the safe and I was afraid that they were going to try to take the money from me or they were going to try to take my wallet and go through it or something like that. So I would say, not eat a dick, but I would say, I'm only going to open the safe if you can give me a guarantee on video here that you're not going to do more than examine what's in there and not take anything. I would get some kind of guarantee from them that what I'm fearing they're going to do is not going to happen. But I wouldn't say eat a dick and I wouldn't refuse to open it unless they would refuse to give me that guarantee. So yes, if they were to say, well, we're not promising anything, we may take everything in there, then I would say, no, I'm not opening it. Now, if they said, well, not take anything unless you have a weapon in there, I'd say fine, uh, because presumably I wouldn't have a weapon in there, and uh, then I'd be fine opening it, and as long as I have the guarantee they're not going to take anything, and they've stated this on camera. I would never say eat a dick, though. At worst, I'd say, look, I'm afraid we're at an impasse here. Let's call the police to come moderate this whole thing, and I may actually also call an, an attorney to come fight for my rights as well. But let's go on here. Your firearm, sir. You're going in restraints. Please do not touch your firearm. Just open the safe, please. Oh. I left it in Pahrump, you dipshits. Safe's clear. The safe is clear. Thank you, sir. He said, I left it in Pahrump, you dipshits. He's referring to the firearm that it's not in the safe. And But listen to the foul language and the arrogance he's displaying here. Instead of just opening and saying, see, I told you there's no firearm, so can you please let me go back to sleep now? You don't have to say you dipshits. And I will say that the security there, they're actually being very restrained in their responses. They're not calling him names back or threatening to detain him over his belligerence they're just saying okay well thank you sir (laughs) after he's calling them dipshits let's go on i went shooting earlier today in perump and left it in perump okay so please kindly go yourselves that's not really necessary it is necessary you said yes i had had okay so you're just using context and Tense, got it. Okay. Yeah. So, I understand. Please remove yourselves collectively 
from my room. Okay. If I may, before we remove ourselves collectively, the policy of Caesars Entertainment, if you do Noted. a firearm, please check it in with security. Otherwise, you will be asked to leave. Okay. Noted. Okay. Again, yeah, you, you, you all, and go, I'm sorry, my apologies. See, this is why people get 86. If the next thing I see here is him getting 86 from the property, I wouldn't say, oh, my God, miscarriage of justice. I'd say, well, yeah, he's yelling, fuck you all at security repeatedly in the middle of the night down the hallway. Then, yeah, I would not defend this guy at all. Um, collectively, go f yourselves. And could I have a card from you? Again, I gave you. I want so everybody that will and I, and present. I you weren't going to get that. I gave okay. you the card. Who's you got it. I don't have to be advised. Oh. Let me clear out okay. area at this time. Eat a Okay. All of you. I'm not going to do that. But well, please. <laughs> Eat a dick, all of you, and this head of security or whatever he is at Paris is back. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I think that'll be my response next time someone tells me eat a dick I'm just going to say I'm not going to do that but that's actually a good response alright let's continue this we've got 12 minutes left have a good night stand by for a 21 maybe more you got me I said hey, I don't why mind don't you recording. come over well we're, we're done okay so, you're saying that Corey here, Corey works for me, yes, for you, and you have a reason to believe I have a firearm in I'm my saying, room. We made contact in the interest of, of advising you of the policy that we do not allow firearms in rooms. And if you did have a firearm, to ask you to comply with the policy. No, which you do not have a firearm. You, you said you explained you left it in the room, right? Yeah. Okay. So then I'm. Again, apologies for the intrusion, for waking you up. Again, I do understand that. We have to follow our policies. These guys have to be safe, too. So, First off, do you want to do a voluntary statement? I can provide you one. I can give you a copy of it. I can give you the report number. I would like to have a voluntary statement okay. from you Okay. From and have a report number. I can give you a report number, but I'm not going to do a statement and give you a statement. I'm asking, or I'm saying, you can do a statement. I can give you a copy of that, and it'll be in a report. Now, that does annoy me when a company takes an action, especially a hostile action, and then will not give you a statement in writing about what occurred. Him making a voluntary statement doesn't help. I'm talking about the guy in the room. He can say whatever he wants. He could say that uh, Martians came down from Mars and demanded he open his safe. That doesn't mean anything. So making you can make your own statement. That doesn't say very much. Hotel security making a statement would help if he was wronged in any way. So I would think, especially since this is recorded anyway, but I would think if the hotel is proud of what they did and they think they behaved according to the law and they didn't violate this guy's rights, that they would simply say that for X and Y reason, we had a strong belief that this individual had a firearm in the room. For that reason, we found it necessary to knock on his door at 4 a.m., whenever it was, and ask him to come outside the room and explain it to us and to make sure there was no firearm in the room and to communicate the policy to him regarding firearms in Caesar's properties. And 
blah, 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 and then they explain what happened there in a factual basis and that ultimately no firearm was found and that the individual claimed that he left it in Pahrump at a shooting range and there is no firearm on property and that was that. I don't see anything wrong with making that statement if they were behaving according to policy and they believe this policy is legal. And I've had this before, not in this situation, of course, I've never been in this particular situation, but I've had it before where something occurs at a company and I say, can you put in writing what occurred here? And they refuse, which is kind of tilting. Let's go on. You don't have to do it now. You can do it tomorrow morning if you wish. You can do it anytime. You cannot do it. I can give you a report number without doing it if that's what you wish. I would. I can like, write it on the back of my card. I want to know where this came from. Again, it's private property. We were trying to enforce the policy. That's all. That's all I can tell you. You have no probable cause. Again, this is not this is private property. Nor enforcement. Uh, agreed. Cause to nor reasonable, articulable right. suspicion. This is private property. We have the right to make entry and make sure that all of our guests and our employees are safe. And, and you did with an which, obnoxious which amount of force. Okay. Well, what's obnoxious? By what definition is obnoxious? How Again, many? You how many people them. made entry into my room? They have a policy, right? There's Fuck a your policy. How many people? How many people went into my room? I know you can count. I can count. How, just give me, a, give me a four. There's literally four of them. You saw them, so I know uh, you just want me to say it on tape? Yes, That's I do. Fine. Just like I'm security for the casino, if we respond to an incident, a minimum number is two. They have their safety protocols. They respond to situations like this. They have a response team. That's how they, they do it. So There were four people at this point that at knocked, night knocked on your door there's actually that demanded entry we asked you to comply they asked you to show your hands which and you did you stepped yeah, out you i've got one hand no one. i've got two hands uh, again you yeah again i'm really irked I at this understand. point I no you don't okay I, I paid for this room yes sir you did we're what? just repeating ourselves at this point so again i can give you a voluntary statement you can fill out if you wish if you don't wish to, that's fine. Otherwise, I would like to speak to a member of management. I'm a security manager. No, I gave you my higher phone. than you. Okay. Okay. You're not going to get that at four in the morning. <laughs> higher than you. Let's let's talk to the top manager at four in the morning. That's not going to happen tonight. You can fine. speak to a hotel manager if you wish. You can go down to the front desk. Who I is don't higher know that's than you? Resolve the situation. Again, there's no one higher than me here right now. Have this conversation with you. And we are just going over and over the same stuff. So I'm going to go ahead and leave. I understand you're upset. Sorry for the intrusion. You don't understand how upset I'm I a, am. I'm a human being. I'm saying I no, understand don't. being upset at the situation. Yes, I do. I can go f- f- You keep no, saying that, man. We're not going to go ahead and do that. All right. Well, so we're you're not going to do what? <laughs> I'm not gonna- <laughs> I love this guy's responses to the profanity. You can go fuck yourself. You can see saying that, sir. I'm not going to go ahead and do that. <laughs> You, you probably should okay. at this point. Okay. So Just please saying, try that. I'm trying to be polite. I understand. No, you Have I not tried the entire time to talk yeah. to you reasonably and calmly? With what I've been trying to do. A, a, a half dozen thugs outside my room. Okay. We're going to go now. So when you first. Okay. So now they flash back to the lawyer talking to him about this. I do think this security manager kept his cool very well and was polite. He would not answer an important question, which I do think is relevant. 
where did you get the idea that I have firearms in my room? Because truthfully, it is crappy to be woken up at four in the morning because they, quote, suspect you have firearms in your room without really any reason to suspect. I assume maybe someone who didn't like this guy went and called and reported this to Paris just to screw with him. I don't know. It's kind of weird that they'd come up with this. They say that he told them that he had firearms, but I think that was something off camera, like when they got there, where he mentioned that he had it earlier in the day in Pahrump. But it doesn't seem like they were coming into the room because he had told security just on his own, hey, you know, I had firearms earlier today. It kind of seems like just out of nowhere, they pound on his door and he's like, what the fuck? And then he was mad because he did not actually have firearms in the room and they were refusing to tell him why they were suspecting it. Now, I'll listen right now for the next eight minutes or so of him talking to the lawyer and then we'll talk about this further. First open the door, did you believe that they were the police? I thought they, I thought they were without my glasses on. I didn't know exactly what was was going on at the time. And then they made every appearance that they were uh, there with uh, law enforcement authority. Come to find out, nobody there actually was a uh, local law enforcement. I, I initially told them, I said, "Look, I'm not dressed. I will not e- exit my room." And they said, "It's okay. It's just us out here. Nobody else is going to see." Or at what point did they explain why they were there? They said they had reason to believe that I had a firearm in my room. Where I said, look, I'd spent the previous 24 hours um, with friends in Pahrump. And had actually been shooting uh, earlier that day. I was shooting my friend's, my friend's handgun and my friend's rifle. And I said, look, yeah, I have been shooting. Uh, I have had a gun today. I don't have it. I'm a weapons manufacturer. I'm an 0702 SOT. So, yeah, I'm around guns. We're, you know. <laughs> Did they ever explain why they believed that you were in possession of, of guns in your hotel room? No. And, in fact, um, the multiple times I, I, I queried them on that subject, they would not provide any context that would bring you to my door at 11 p.m. at night. And, and they provided nothing. Can you think of any reason why they would have had to suspect that you had firearms in your hotel room? No, and I've been racking my brain the entire time since because I went to this conference as a, as a cybersecurity professional and was nothing but a consummate professional the entire time. I had no negative interaction with any hotel or casino security. The only time I actually had any conversation with hotel security at the, uh, at the Paris Las Vegas was when I asked one of the uh, security guys, hey, is there anywhere on property I can get a, a black coffee for under eight bucks? Let me stop right here. I don't think he said anything to security to make them think this. I really think someone reported him who just didn't like him. And... I heard him just say it was 11 p.m. For some reason, I thought it was like 3 or 4 a.m. I thought I got that earlier, but I guess that was not correct. I guess that's not what he said. 11 p.m. is a big difference from 3 or 4 a.m. Because this is Las Vegas. How many people do you know that go to Vegas and are asleep by 11 p.m.? Not many. Like, even my parents stay up past 11 p.m. when they go to Vegas. And... As you might guess, my parents are quite old. Even they stay up past 11. So who really goes to sleep before 11 in Vegas? Now, I guess this guy did. I guess he was woken up and is in his underwear. But it's less egregious to bang on the door and want to inspect the room at 11 than it would be like 3 or 4, where you would expect most people to be asleep. 
that's the only conversation I had with anybody uh, in security the entire time I was there. Wouldn't put it past them to have, have seen such or gone through my stuff when I wasn't there. Prior to them knocking on the door that night, was there any reason for you to believe that you you weren't welcome in that hotel room that you had paid them for? No, no. Um, had uh, They hadn't asked you to leave or anything like that? No, like I said, the only interaction with anybody from the hotel was when I asked one of the security guards one morning where the cheap coffee was. And so you voluntarily, at that point, after all this went down, you just voluntarily left that hotel? Yeah, um, I can take a hint. I know when I'm not wanted, and I know when I don't want to spend my money at an establishment that would storm my room for no reason they could could convey with a half dozen armed goons at 11 o'clock at night when I'm trying to sleep. And there was no involvement with law enforcement? I mean, none. the police never showed up? None. The, the police never showed up. Uh, Vegas Metro wasn't involved. I mean, I had no problem checking into my flight and getting cleared to TSA. Uh, I was at the Paris Las Vegas. Um, I was provided with contact information um, for the uh, manager of the hotel. Stood, she, she called me yesterday morning and stood behind everything that was done. Said we back to activity 100%. It was the whole Caesars family of uh, Caesars Entertainment Properties. Uh, Flamingo, Link. Does this concern you, you know, being that Vegas is a place that has firearms-related events there? I mean, does this concern you that perhaps you were just targeted as a member of the firearms community and that something else is going on here? Certainly. Um, absent any kind of information, again, that they were unwilling to provide, uh, I'm left to my own suppositions and I, I honestly think the entire gun community is being declared persona non grata in, in Las Vegas, and their money's simply not welcome here. Well, I, I wouldn't go that far. This is what I think happened. I think someone didn't like this guy. I think someone called Paris Las Vegas and said, there's a guy staying at your property. His name is this. He was firing off a ton of guns in Pahrump, and he has brought them back to his room. And... I'm afraid something's going to happen similar to what occurred in 2017 at the Mandalay Bay. This guy is very dangerous. He's got a bad temper. You've got to go up and put a stop to this or you're going to really, really regret it. So if Paris gets a call like this, they're in a tough position because if they say, well, you have no proof, then they do nothing. And then if this guy does use firearms from the room to cause harm, or even use firearms in the casino or the hotel to cause harm, and it comes out that someone called to warn them about him and they chose not to look into it, then they could really be liable. Then they would look very, very bad, especially after what happened five years ago. So when they get a call like this, I'm not saying they did because I have no idea. I'm just taking guesses here. I had no idea about this whole situation until playing this video. But if they got a call like this, they do need to go up to the room and ask some questions and investigate. And I think where the problem occurred, aside from this guy's belligerent attitude, was when they knocked on the door and he told them through the door that, yes, I did have firearms earlier today in Pahrump, but I don't have them now. So now they know that the person who reported it isn't making this up. 
now they know that uh, there at least were firearms in this guy's possession in Pahrump earlier that day. And the only question is whether he brought them back to the hotel or he's telling the truth that he left them in Pahrump and they wanted to come in and take a look. So this is different than knocking on the door and a 70-year-old grandma answers and says, what, what, firearms, what are you talking about? I haven't fired a gun in my life. It's not like that. There's a guy saying, yeah, I was firing guns earlier today. They're just not here right now. So that makes them say, well, now we really got to look. So they wanted to come in. Then they got this whole standoff here where he's pissed off and calling them names and not wanting to cooperate and very belligerent with them and not wanting to open the safe. And then when he does open the safe, it's actually surprising that with all his hesitation to open it, when he opens it, everything's fine and there's no firearms in there. I think he probably did not have firearms in the room because he was approaching this in the fashion like he was very confident they're going to find nothing. He wasn't allowing them to be in the room. He kept saying, I don't want them here. And they said, tough luck, we're going to be here. But he was very insistent that there were no firearms. So there probably weren't any. And I think he was probably falsely reported. Now, maybe he was reported not falsely, but by someone who really had a concern. Maybe someone got a bad vibe from him at DEFCON and thought this guy seems kind of psycho. And now I'm hearing he's going to perump to fire guns. Uh, I heard he's staying at Paris. I better warn them about him. So it may have been something like that. Could have been malicious. I don't think he was from any interactions he had with security asking about coffee. Uh, I, I know my money here is uh, certainly not going to be welcome nor uh, forthcoming in the future. And I'd really urge anybody coming to show, uh, you know, town for SHOT Show or uh, any of the other big conventions to really avoid uh, the Caesars Entertainment Group properties uh, and anything they can do to, to not provide money to people that are trying to hamstring the community and target uh, individuals with no notice or uh, professionalism whatsoever. Now, I will say that let's say they got a list of people who were in town for a gun convention or who were in town to meet up in Pahrump and uh, exchange guns or talk about guns or fire guns, whatever it might be. And then they targeted everybody who was part of this group and just searched the room because it got around that they like guns. I would agree that's a problem. You, you can't just go search people's rooms and disrupt them at 11 at night because you hear they like guns. But if there was some report made to them that this guy has guns in the room and is dangerous, then they have to look into it. So I, I still don't think this was aimed at the gun community because if it was, there would be more than just this guy. It seems like it was just him and I think he's overreacting. I think he's not looking at this from the hotel's perspective. And if this happened to me, let's say I was exactly in his shoes. Let's say I showed up to DEFCON and I brought some guns with me or I had some guns in Pahrump that I picked up or whatever it was. I, I, I spent the day shooting in Pahrump and then went back to my room with no guns. So I hadn't broken any of the rules of Paris, Las Vegas by firing guns in Pahrump and coming back with no guns, but that some jerk called up and reported me for having guns there. And then I get the banging on my door while I'm sleeping, whatever time it might be. And they demand to come in right now to search guns or search for guns. I wouldn't be happy about this. And I would say, can you give me a moment to get dressed and I'll be happy to open the door and deal with this. 
and then I would let them look for it. I would say, uh, can you please let me be present? I don't like people rifling through my stuff without me here, but I'll be happy to uh, sit on the side and not disrupt anything. And you can look through what you need to look through. And you can see I have no guns here. And I would even explain. I was at a shooting range earlier today in Pahrump. I left the guns there. I never had guns on property. I don't understand why you think I do, but I don't. And uh, what do you need me to do to show you this? And I I wouldn't be thrilled about it, but at the same time, I wouldn't be outraged because I would know that I had guns earlier that day in Pahrump and that uh, some jerk probably reported this to them to get me in trouble. Many people know the basic rule that constitutional rights can only be violated by government officials and that, therefore, they don't protect us from private actors. At first blush, this seems to be the case here. Despite their appearance, these were private security guards. There may be Nevada state law protections at play, but it's difficult to implicate federal civil rights protections. That would require just a little bit of legal gymnastics. But the more I research this, after having watched this footage, I think there are some possibilities. There are actually quite a few cases out there discussing private hotel security and constitutional rights. Many of these arise out of criminal cases. There are actually cases where federal courts have attributed state action and Fourth Amendment violations to private hotel security. However, these cases involve the question of suppressing evidence in criminal cases. Basically, if private security searches a hotel room, then the police arrive, there may be a sufficient connection to establish state action by the private security because that's how law enforcement ended up with whatever evidence was seized. Well, yeah, that makes sense. And I understand why there's discussions in court about evidentiary issues where private security comes up with something and then hands it to the police. And there's a question, did private security have the right to conduct this uh, search and seizure basically under the auspices of law enforcement? But that's a whole different matter, as this guy's even saying here, because we're not talking about a criminal case here. This guy's, this guy was never arrested or charged. There actually was a Las Vegas casino that was found liable for Section 1983 violations in a Ninth Circuit opinion where they had a system of working with local police and issuing citations, performing certain law enforcement functions. That was Sal versus Desert Palace, Inc. from 2012. In the last few years, with concerns over active shooters, certain hotels in Las Vegas have apparently formed their own SWAT teams, as we see here, so as to provide what is essentially a faster law enforcement response. So There may be facts here, depending on the level of interaction between hotels and local law enforcement, to show that there's some similar sort of privatization of law enforcement, so as to create a faster response. Now, where that's the case, the government shouldn't be allowed to avoid Section 1983 liability to citizens by merely delegating their law enforcement functions to private corporations. So there may be a theory of liability there, especially if this is something we're going to see more of in the future. That's an interesting discussion where basically he's saying that the police can't do warrantless searches, so private security should not be able to do warrantless searches if this is related in any way to law enforcement, even if it's not directed by law enforcement. If it leads to law enforcement or it's the potential to lead to law enforcement, then that can be a problem. So, for example, 
if they did search and seizure in random hotel rooms to try to find evidence of illegal drugs and then brought it to the police, then it could be said that they are searching without a warrant and this could be challenged. I don't know all the legalities here because I'm not an attorney, but that's the type of thing he's talking about here. But I don't really think it applies very much to this case because this was not a case where there was any kind of arrest or there's anything about evidence admissibility being discussed. Another possibility, the thought of which is fueled by the speculation here regarding the source of the hotel's belief that Ben had firearms in his room, is that perhaps the federal government is indeed compiling, maintaining, and sharing information about the firearms community with private corporations responsible for site security. We don't know if that was the case here, but can we really take anything off the table at this point? If that were true, that could be another potential basis for federal civil rights liability. I suspect we'll be seeing more of this type of activity in the future, just as we've been seeing troubling behavior recently out of the ATF as well as the FBI. Instead of a social credit score, perhaps they may give us a firearms community score. Do you have access to machine guns? Well, you may have a great credit rating. As always, thanks for watching. You'll find more information in the link below to my blog at thecivilrightslawyer.com. Okay, so that is a good question. Is it possible that because this guy is known to work in the firearms community, is it possible that the government provided the hotel with people to watch out for? And that if any of these people stay at the hotel, maybe you should search their room for firearms. But I don't believe this happened because there's so many people who work in the firearms industry that would be searched this way. This would definitely get around. And it just seems to be this one guy. And it just happens to be on a day that he really went to Pahrump to fire guns. So this screams to me that this was reported by somebody. And I don't know why this was not mentioned once in the video. Like, he didn't even ask. Why didn't he ask, did somebody call you and say, I had guns in this room? They probably would not answer. But that is the most likely explanation here. In which case... Paris was damned if they did and damned if they didn't. Because they did. They demanded to come into the room and look around and search it. But if they didn't, then he would not have been disturbed. He would not have made this video. He would not even have known about this. But had something occurred, everyone would be asking, wait, so someone reported that this guy had a bunch of guns in the room? And even after what happened five years ago, you did nothing? You didn't even knock on the door? What kind of incompetent security is this? That's what everybody would be saying if this guy did something bad with guns in his room. So you see the problem here. And there really was nothing they could do that was a painless solution at this point if there was such a report made about him. So I don't think that Paris was unreasonable. And if anything, I think this guy was kind of unreasonable with the way he was abusing the security manager and the private SWAT team that came. It is interesting that there's a private SWAT team, and I hope that these hotel casinos don't abuse the usage of this private SWAT team and use them to bust into rooms when they really should not be doing so, and they especially hopefully will not be using these to abuse advantage players because that would really be bad. And I am a little concerned what if they manufacture 
concern about firearms when they're really not concerned about firearms in order to bust into rooms with these scary SWAT teams when it really is to search the room of an advantage player that they want to know more about. So this isn't something which completely can be dismissed as harmless and something definitely to think about. And if this sort of thing gets abused, then I think it's a problem and it could be a problem. So I'm not completely dismissing this as something to worry about. But also, I think this one incident doesn't say a lot, especially because this guy really was shooting guns earlier in the day. And I think that definitely has something to do with it. Now, why wouldn't they tell him that someone called it in? Well, because they don't want this to come back on whoever reported it. So let's say he told one and only one person, aside from his close buddies, that he was going to Pahrump to shoot today and he's staying at Paris. Well, who's going to be prime suspect number one as far as reporting him? That person. So if they say, well, someone who was concerned called in, he'll say, oh, well, I know who that is. Now I'm going to get back at this guy. Or now I'm going to trash this guy all over social media. Or I'm going to trash this guy all over DEFCON. And everyone's going to hate him. Uh, So that's, I think, why they didn't want to say. Because a concerned citizen, they, they didn't want potentially exposed for reporting this to them that's reasonable i see it's frustrating for the guy who's getting his room searched and i'd be frustrated too but i can understand that as well so when these situations occur you you try to get as much info as possible and then you've just got to make the best of it and try to cooperate as much as possible and you know what if after the whole thing's done if you feel like you got the raw end of the stick here if you feel that you were wronged and you feel that this shouldn't have happened, then you handle it after that. So after security leaves, maybe during the day when managers are there, you call up or maybe go down there to the front desk and say, you know what, this was very, very scary and disturbing that an armed SWAT team showed up to my room and demanded I come out of my underwear and search the room for guns and telling me they're going to put me in cuffs and everything like that. When I did nothing wrong, I didn't have any firearms in the room. And as you see, I didn't actually have any. They searched. There were none. I was telling the truth the whole way. And they wouldn't even tell me why they did it. And this wasn't fair to me because I didn't do anything wrong. I did everything that you guys wanted me to do. I I left the firearms back in Pahrump. And I didn't even tell anyone about the firearms in Pahrump. I didn't tell anybody that I had firearms earlier this day. I don't even understand where this came from, how you guys even knew this. And all I know is I was forced out of bed in my underwear to have this room searched, and it's very disturbing, and this really ruined my stay. And then kind of try to parlay something for free, maybe get the resort fee taken off, maybe get a food credit, maybe get a free night's room, whatever it might be. And you might actually get it, because uh, if you are cooperative with security, and you're not a dick, and then afterwards you complain and you explain why you were wronged, then they might actually give you something for the inconvenience and say, sorry for the inconvenience, sir. Well, can you give me something that's kind of ruined my trip? Okay, sure. We'll take tonight's room off the bill. Something like that. Or you can even ask, hey, can you take tonight's room off the bill? I'm not saying you'll get it, but that's something you can do. Or if you want to get someone in trouble, you think maybe this uh, security manager was over aggressive with what he authorized being done, you can make that complaint and they, they may or may not do something about it. 
But you, you take care of these afterwards. You kind of diffuse the situation at the time, and then you take care of it afterwards. You don't start selling them to eat a dick and fuck you and fuck you too and fuck all of you and fuck this whole group. And you don't do that. It's not right. right it's not the right way to handle a situation like that. And you could tell these guys are just up there because they really were concerned he had a gun in the room and wanted to see. So you deal with it at the time and then handle any violations you felt were against you later. Now, I did have a standoff. I had a standoff with Hotel Security in 2019. It was at the Rio. And it was not because they suspected I had firearms in the room. It was because they wanted me to open it for one of those periodic room checks, which would have been fine, but I already had a periodic room check a few hours before. So here's what happened. I think I've told this story before, but it's very relevant again to this situation. I had just played an all-night cash session at the World Series, at the Rio, and I didn't do well. I lost. I was in a bad mood. I just wanted to go back and sleep. In fact, I didn't complete the session until the morning, and by the time I ate after the session, it was about 11 a.m. by the time I was about to go to sleep. Not 11 p.m., 11 a.m. And just as I was about to go to sleep, I said, oh, shit, they have not been in this room in 48 hours. And at the time, they were being pretty aggressive about checking. These days, they're not as aggressive anymore. I think since uh, COVID, since the staffing's lower, they can't check this as easily as they used to. They just don't have the people to do it. I thought, shit, they're almost surely going to knock on this door while I'm sleeping. The last thing I want, I just want to sleep off this loss here. I do not want them banging on the door an hour into my sleep and me getting up in my underwear and having to get dressed while they inspect the room. So I thought, what do I do about this? So I walk the hallway and I see the maid. And I say, can you come in the room now, not clean it, but just do whatever you need to do to verify that you've been in the room so nobody needs to check it. And she says back, "Okay." And I said, oh, no, she, she only speaks Spanish. So rather than trying to speak to her in broken Spanish, I uh, tracked down her supervisor and her supervisor came to my room with this maid as well. They both came in and they did what they needed to do. And they dialed that code to call up whoever they needed to call. And uh, it was actually more than just making a call. They, they dialed something and indicated to someone that my room has been checked. Usually it's just like a code they enter. But this time they actually called someone and said that my room had been checked and that it's done for the day. So, okay, that's exactly what I wanted. So I thanked them and I went to sleep. They didn't clean my room. I didn't want them to clean my room. I just wanted them to do this quickly and go to sleep. And this was fine. And this was totally within the rules. I just had to have somebody in there to certify the room has been checked. And it was checked. Okay, I go to sleep. And about an hour and a half later, there is a knock at the door. Indeed, it was security doing their every 48 hours room check. Because they said nobody's been in here in 48 hours. So I said to them through the door, standing there in my underwear, just like this guy, except I didn't tell anyone to eat a dick. I said, the maid already did this at 11 o'clock. So go check with the maid. And they said back, well, actually, we don't have any record of that. And I said, well, go check. (laughs) 
go get records of that because it happened. Or go ask the supervisor for this floor. She'll tell you what happened. It just was like an hour and a half ago. Uh, Sir, if you could really just let us in here now, it'll be a quick check. It's a lot quicker that way. I said, no, I'm not dressed. I already had this done. I'm not doing it again. Uh, It'd really be a lot easier, sir, if you just let us in. And I said, no, I don't want to let you in because I have already done this and I've done my part and I can't go anywhere. So take all the time you need. You can stand right outside my door. Make sure I don't leave. Take all the time you need and check with the supervisor on this floor if she was in this room checking my room an hour and a half ago. And she will tell you she was. And that will be that. Uh, We really just need you to open this, sir. We just don't have record of this. It'll be fast. We'll make this really fast. And I said, no, I don't want to get dressed. I don't want to turn on the lights. I was sleeping. I want to try to get back to sleep. I do not want anyone in here now. This is exactly why I had the maid come earlier. I'm not going to do it. Sir, if you really could just open it, please just open it for us, sir. And I said, no. Check everything you can and get back to me. I'll be here. Knock on the door and tell me what you found or did not find. And if necessary, I will call the front desk and explain it to them. And then they can deal with this, but I'm not opening the door yet. So I wasn't sure if I was right to do this at the time. I wasn't sure if I was being too stubborn, but I just didn't want to let them in on principle. So about 10 minutes passed, and I didn't know if they're going to force their way in and kick down the door and arrest me. I didn't know what the hell was going to happen, but I was being stubborn. Well, knock on the door about 10 minutes later. Okay, sir, we verified that the maid was there an hour and a half ago. Sorry for the confusion. We don't have to come in. And they walked away. I didn't tell them to eat a dick or fuck you and you and you and you. I just said, okay. And I went back to sleep. I woke up later and I called the front desk and I said, what the hell? How'd this happen? They admitted that there was some error where they noted this down on the wrong page. And that's why security didn't see it. And they apologized. I said, well, yeah, can you give me something for this? Because it woke me up. I did everything I could to prevent this. And then it happened anyway. And then we have this like 10 minute standoff. So they checked into it, gave me like a $50 food credit. I said, okay, I accept. Goodbye. And I had my $50 worth of food. And that was that. You know, wasn't really worth it. I would have rather not get the $50 and not be woken up. But I still got $50 worth of free food. Is that really so bad? So, I thought that was acceptable. I didn't think it was a tremendous violation. I just found it annoying that I had to wake up and go through this whole thing. And there was no good solution to this. I had to either turn on all the lights and get dressed and let them do this bullshit after I took time out to make sure it was done earlier. Or have this standoff where I could potentially get uh, thrown out of the place and banned. So... I don't know if I did the right thing in hindsight, but it worked out. And at least I proved myself right. So I can understand when you're trying to sleep and you really don't want to let someone in on principle, but this guy didn't handle it well. By the way, if they had approached me with, we have reason to believe there's guns in the room, as annoying as this would have been, then I would have opened the door. This was just this bullshit routine check that they thought they didn't do when they did do, 
And that I was not going to back down on because I'm like, check your records. You'll see you did it. <laughs> so if that's all you need to come in here for, no. However, if they said they have to come in and check for guns because they believe there's guns here, then I, I'm not going to say, no, you can't come in. Let's go to another hotel room story. This one is a little bit more entertaining. Two hookers stole a $35,000 Rolex watch from a man at the Cosmopolitan who let them use his room to rest, not even have sex with him. So weird story here out of the Cosmopolitan. So a man from California, they didn't name him, on June 21st says that his $35,000 Rolex watch was stolen by two hookers, one of whom is known to be a serial watch thief. (laughs) This is what happened. Two women came up to the guy and they said that they were tired and they needed to sleep in the room. They did not know him. They just said, we're very tired. Would you be nice enough to let us rest in your room? He said that he knew they were probably hookers, but that he felt bad for them because they were tired hookers and he wanted to give them a place to rest in the room. (laughs) I don't know what his real motives were there. Maybe he thought if he let them rest there that they'd give him their services for free. I don't know if he thought threesome's going to happen. It's very weird that you'd let two women that you know are hookers sleep in your room. Like, if you're not planning to have sex with them, why would you feel bad for these hookers and let them sleep in your room? Why not just say, okay, go home then? You obviously are local. Go back to wherever you live and sleep there. But he claims he let them come to his room and rest there, which they did. And he came with them too. And then he fell asleep. He said to the police that he knew they were prostitutes, but he was, quote, not interested in anything of the sort. And at first, he left them in his room alone, which is a really bad decision. But that's not what they were after, because I guess there was nothing in the room that was really worth stealing. But uh, eventually, he came back to go to sleep himself, and the women were still there. And he just got in bed and fell asleep. So, so far, so good to him that the two women he let stay in the room, these two random hookers, had not stolen anything and were still there. So I guess he decided he trusted them and went to sleep. And then at 8 a.m., he woke up. The women were gone. And so was his $35,000 Rolex watch. Uh-oh. Deanna McCray who was not a local, she was from Los Angeles, was arrested for this whole thing. I see a picture of her, and she is not very attractive. If she is a hooker, I don't see why anyone pays, because uh, (laughs) I can't see paying that woman for sex. She she is not attractive. She's got kind of like a big nose. Her face just isn't pretty. She's not, not an attractive woman. She's not hideous, but... Like, I would think most guys would look at this Deanna McRae, and it's the type of girl, like, maybe you would 
have sex with her if you're really desperate or if you really like her personality, but I can't see anyone paying to have sex with this girl. But apparently she's done this before and she was known to Las Vegas police for stealing watches in the past. So she's a chronic watch thief. The police went through surveillance footage at the Cosmo and they identified Deanna McRae as one of the two hookers, probably because they knew her from before. She had previously been arrested on suspicion of stealing a $20,000 Rolex watch plus cash. And in a third incident, she was accused of stealing a Belova watch and 35000 in cash. So I guess what she does is finds guys with nice watches and then makes up an excuse to come to their room. And then when they're sleeping, she steals the watch and runs off. And the fact that she's been caught twice, I guess this doesn't deter her. She keeps doing it. In May, she entered a no-contest plea to theft, which resolved two cases, and she received a suspended jail sentence of six months each. Okay, there's a problem right there. Why is she getting a suspended jail sentence for two theft charges of very expensive watches? She shouldn't get a suspended sentence for one of these incidents. See, why are these people not spending time in real prison? Anyone caught doing this should get substantial time in prison. I don't mean 10 or 20 years, but I I don't even mean six months in real prison. It should be longer than six months. You're going to steal someone's five-figure Rolex watch after you trick them to come into the room and then run off with it? You should get real prison time. Two years, three years, something like that. I don't care if nobody got hurt. Because this is what happens. She gets to plea to theft for the previous two watch and cash thefts, and all she gets are two suspended sentences? What the hell? Now, there is some female privilege in the criminal justice system where women who are accused of crimes get much more lenient treatment than men accused of the same crime. So there's probably some of that here. They just should not allow this for any gender. Anyone caught doing this shit should be dealt with harshly. They should spend considerable time in prison to where they will regret doing it and to where they're less likely to do this again. This is proof that if you get suspended sentences, then you go, okay, well, I got a slap on the wrist. Cool, I'm going to go steal another five-figure watch. Maybe this time I'll get away with it. Now, she's not very smart because the police already knew her for this and they have surveillance, so she's not very bright, but... You see, she came out and did it again. She just pled no contest to theft back in May. And then in June, remember, this didn't just happen yesterday. This was in June. She's back stealing watches again. Crazy. See, this is why when people say, oh, you know, you Republicans, uh, you're, you're too harsh on criminals. You just want to lock everybody up. You're racists who want to lock up people of color. No, I, I don't want to lock up people of color. I want to lock up criminals. If they're all white, let's lock up all the white criminals. And, uh, you know, if they're all black, lock up the black criminals. If they're a mixture, then lock up the mixture, which is really what it is. I don't care what color someone is if they commit a crime. But they should be doing real time when they do things like this. And I'm not talking about victimless crimes 
I'm not necessarily talking about tracking down hookers who are doing nothing but selling sex for money and not doing anything else illegal. I'm not talking about having stings against those women and putting them in prison for a long time. I don't support that. Or recreational drug users. I don't mean stuff like that. I mean people who actually victimize others, whether it's violent crime or theft or financial crime, people who victimize others and knowingly do so, there needs to be harsh penalties against these people. So this stops. And so the punishment fits the crime appropriately. You can't giving keep giving suspended sentences, so maybe they're time in prison won't disrupt their lives and they can get back to living a normal life again. This woman's 32 years old. She already tried to steal expensive watches and a lot of cash twice in a short period of time. And she's 32. She's not going to change. You're not reforming this woman. So you need to put her in prison. And then if she does it again, put her in prison longer. That's how it should work. And when you don't put these people in prison, all you do is victimize innocent people who they get out and harm again. That's what happens. All that happens by releasing these people or not imprisoning them in the first place is more innocent people get harmed. And the government has failed its citizens that they are supposed to protect. And it doesn't matter what color the criminal is. None of this matters except what they did and if when they did it, there actually was a victim. If it's a victimless crime or if it is a crime with a victim. And if it's got a victim, then something must be done. It's very annoying to see the justice system like this. This is one of the reasons I could never vote Democrat. One of many reasons, but this is a big one. It's a very big one to me. I have people saying, oh, you know, Democrats, they don't support this necessarily. Yes, they do. If you took a poll of Republicans of increasing sentences for these type of criminals, you'd get almost 100% saying yes. You took it of Democrats, you'd get a large percentage saying no. Some would say yes. There are some sensible Democrats who want to see crimes like this aggressively prosecuted and sentenced, but there's many, many who don't. And the politicians that get these type of uh, sentencing structures in place tend to be democratic. And the problem is you show any kind of mercy to these type of criminals and they just uh, go right back out and do it again. In fact, for their own good, not just for society's good, but for their own good, time in prison can help them because then they will feel the sting of the punishment and then they will think twice before doing it again. But I'm not even as concerned with that. I'm also just concerned with getting them off the street and punishing people appropriately for their actions which harm others. I didn't really mean to get in this whole political rant. This supposed to be a funny story, but it's kind of both. Now, this guy, I don't know what the hell he's doing. Why is he bringing prostitutes just to sleep in his room? And he says he's not interested in that sort of thing. Now, maybe he's lying. Maybe he let them go up there and he had this fantasy that he's going to gamble and then they come back and wake them up and they're all going to have a threesome. I, I don't even know. I, I didn't see a picture of the other woman. And I don't even know if the other woman was arrested for this. There were two women there, but this woman was the one who stole the watch. So I don't know if the other one was even arrested. Apparently the other one even cooperated with 
helping identify Deanna McRae. But they were there together. This obviously was a plan. They weren't really, quote, tired. It's not a coincidence that Deanna McRae keeps ending up in the room where people have expensive watches. But why is this guy letting them come up there and sleep? <laughs> like, very weird. You should never leave anybody in your room alone unless you really trust them. If it's a longtime friend, fine. But some random girl you meet, I don't care if she's a prostitute or not, you don't leave her in your room alone. And you don't ever drink anything that she had any opportunity to spike at any point. Like you don't pour a drink and then go to the bathroom and go, okay, well, time to drink up. No. Now this guy didn't get drugged, but you never give them an opportunity to knock you out or you should not knock yourself out by going to sleep around them unless you really trust them. And if you must, if you must do this, if you really want to spend the night with random women in your room, lock up everything, lock up, lock up your cash, lock up your watches, lock up whatever you think they might steal and make sure they don't see the combination you enter on the safe. Very important. So, wow, she's stolen three watches. But I still can't believe that she got out of this in May by two suspended sentences for two previous expensive watch thefts. What the hell? Like, how does anyone justify that? How did she not deserve to be in prison for this? Forget this one. This is the third one. I'm sure she'll get prison for this one. But how was she not in prison for the first two? She's done two in a short time, a lot of cash and expensive watches, and she gets suspended sentences. That makes very little sense to me. And we got the answer. We got the answer. Take a look in our chat room. DJ Chaps said, good Lord, just end? No, DJ Chaps, I'm not ending. We are getting through our entire agenda, of which we have one thing left. Grenada Roger, in reference to the out-of-state corporations making money on potentially legal sports betting that would be run by out-of-state corporations. He said, regarding money out-of-state that is wrong, California taxes out-of-state headquartered corporations on its percentage of businesses worldwide done in California. There's a formula of revenues, assets, employees used to determine percent of taxable income attributed to California operations. That is a good point. That An out-of-state corporation does not get out of California taxes if they are doing business in California. I knew that. I I don't know why I didn't think of that. Granita Rogers is actually an expert on this stuff. He knows more about this stuff than me, but I knew that part. (laughs) I don't know why I didn't say that, but thank you for bringing that up. That's in our chat room. Moving on to our last topic. A shootout took place at Wild Horse Casino in Oregon. And this is a pretty big shootout. It happened after a man tried to rob the casino cage. So tribal police at Wild Horse Casino in Eastern Oregon were in a pretty big shootout on Wednesday afternoon of last week. This is about a week ago. And in a press release, Wild Horse staff said that the suspect and a bystander were both injured when they were uh, shot by the tribal police of the 
Umatilla Indian Reservation, and both were taken to St. Anthony Hospital in Pendleton, Oregon, and nobody else was reportedly injured. The casino is an Indian casino. It's seven miles east of Pendleton, Oregon, which again is in eastern Oregon, and the casino staff called the police when the armed suspect left the building and the police and the suspect engaged in a shootout leading to the two injuries. They, at the time, did not release the identity of the people injured, but uh, eventually they released the name of the suspect and not the innocent bystander. The tribal police eventually were joined by officers from the nearby Pendleton Police Department and the FBI even showed up and they taped off one of the entrances of the casino after the shooting, but uh, customers continued to go in and out of the building through other entrances after this had happened. So I don't know why they really bothered taping off one entrance. And the food court was closed for some reason while the police were investigating. The CEO of Wild Horse named Gary George said, we're grateful we're grateful nobody else was injured with all that took place. Security personnel and tribal police were quick to act and the situation was controlled in a swift manner. So later they did identify the suspect here. The suspect's name is Javier Francisco Vigil. He's 51 years old. He tried to rob it actually during the day. The suspect claims that he intentionally shot the officer's vehicle because he didn't want to hurt the officer when he was trying to get away. <laughs> That's kind of a weird explanation. But he claimed that the shooting was just trying to disable the vehicle because he wanted to get away without any kind of real gun battle, which I don't believe. That sounds like bullshit. Maybe he was trying to disable the vehicle, but you can't really fire at a vehicle and say you're trying to keep the officer safe. The vehicle indeed did have multiple bullet holes in it, including the front hood, front passenger tire, and through the front passenger and driver's side windows. So that kind of sounds like he's trying to kill him. The security footage showed that Vigil parked a truck at the Arrowhead Travel Center next to the casino just before 1 p.m. And he walked into the cashier and went straight to the money cage. In fact, I see a picture of him here. He's wearing a football jersey with sunglasses and a baseball cap. And he gave a note to the cashier. And he demanded that he would be given... $100 billion. No, but he did ask for... $1 million. He asked for a million dollars from the cashier. The cashier actually laughed at this. The cashier said, wait a minute, you're, you're actually asking for a million dollars in cash? <laughs> and she actually thought he was joking. She thought he like went up there and was like, hey, yeah, give me a million bucks. And she like, ha, 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 yeah, sure, I'll give you a million bucks. And then he pulled out the gun and pointed it at her. That's she knew it was not a joke. So then she started putting money on the counter and he wanted a bag to put it in and was given one. And uh, he was saying things like, I'm a fucking god, and I'm going to bathe everyone in blood. So as she was getting money out of the cash drawer, she quickly hit an emergency button without him seeing, 
which made him think he got away with this. But in reality, this summoned police to scramble over there and stop him. So he walked out. And then right when he got out of there, someone tried to follow him. One of the witnesses to the whole thing tried to follow him, which isn't a good idea. But someone did. He was walking out with uh, almost $70,000. So as he was exiting the casino, he saw the officer behind his vehicle. And then he started shooting at the officer and the officer shot back and Vigil was hit and wounded. And this bystander who I guess is the one who followed him out was also hit. And he was apparently a Pendleton School District employee who was actually at the casino as part of a school event. I don't know why they're having a school event at the casino, but that's why he was there. This guy who followed out the criminal probably trying to help in some way, and uh, he ended up getting shot for it by police. So Vigil's being held without bail on suspicion of federal robbery and weapons charges, and they denied bail based upon his criminal history, previous failure to appear, and risk to the general public. And his next court date is for September 15th, so he's going to be sitting in jail until then, and I'm sure much longer they have all of this on camera so it is likely he will be in jail for quite some time and i have to imagine he's probably going to plead guilty to this whole thing he did not get away with the money and it was pretty brazen robbery and unfortunately one bystander was shot but not even by him by police when they followed him out and that's one of many reasons it's not good to follow a criminal out like this who shows a weapon because first of all they may shoot you and then you also may get hit in the crossfire if he's in a battle with police which is what ended up happening so you never know when something like this will happen at a casino there's always people trying to get rich quick in their robbery attempts and uh, sometimes they get away but thanks to the quick thinking by this clerk who, despite having a gun pointed at her, was able to bang an emergency button without him seeing. The police were able to get there quickly. And once he fired on them, then it was basically game on, and he's lucky he didn't get killed. Because the police are pretty good at hitting you in these gun battles. They're usually not going to win one of those gun battles between you and police. They've been training for this for a long time. Unless they're like the Uvalde Police Department in Texas during a school shootout, then they're probably not going to win the battle. But most police departments, they're pretty well trained at beating suspects in gun battles. And usually the suspect does not live through these. So this guy is lucky. It's actually too bad he didn't get shot dead. I don't believe him for a second that he was just trying to disable the officer's car, not when he's shooting through the windshield. So weird excuse anyway, but I guess that's the best excuse you can come up with. If you remember, there was the Bellagio bandit who a few years ago was showing up at the poker room and showing a gun and uh, demanding money from the poker cashier. And he got away with it twice. And then the third time when he came back, he had the misfortune of exiting 
when cops were already there for a completely different reason, unrelated to him. They were actually there because a pervert had arranged to meet with a 12-year-old girl that he talked with online, and she did meet him, and they were trying to find the girl. And they did find the girl, and right after they were done finding the girl and arresting the pervert, the police were kind of standing outside the valet entrance, and who strolls out but the Bellagio poker room robber who saw police who thought that they were there for him, which they weren't. In fact, they didn't even know that someone had just robbed the cage. And uh, he panicked and tried to carjack someone who wouldn't open the door, even though he was showing a gun. And then the police saw this, and he actually tried to shoot one of them dead. But they were wearing a bulletproof vest, so they just fell back, this officer. And then one of the other officers chased him and shot him in the back of the head, and he died a short time after. So that was the end of the... Bellagio poker room bandit whose name was Michael Cohen and he had previous conviction for bank robbery so this guy had committed robberies in the past even prior to this but yeah these robberies happen and eventually even though this guy got away with it twice this Michael Cohen eventually they end up meeting the end sometimes it's prison and sometimes it is death if you remember we had someone who was wrongly suspected of those robberies on this show, Darren Atterbury, also known as Darren Lara. He came on here because his description sort of matched that of Michael Cohen, who wasn't yet known to be the robber, and they were really scaring him, making him think he's going to go down for robberies he didn't commit. And we know he didn't commit them because the guy who actually did was shot dead they didn't look tremendously alike but they were both like five foot seven and had a big nose and i guess that was enough for police i think maybe someone reported atterbury for being the bellagio poker room robber and i guess they took it seriously i guess he looked enough like this robber in the disguise he was wearing to where they really thought it was him. And he, he did a good interview with us. People enjoyed hearing from him, and it really, really was pretty scary to be in that situation, thinking you might go down for many years in prison for something you didn't do. So that was an interesting show. Anyway, uh, that's it. We had a long show tonight. But wait, we're actually not done. There's actually a bonus topic. Remember I mentioned a bonus topic? There's a bonus topic. So let's do the bonus topic. Let's do the bonus topic with a bonus co-host. This is a fraud show? It is the fraud show. Welcome, Brandon Drexel Gerson. Is it a morning show? Well, it's it's always a morning show in some way. So welcome... I I woke up, I, I... Tuned it in. I heard you talking about the one girl with the Rolex, but you didn't men- mention uh, anything about her mentor. Who is her mentor? Uh, the, well, you know, the woman that takes the Rolexes that got arrested back in January and hides them in her vagina. That's right. You know, I did think of that woman. I forgot about her. But yes, her that, I mean, that was a grosser story. But yeah, I guess. Same I, thing, though. I mean, you know, more or less. Yeah. There are actually two women involved in that one, too, except I think both of them were sticking things in their vagina. I, th- I think yeah. in this case, the, the one here is just stealing it while the other one's so like listen, an accomplice. My take is this. 
the dude likely was banging one or both or maybe something sexually. And he knew this was going to be in the news because it was newsworthy. And that statement was basically because he has a wife, a girlfriend, kids, a family. Because nothing else makes sense. It just doesn't make sense. You're sitting there in the pit playing craps, and when two hookers come up to you, they ask you for sex, you say no, and then they say they're tired, and you just give them the keys to your room. It, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, I thought that too, but then why did he so leave them? He likely them? was just saying that, I mean, because he had to make a story for, you know, obviously a, a wife or a job or somebody was going to find out this happened. And to cover his bases, he had to make, you know, he had to spin it as best as he could. And that's the only way you can really spin it. To emphasize, you know, I don't do that sort of thing, and then kind of try <laughs> to make himself look like a good guy. I mean, what else makes sense? You yeah, know, I mean, I, I thought that was possible, something like that. But he left them alone for a long time. Apparently, he did leave them alone in the room and then came back, and they're still in the room. And he's like, okay, well, I trust them now. They didn't leave or steal anything, so why not just go to sleep yeah. with my Rolex But you're not just going to give two random hookers that literally just approach you within minutes access to your room. Who's going to do that? doesn't make sense. Now, it is possible maybe he went up and had sex with them, and then they said, oh, well, now we really have to go to sleep. And he's like, okay, well, I'm not tired. I'm going to go down and gamble, and then comes back, and they're still there. And he thinks, oh, sure. they didn't steal anything. Okay, well, I can let my guard down. I'm going to go to sleep and put my Rolex next to me on the table, and then you know what happens. Yeah. Did, they, did they say the guy's name? I don't was it No, police? no. They, they usually oh, don't okay. name the victims. When they, it's, but, yeah, maybe he was worried that. It would get back to his wife in somewhere. The police would come over to his house and ask about it or call. And so, yeah, maybe he was married and had to. But, uh, like, whose wife is going to believe that he's just, like, letting hookers just, like, sleep in his room? Yeah, I know. The whole thing is utterly <laughs> bizarre. <laughs> Jesus, the shit that goes on at the Cosmo late at night, huh? Yeah. I mean, well, the Cosmo huh. usually has, like, hot girls walking around, but this girl was not hot at all. Like, if, if you're going to get a hooker yeah, to steal your book. watch. Well, but you know what, though? Like, you know, that's probably after a day of drugs. And I mean, you're right. She wasn't no stunner, but I'm sure she looked a lot better dressed up. Maybe. You know, fresh, nice dress. Maybe. You know, they, they approach me a, a few times per summer at the World Series of Poker because I'm up pretty late, so I'm, like, walking around Paris or wherever I'm staying, and I... I can't tell you how many times this summer I, I would run into these hookers that would try very hard to talk to me. In fact, in one of the cases, I tried to ignore them, and one of them actually walked over and, like, touched my chest. Like, physically walked over. They were walking on one side, I was on the other. One of them actually walked over to me when I wasn't answering them and came over and, like, rubbed my chest as I was continuing to walk. Well, it's and, funny now because going back in the day, it wasn't a thing on their radar. But now the World Series of Poker is something that's kind of on their radar. You know what I mean? Like they know what's going on. They know their young kids that are there. You know, it's basically like a you know a busy like a holiday season for them. You know, they're young people. They're people that have money. Like they they know. They actually prey on it. Whereas before, it wasn't like that. I mean, they didn't. You know. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I laughed kind at of these. Like no, now to everyone. So you know, they think all they need is you know a couple guys. You know, a couple young kids that are here for the summer that hit a score, that have a ton of money, that want to party. So, I mean, that's, yeah. I don't even think they really target the young kids, though. It seems like they go for the older ones. And, in fact, when I was walking another time this summer, there were these two Middle Eastern guys a little bit older than me. They looked like mid to late 50s, and they're walking ahead of me. So they happened to reach the hookers first. And so these two hookers go, hey, guys, what's up? 
bah. and then these guys, I was wondering what they're going to do. They'd like even very phony back. Oh, hey, what's up? Ah! And then just keep walking, and then they're laughing. And then as they pass them, I hear one say to the other, oh, yeah, she talked to me because I'm so good looking. And they're both laughing. So they obviously knew what it was, too. And they just decided huh. to fuck with them. That's funny. And, you know, the other thing is uh, you didn't kind of mention this, but I, I want to kind of give you a correction. Uh, the reason why that you'll hear stories like this with that girl that is known to steal watches and she's out is because there's such a shortage of prison space in Nevada that unless literally you commit an unspeakable crime or just or not even unspeakable but something that's you know i guess at the point where a statute states you have to go to prison or literally a judge is so pissed off you keep on you know reappearing in her courtroom they're not going to send you to jail Mm. so basically you can you can steal over and over you know small things no one gets hurt there's no violence there was no crime you know you're not going to go to prison uh i mean i've seen these articles in the paper about these girls that you know prostitution alone you never go you never go to jail for that i mean they're girls that you know they have these articles you know about this and you know they have these girls that literally have been arrested 30 40 50 times and they know the drill there's lawyers in nevada that just specialize only in that that's really? all they do hmm. that, that's all they do that's like, interesting you know they mean they have like hundreds of clients that are hookers and you know and there's i don't know what the routine is but the point is there's there's so little jail cell space because I don't know. I think there's only four prisons in the entire state. I know there's uh, two down south, like, you know, in, in the Vegas area, like High Springs or High Desert. I well, I know there's, there's the one by, in the, Prim. There's the one that's uh, well, that's Jean. A woman, that, that's not a Prim, woman. in Jean. Jean, that's yeah. the woman's one, right? And then there's the one near the Idaho border near Jackpot. I think it's Jackpot, Nevada, where, you know, that's where OJ was. But the point is there's just not a lot of prison space. So judges are really hesitant to put people in there unless there is, you know, either something violent that went on or just something so, you know, egregious that there's no choice. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It's like, yeah, okay, you know, fine. maybe someone steals the first time you kind of give them some probation and community service and, and some sort of home, you know, just, you know, uh, Around, you know, house arrest or whatever, but then the second time it happens, okay, you're right. Like now it's not just you made a mistake, I'm young. This, you know, you, you go to prison, you go to jail, so, you know, you're stealing a $35,000 watch. It just doesn't work that way here. I mean, there's just not enough cells. That's, that's yeah, the they, they have to build more. See, there's all this controversy. They oh, to, they, yes, they, they oh we shouldn't build more prison. prison. We have more prisons than any other developed country. Well, if we need them, then build them. Like, you, don't, you don't say we're not going to put people in prison for committing crimes because we don't want to build more prisons because it, it feels weird to have so many prisons. No, it, you, you have enough prisons there yeah. to put people in prison for crimes they actually commit. You don't imprison people for things they shouldn't be in prison for. So if you want to make the argument that people shouldn't be in prison for doing recreational drugs, I agree. If you right. want to say don't actually put these uh, prostitutes in prison, okay, I can understand that. But but when people are stealing, especially stealing from individuals yeah. and, and setting them up in their hotel room, they definitely should, they should be in prison. So, you know, this is another interesting thing, and I'm sorry to hijack this back, but I was just waking up when you were talking about it. The girl that the infamous girl that did put the watch in her vagina, uh, funny enough, it you know, made the news here. I don't know if it was ever on your radar. A couple weeks after that, she got arrested again for stealing. Okay. Again, 
again, and she rebonded out again. Now I, you know, they haven't covered that story, so I don't. I'm gonna assume she either pleaded, or maybe there isn't even, you know, a court date yet, you know, or maybe it's going to trial. Who knows? There's been no news coverage. But the point is, even after that, you think she'd go in front of a judge, and the judge would be livid that, you know, while she committed this crime that got so much bad attention for, you know, the city of Las Vegas, she committed another crime, and then just throw her in in, in jail. And but she did, she didn't. You know, I mean, that she they raised the bond, they rearrested her, they charged her, and she just bonded out again. So uh, that's just my point. It's not anything, you know, that I can control or you. And I guess they're smart enough that they just know there's not enough beds in these prisons. You know, so I don't think it's a political thing. You know, I mean, I just, you know, they're taking all the taxpayers' money and, and, and people that are coming here, they're building stadiums and arenas. And, you know, it, it's it's hard. Because the school system here sucks. I don't. I don't know if you've talked about this about that before. Oh yeah, I know about that. Clark I, County is one of the worst uh, school systems, and you know it's funny. People don't realize. I think it's is it the fifth or the sixth? It's either the fifth or the sixth biggest in the nation. I mean, it's a big school district. Yeah, it's here. a giant school but, district. I know about that. And I know it sucks. And in but, fact, that, but the that's, point is, it's it's hard to it's hard to get momentum to build prisons when the schools are floundering. You know, so it, it's it's just it's a mess. I mean, when it comes to that sort of thing. You know, I mean, they build a two billion dollars arena. They're building another arena. We don't even they're building now a basketball arena for a team we don't even have. I don't know if you know that <laughs> that 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 new strip uh, resort that they're building on the south side near Blue Diamond and Las Vegas Boulevard. Have you talked about that? No. Well, there's a massive. There, go, come on, you had to have talked about this when when the news came out. It's a massive thing. Oh, you mean the that one that's going to be next to the uh, the. That ar- arcade place that moved down there? No, no, it's not no. that one. It's 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 kind of I guess maybe a mile north of the South Point on Las Vegas Boulevard. Is that basically like what I said? Like right around Blue Diamond Road in Las Vegas. I don't think Boulevard. I've talked about that. Okay, well, I don't know. Maybe three four months ago they announced another three four billion dollar project. Uh, hotels, residence residences, you know, like condos and such, shopping, and they're building a eighteen thousand seat basketball arena for when the nba eventually expands i'm not making this up like you know so they're, they're literally going to build another arena which we don't need i mean you know we have t-mobile which is great and but even more so they're building an arena for a team we don't even have hold on let me look i can't i i have to believe you talked about this unless somehow like you were off i i don't know i i talk about so much sometimes it all becomes a blur unless you're off Oh, I, I saw I saw your pretty face there. I see your pretty face again. Yeah. You keep putting okay. your face on with me. Hold on one second. Unless it was during an era where like you were off radio for a few weeks. Uh, hold on, trying to look it up. Okay, yeah, it's called the Dream. I guess that they're calling it the Dream Hotel. Oh, that is the same hotel. Oh. That's the same one I was talking about by the arcade. Okay. Uh, okay. I yeah. It's going to be a twenty-story luxury hotel. And any, yeah, any, yeah, 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 that is okay. I'm sorry. So you did talk about it. So any other building an arena, which is insane to me. Yeah, I didn't know about that part. I didn't know about the arena, but I see that the complex would feature a 20,000 seat arena that could serve as a home for a professional sports team. Yeah, that's weird because as far as I know, there are not imminent plans to put an NBA team in Vegas. Like, it's much more likely a baseball team's going to come to Vegas, but they couldn't play there. It's much more likely the A's are going to move to Vegas, and that's yeah. that's still ongoing. But uh, as far as an NBA team, I'm not seeing that really coming real soon. Well, 
I mean, you know what? The, well, the weird thing is I would assume if they do expand in the NBA, they have to expand to two teams. So the thought has always been, of course, that Vegas would get one of those teams. And then, of course, you, you know where the second team would go. Which, which Seattle. Seattle. Oh, you're talking about the NBA team. I, I didn't understand what you were asking. M- yeah, NBA. Because, you know, there's been a lot of just momentum in the last few years uh, about bringing a team back, you know, to replace the Supersonics. And, you know, apparently they have the funding. But anyhow, the point is we don't – I mean, it, it's the last thing to be shooting money off on. Like, you know, we don't need another arena here. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> just, it, it's I know. It's, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. So, mm. but uh, – yeah, anyhow, well, what else? Uh, well, I have a bonus to... topic I was just about yeah. to do, and it is a Vegas-related, or it's a Nevada-related topic. So this is something that was not on the agenda, but I got a text about during the show. And that is regarding expired cash-out vouchers. How much was left in, not left, but not cashed in, in fiscal year... 21 through 22, which is uh, July 1st, 2021 through June 30th, 2022. So it's a year period, but it ended June 30th. How much vouchers that are like confiscated by the properties themselves? No, ones that just never cashed in from one cent. So when they do their when they when they audit their systems, they can just determine they're just open tickets. Yeah, open tickets that that expire after I think like 180 days. Yeah. So. uh, they range mm. from a few cents all the way up to more that people don't redeem for whatever reason. So how much do you think? Well, see, but this is the thing. Okay, hold on. Before you say that, let me just tell people or, or remind you because I know you know about this. Uh, that was right around the peak of when they started this stupid policy where they wouldn't give people their change. So what – and even now, a, a lot of these automated uh, – you know, ticket voucher machines do the same thing. You put in, literally, you can put in $20.99 and what it will do. You put in a voucher, of course. And now I'm not talking about going to a cashier, you know, or cage and, and seeing a human. But, you know, most people don't do that for slot tickets unless you're, like, really old school and, you, you know, older people sometimes tend to do that because they like the human interaction. But anyhow, so you put in a voucher, for instance, for $20.99, and then it will spit out your $20 bill or I guess four or fives if you request that, and then you get another voucher for 99 cents that spits out, and then it makes you go to the cashier. So because of that, and I mean, I can't even tell you, uh, you know, those people, the credit hustlers, they must have been having field days because I remember when at the heart of this, uh, even casinos, I mean, like the, you know, all the MGM properties did this, Caesars did this, the Cosmo did this, the Venetian did it. Um, I, I, I know Red Rock did it, Station Casinos. I'm trying to think what other ones did it. But the point is you could just walk up and down, and you're finding you know, $0.05, cents, $0.07, cents, $0.20, cents, $0.30, cents, whether it's crumpled up, it's sitting there. Uh, and, you know, I remember seeing some cases where I would walk by one of those voucher redemption machines, and you would see 10, 15 tickets you know, just piled, piled up there. Yeah, you I mean, know, it's, it's, it's illegal, money. though. It's it's illegal to take those and either put them in a machine or cash them out if you did not actually earn them. And I've people... never seen that enforced in, in Las Vegas, ever. I've never really? Even, I, I, know I know it gets enforced in other jurisdictions. I don't know about Vegas. Yes, I know in Colorado someone got arrested for it. I've never heard. Now, I mean, if yeah, if you're someone that's making a living doing this, okay, then, yeah, I'm sure, I, you know, after a while you're going to get on the radar. But the average person, if you were to pick up a ticket or two, 
of, of that kind of, you know, monetary value, nothing's ever going to happen. That's just they just don't enforce that. But the point is, I'm just making it clear, there's a lot more breakage during that year because of all these people weren't getting their change. So that added up. People weren't. I mean, people were getting these secondary tickets that they weren't cashing in. Right. I know. So in they, fact, I took a, a picture of myself in front of Bally's, in front of the Bally's sign, with my thumbs way up, with a quarter right next to my thumb that I had actually redeemed at the cashier. I actually went there and yeah, redeemed the quarter, and I took a picture of myself with my thumb up and the quarter now, next to my thumb. What's the okay? So for someone like you, a little tight with the wallet strings there, the purse strings. What's the lowest amount that you're not going to walk to a cage for? I mean, well, you're not going to go for a penny. No, to be you're honest, gonna... the, the quarter I, I don't usually do anyway. I, I had this voucher well, sitting there okay, for a so quarter. What's, what's what's the what's the what's the over under? So like, you, you, what do you normally? Oh, you know I what? I'll tell you. I'll tell you what determines this. If there's any kind of line, I won't do it for even ninety nine cents. But if there's no line at all, then I think anything like a quarter or higher, I'll do. Uh, and okay, so, so what do you do with the ninety nine cents if there's a line? The ticket. I will. I, I take it with me, and if I play again, I use it. But then I usually don't. So I I have lost a few of these, and and one of them was for like ninety something cents. Yeah. Like there's no way I'm gonna even. As Jewish as I am, I'm not going to stand on any kind of line to get 90-something cents. Sure. And, you know, they blame it on the coin shortage, but I honestly believe it's just it's another little, you know, little thing that they're pulling. No, it's a Superman 3 thing for sure. Well, listen to this. This is the whole point of this uh, topic. So how much do you think they got to keep total? In all Nevada properties in fiscal year 2022? It's going to be a record. It's going to be a record number, I think. Um. How, okay, well, I have to ask one last question. When do they start keeping track of this? Because I've never heard this data reported. Is I, I don't know, like but I'll tell you about this? a law I didn't know. I used to think the casino would keep all of it, and there is a great incentive for them to do it. Well, there still is an incentive. However, the casino does not keep all of it or even most of it that uh, what they actually do is they keep only 25% of it and the other 75% goes to the state of Nevada. So, okay, so the question is is it the total amount that is the number you're asking the for? The total amount in the, the state amount? of Nevada in that year period. Wait, the total amount before the casinos got Bef- there. Yeah, 25%. before anyone takes their share, it's the yeah. total amount oh, that was geez. not cashed in. The entire state. Um, I'm going to say it's going to be a lot. Uh, I'm going to say I mean, it's not going to be crazy. It's not going to be over ten million. I don't think. Uh, I'm going to say six and a half million. You are incorrect. The number twenty-two million dollars. Oh wow! Unbelievable. They interviewed someone, uh, just a random from New Mexico, named Clarissa Pierce, and. She said, that's the one thing I hated about the ticket vouchers. They don't give out less than a dollar. You have to go all the way to the cashier's case to cash them out. Sometimes that's a pain, especially when it's 30 or 40 cents. It's become a hassle, which is what everybody thinks. That's all relatively new, too. This isn't something that's been, you know, this started pre-pandemic. And this is something basically that happened after the reopening. This wasn't, I mean, 20 years I've been here, never, never saw that before. You always got your change. It's, yes. it's absurd. Yes, it is. Oh, and it's not even that anymore. And then what they do is uh, at least the strip, and I think stations, but maybe not. But definitely the strip properties, they give you like eight different options to donate your winnings. 
So donate part of your winnings. Have you seen those messages? Uh, well, yeah, I have seen that. Money. Yes. But yeah, so but Caesars definitely, the Cosmo definitely, the Venetian definitely. A uh, little, you know, thing will come up. Would you like to donate the change? Would you like to donate this? Like it, it's, I mean, that's just to me, that's insanely tacky. Like really, like that's the appropriate time to ask people for a donate. Like you know, you go to the grocery store. It's annoying enough. Like you know, you ever go to Walgreens or CVS, and at the end of the purchase, you know, do you want to donate your change to this, or you want to donate? And then sometimes it even comes on the screen, and you have to manually. Yeah, I see that, and I, I always hit no. It's obnoxious. Yes, it's, it's obnoxious. very obnoxious. But yeah, that is something I always felt was crazy that they're doing. And it's obvious that people are not going to collect it for the most part because of the line to get the money. It's just not worth it to most people. Even ones who have the principle of not wanting to let that money go like me are going to say, well, I'm not going to wait in a five-person line to get 45 cents. So you just don't do it, even if you really want to get it. And I would bet somebody, I mean, this would be a good prop bet, you know, as long as, you do it in a way where even if you do get forced out or kicked out or whatever admonished, you're not going to get banned or 86, especially if you live here. But I would bet someone that in an eight-hour shift – okay, well, you know, let me put it this way. Let me ask you. In an eight-hour shift, like, you know, just say you start at noon and you have, you're have you done at eight no matter what, and I drop you off on the strip without a dollar, okay? And the ground rules are that, you know, you could take vouchers that – you find on the floor that you find unattached that you even can take loose change that's in a machine and what i mean by that is like you know you see you know someone seventy dollars which sometimes people forget to cash out you can't take that but a lot of times the way and this is another genius thing that that casino started doing a couple years ago it used to be okay that machines wouldn't pay out in any denomination that was basically let less than what the minimum spin was so meaning if you're betting 20 cents, you're not going to win 10 cents. You're not going to win 7 cents. But they changed that, and they did it for this exact reason. So the point I'm making is sometimes somebody will be playing a slot machine. It's the minimum no matter what. The lowest you can possibly bet is 40 cents, and they end up with 37 cents in credit in their machine. And they can't get another full spin. So what they end up doing is they just leave it. They get up and they walk away. They're not going to go cash 37 cents in the machine. They're not going to go to the – especially now – because they know they have to go to the cashier. So the point I'm making is you could literally at a prime time walk around these machines and get 30 cents, 37 cents. Usually it's going to be right under 40 because 40 is for penny slots is that key number. So anyhow, I drop you off at, at we'll just say uh, the Cromwell. Okay, you have eight hours to just do what I said, you know, either find vouchers on the floor that are, you know, sitting, you know, sometimes people throw them in ashtrays, whatever it is, and you just make as much as you can that way. And if you see the loose change in machines, you can cash it out too. You know, that, that's under a spin. Not like, you know, you see $30 that someone obviously unintentionally left. What do you think you make it? What would you set the line at? Or what would you even bet you could make? Well, and how long of a time? Eight hours. An eight, eight hour shift. Um, so do, I, do I get to go to more, more than one casinos re- or is it only one casino? Let me even rephrase it. We'll do 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. on a weekend, so you know there's a lot of action, and you're gonna get dropped. No, you're gonna get dropped off at the Cromwell. You have eight hours, and then we're gonna pick you up right back at the Cromwell. And I can walk Same wherever place. I you want. You can go anywhere you want. Yeah, okay. but you're you know you're walking because obviously a kind of person that would do this would be someone that's homeless or someone that really is struggling. They're not gonna have a car, and, and you know probably wouldn't make sense to do that anyhow. You probably can get around faster by foot. But yeah, it's all by foot, so you're limited to. But it's eight hours. What would you say you could make? 
And again, it's just those guidelines. Like, there's not going to be a score because if you see fifty dollars, two hundred dollars in this, you don't take that because that's something they would enforce if you got caught, and they would likely arrest you, or at the very least, they're going to trespass you. They wouldn't let that stand if you got caught. But the change part, I see people do all the time. I've never heard of anyone ever ever getting in trouble. Yeah, I mean, you could probably, especially if you just grabbed those and then went to the other side of the casino and just stuffed them all in one machine and hit cash out, and then you would it, it would add up to well, a lot Well, and the other that. thing is if you're dressed normal, you don't look like you're homeless, you don't look like you're indigent, you know, you're clean-shaven, you know, you don't look, you're not going to draw any attention. Right, I was going to mention yeah. that too, that if you look normal, the, you didn't have the homeless appearance, you could probably get away with it. You're definitely not going to be on their radar. So, anyhow, what, what would you guess you'd set your line at? Uh, eight hours. Yeah, probably like a hundred bucks. Yeah, so that's what I that's what I was saying. I think you could literally grind a hundred dollars, pretty somewhat easily, maybe even more, just doing that. Which is, I mean, that's not you know a way to live. I'm not suggesting it for that, but that might be an interesting prop bet for somebody. Like just to you know maybe maybe even set it a little bit higher, just to give somebody a real good sweat. And you know, and obviously both sides put money on it. So, but anyhow. Uh, now I have a second yeah. question for you uh, related yeah. to this. In 2012, they also looked up this number, so I guess they've been keeping oh, track for this. Way about, lower, which for, is going to be way lower. I guess they've been keeping track of this for about uh, ten years. Now so, hold on, is this just vouchers only, right? It's vouchers only, yes, never, yes, okay, only it's not vouchers that were never captured. Yes, only okay. vouchers. In in uh, 2012, how much did they? get in that time okay i'm gonna say it's a real low number i'm gonna say like three and a half million three and a half close 4.2 million yeah so it's gone up by five times five times but you know and and yeah like obviously vegas has had a somewhat of a boom since then but it's all these other little tricks mainly the slot one like when they just decided to set these machines or literally okay there's way more ways that the average gambler is gonna have to leave money in the machine Okay, and, and they know they're not going to cash it out. Like, that's just, it's, it's, to me, that's pretty shady. I mean, you shouldn't have something pay out less than the minimum spin. Yeah. Because then, then you'll shady. never have that problem. Yeah, the, you know? the whole thing's very shady, and they should not have a system like this. There should be some way you can redeem this electronically or, or something, at the very least, where, where you don't have to stand on a physical line uh, and, and, uh, it's well, just, like I said, Ed, this is just that. This isn't everywhere. I mean, the local casinos, I don't know, again, about uh, stations now, but, you know, uh, Boyd Gaming, you know, Boyd Casinos and uh, some of the other ones, you know, like I said, probably every other local one, they don't do that. You go up there and you still get your change. You know, you go to the Gold Coast, you're a local, you don't have to, you know, you know, because they know those people are going to get pissed. They know the locals are going to want their change. Well, they used I mean, to have know. machines at every place that dispensed change. So they took a step yes. backwards and it's removed true. them. But right, but they started blaming it on a co- on the coin shortage. Yes. They, that's what that's the excuse they use. But why not do and, it until the coins run out? Here they just do it for nobody. I agree. That doesn't it's, make it's, any sense. And I don't even under, I I still never have gotten an explanation that I'm satisfied with about this coin shortage. If that's the case, who's hoarding the coins? Yeah, who has the ball? That's I a good mean, point. Who ha- like, what, what, why now? And then, and even more so, why was it during a pandemic when people were spending less? You know, where people were spending less in person, you think coins would be, you know, there'd be more. There'd be a surplus of Yeah, them. that is weird. 
That is everyone weird. was just at home. It was like at a standstill. People were ordering things with credit cards. People were paying for more things electronically. Like so, there was there wasn't all this. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't. It. It. it I don't know. And no, I. I mean, I never got an answer that I was satisfied with hearing explaining it. So, so I think at this point you don't even hear change shortage anymore. Okay, now it's just other oh, machines don't give out change. Like they literally pulled the wool over people's eyes now. And now it's almost like, you know, it's it, it, people have been retrained to the point where they just think it's the it's the norm. Or yes. you know what I mean? Like they're they're not even questioning it now. They just like oh that's how it is. You don't get the change. Like it's it's. <laughs> I mean, and then you know what happens is, and I I'm going to be honest. I didn't know that 75 percent went to Nevada. That's interesting. But you know then what happens is. You know, and I see this all the time on some of these Facebook groups. People go home and they have all these vouchers that they've saved from different casinos. You know, and then in some cases they're even smaller amounts. I've seen, you know, twenty dollars, thirteen dollars that they just because of lines they didn't think was worth standing for. They thought they'd be back. And you know, and like you said, it's it's usually 180 days from the date the ticket is printed. Uh, that you have to cash it. I don't know if that's a gaming law. I would imagine it is. Yeah, that's another question. Is If this is the case, if they had to modify this because of this supposed coin shortage, why not change the 180 days to make it longer so people who come once a year at least can bring this stuff back? Not that most people will, but 180 days is kind of crappy for tourists. Uh, a lot of tourists don't come back to Vegas every six months. Yeah. You know, I wonder what happened during the, the shutdown. I wonder if that was kind of grandfathered where it didn't count where there was no time occurring because then any ticket would have just expired by then. That's a good point. Yeah. Mm. I wonder, but yeah, that's a, that's a large number. I mean, that's a lot. So, okay. You said it was 22 million. Yes. Is that what you said? Yes. Okay. So they got an extra statewide. They got an extra 5 million. They got 25% of that, you know, give or take, they got $5 million just basically of. Yeah. Over 5 million money. for the casinos and, and over 15 for yeah. the, uh, state. So uh, now you see then, why the state the, goes. And along the reason with it. why I mentioned chips too is it's not that prevalent anymore. I mean, it still is. You know, I, I would even say probably chips or 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 more. You know, twenty two million. Would you say chips removed and not redeemed would be? And I, and I mean like long term removal, not chips that someone just uses. You know, for poker and they you know buy in with the chips no i don't think it's 22 removal. million because people mostly take ones and it's not as common like every machine player tends to come away with some kind of change that they well, don't redeem the reason okay so the reason why i say that is years and years ago uh around 2005 2004 i worked at the hard rock and the hard rock at least to my knowledge was the first casino that had collect that issued collectible chips that were actually worth some serious money um they would have they would release chips based on bands that played at you know, their little concert venue is called the joint at the hard rock this is back like in the ben affleck days and you know when the hard rock was was you know pre-poms the hard rock was a place to be and some of those bands that they would release on chips they'd only make 100 or 500 of them and so i remember when i worked there they were quarter chips and even a couple hundred dollar chips that would sell for 500 even a thousand on ebay and they would go like they would really go so the hard rock actually had a policy and i'm not making this up this is how laid back think about this now but there was a policy at the hard rock where if you were an employee um i don't remember if if 
what the policy was for floor, you know, which is what I was. I, w- I wasn't a dealer there. But anyhow, the policy was if you were a dealer at the Hard Rock and you found one of these chips that had value, and believe me, these dealers knew which ones did, um, you could ask a floor person to tap you out. Okay. You could literally go into your wallet. Okay. Or like, or if, Say your purse, you know, was in a locker or something. You come back up with money after a break. They take the chip off the game and put it, you know, aside for you. Literally, and purchase the chip while you're working, okay, and take the chip. I'm not making this up. I mean, I did this. Like, I never purchased one, but I would tap out a dealer and let them, you know, show their hands for the camera, reach into their pockets, and they would literally be able to purchase chips. Uh, like, that was one of the weird, I don't know if you want to call it a perk. But the point I'm making is there used to be, a, you know, a time – when there was a really big market for these collectible chips. Uh, and I, I guarantee you right now, I haven't looked in years. If you, if the listener went to eBay right now and just typed in hard rock, Las Vegas, uh, you know, collectible chips, you're going to find, oh God, I can't think of the bands, but there are, there are like three or four really, really vintage bands that played there that maybe, you know, the bands aren't even in existence or they died. You know, I'm talking like bands from the sixties and seventies, like, uh, I can't even think of who they were, but there was one like I know the Smiths, the band the Smiths was one of them that at one point they had a quarter chip that was worth several hundred dollars and people would pay for it. But uh, anyhow, other other casinos started doing that. The Palms did that. I remember in the Palms poker room they had a rounders uh, chip that people were collecting, and I'm sure you've seen this from time to time, like in all your years here, these special occasion chips that have a famous you know, poker player or just, you know, someone that helped build the casino. Yeah, I've seen you know. a lot of these different chips. And in fact, I will tell you, we have a chip collector, a big time casino chip collector who listens to this show, who goes by Alpha123. And he occasionally posts on the forum, but he listens to every episode of radio. And boy, he has a massive casino chip collection going back uh, many, many years. And yeah. he even made a recent post showing me chips with the uh, the Desert Hole Pupfish, which is from Death Valley, that there was actually a casino which commemorated the Pupfish. And when I talked about the pupfish, he, he went and posted on the forum this past week chips with a pupfish on it. So he really has everything. Wow. And the interesting thing, the funny thing is, and you know, just in case people don't know this, is all those chips every so many years are removed from circulation. And there'll be a notice posted uh, at the cage. So, like, for instance, when, even though the Palms now is using similar chips to what they used when it was owned by the Maloofs and then after that station casinos, when they literally reopened, they posted a sign stating you had until such and such date to redeem their last, I guess you call it their last generation of chips. And then after that date, and this is something gaming requires, I think they give you six months notice. And then after that date, you walk in there with a $500 chip, a $1,000 chip. And I always tell people this, don't ever take big big denomination chips home thinking you can come back here and, and use it because they change chips out pretty frequently. It's not something that happens every 20 years. Yeah, I've told them also that they will sometimes question you how you got the chips. Even if you're telling the truth, they're not going to believe you, and then they may not want to cash them for you, and they may try to accuse you of receiving them from somebody else and confiscate them. So it's it's never a good idea. There's ways around that. I mean, and what I mean by that, I'm not talking about suggesting to do anything illegal, but 
if yeah, if you walk up to like a lower end place, like the Gold Coast, for instance, and you have a thousand dollar chip and you just walk up to the cage, you're not getting a thousand dollars because what they're going to do. I mean, if you walked in with it now, there's two things. If you had that chip and you played on your player's card and they attract you and they know that you walk with it, then there's going to be no problem. There's no law that says you have to cash out right away. You cash it on your own terms, whether that's a month, a year, you know, you cash out when you want. Okay, but if someone paid you, you know, oh, here, I have a $1,000. I owe you a 1000 here. Here's this chip for the for Gold Coast. Go there and cash it. You're going to walk up to the cage, and they're going to say, sir, what table were you playing? And then they're going to and you know, say, oh, I was playing uh, Pi Gal. They're going to call the Pi Gal pit, and they're going to ask if anyone walked with a $1,000 chip or a $500 chip. And when they're told no or they're told the name of the person – that won't match who you are, you will not be able to cash that shit. Well, I know. So if yeah. you say this from six months ago and they don't have this info anymore, then you can get a lot of well, questions well, they may well, not want to. Saying. If you're using a player's card, they're going to record that. And you can say, you know, well, you know, I was here six months ago. Look at my play. I won. And they'll be able to surmise if your story makes sense. Sometimes. But if for whatever reason that info is not in there or it falls off somehow or it just doesn't match right, now, okay, you, so, you can be screwed. So, what, so why even take the chance? No, you shouldn't. So what I was going to suggest, the most common way – do you know what the most common way around that is? Uh, well, you, you could uh, go to the poker table and uh, exchange well, okay, it for chips with somebody case, else. Okay, you're, going, you're going somewhere where there's no poker. What, what, what would you do? There's, no, there's not a poker room. I guess if you go to a blackjack table and, and then That's have exactly it broken down. That's exactly what you would do, and you would break it down and then just make sure when you leave – Okay, you don't round it back up. Now, they're going to, you know, they commonly say this because, you know, they just don't want the headache of having to fill games constantly. Fill games means when they bring, you know, the security guard comes over and they bring lower denomination or all denominations of chips and they put in the dealer's rack. But there's no law that says that you have to do that. Like, you know, they want to do that. But if you want green chips or black chips, you can walk with them. But that would be the way to do it. You have a $1,000 chip, a $500 chip, you break it, you play for a little while. And then you leave without that big chip anymore. And, you know, there's no casino in town that questions where you got black chips from. I mean, I'm not talking about coming up with eight, nine, ten thousand in black chips, but, you know, a thousand dollars, even you know, whatever it may be, a reasonable amount in, in black and green. You're never going to get questioned, you know, especially on the strip. I mean, would you agree with that? Yes. Okay. Okay, well, gonna, that, that's all I got here, uh, except for... What was the bonus topic? No, this was the bonus topic. This this is basically it, and it just shows you how much extra revenue they're, they made from this and how obnoxious this whole thing is. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a, it, this was sent to me by somebody, and I thought it was uh, worth talking about because it's annoying. It's a, a little annoyance. And you know what? I think this is bad overall for... Vegas tourism because people can remember dumb little things like that where they're only out 50 cents and it just kind of pisses them off like okay I lost gambling well I kind of expect I'm going to lose gambling because I know the odds are with a casino just about everybody knows that but then you think you know what and they kept the last 50 cents from me because they didn't want to stand on a 10 person line to get it and it freaking pissed me off and why are they nickel and diming me like this literally and it can leave people with a bad feeling and they, they need to think of things like yeah. this. So here's an example. I didn't look at it in great detail because, you know, I'm talking to you at the same time. But I just found on eBay a $5 Metallica chip from the Hard Rock. From This is years ago. This is over 20 years old. But it's a regular $5 chip with, I, I would assume it's 
uh, in commemoration of the first time Metallica played there. Anyhow, it's in an auction right now. Five, it's a five dollar red ship. What do you think it, it's at right now? Metallica. Uh, Eighty five dollars. That's seventy nine dollars. Oh, that's close. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, but that's just my point. So there, there is a market for that now. It's not. It's depressed now. It's actually funny how these things like come and go. Like for instance, sports memorabilia was was very very depressed. That just in terms of just the market. And what happened recently? Do you know, Jeff? Have you have you seen news on this? Have you been following it? News on what? The sports memorabilia market. No, no, I haven't seen this. So it was very depressed for many, many years. And then when the pandemic hit, especially when people people were at home, it shot up through the roof. Uh, basically, the record, meaning the most ever paid for any sort of you know memorabilia item, has been set and broken, set and broken several times since the pandemic started. Um, and now it's a, it's really, really booming. I mean, it, it's it's just the other day the record was reset it was that same honus well okay so basically there were tom brady rookie cards michael jordan rookie cards and all of them were being sold and they were just literally resetting the market you know over and over and the top selling card meaning just as of right now the record what do you think it is what one you know we're uh, just give you that hint it's a card you know it's not like a you know football a jersey but it, it's a sports card and it is the most – and it's been the record before, but it, now it just crushed it. Uh, let me see if I could find the exact amount. But do you have any idea what card it would be? Um, is it that famous uh, Pittsburgh card, the Pittsburgh with a G? I think the Honus Wagner no, card. Uh, okay, so it just set the record August 4th, actually. It's a per, almost perfect – like it's one notch off being perfect you know they have this this grading system for cards and yeah it's a honus wagner card okay that literally just sold at the beginning of august for 7.25 million it's one single baseball card 7.25 million and that same card had only sold for like a million and a half 10 years earlier and it went for 7 million 7.25 million I, I think it is that pittsburgh card i you know i'm not i'm not a big baseball guy i don't did he play for pittsburgh I should know that. Uh, yeah, it, it was. It's this one with Pittsburgh without the H at the end. That's that's a famous card. I think it is that card. Okay, so I'm reading it now. It's called the T206 card. It's one of only seven of these Honus Wagner cards. I don't know what you mean by Pittsburgh, unless there, there's one where it has Pittsburgh on his jersey, but not the way you see Pittsburgh spelled these days. It's Pittsburgh with just a G at the end. Huh. I think that's it because I'm seeing I'm on looking. Google oh, it's T206, it. and it looks, it's, I think it's that card. Okay. Well, whatever. I'm not going to – Yeah, I guess that, I actually guessed it right, it looks like. Okay. It might be. So, anyhow, before that – okay, so before August 4th, do you have any idea the record for a sports card, what, what it was? What player? And a, and a, well, the, the amount, I guess, is hard. The amount was $5.2 million, and this was broken. It wasn't Honus Wagner, but this held the record before that. Rebroke it. Who do you think the player was? Was it uh, Babe Ruth? Nope. It was a 1952 Tops baseball card of. So 1952. Who is who is the most famous player in that era in the 50s? Was it Sandy Koufax? 
It was Mickey Mantle. Okay, I think it's a little before Koufax, actually. Yeah, that was. Yeah. 5.2 million. So, anyhow, interesting stuff. Oh, uh, what did you say with the money that Clark County or the state, I guess, of Nevada takes, 75%, where does that money go to? I just assume goes to a general fund. General it goes fund. To the state. I mean, it doesn't go to education infrastructure. No, I, I, it doesn't look like it. Did it, it say? Like, did it say general fund? No, but I'm just guessing it? that it's a, probably just seen as like tax revenue. That's what I am guessing. Interesting. Huh. Wow. Well, that's a big increase from ten years prior. Four million to twenty-two yeah, and a half, or whatever. It's, it's it kind of like that's... a scam. These things bother me because they're making enough money. They shouldn't be. It is a scam. They shouldn't I, I, be stealing people's is. change like this. It's just lame. They should find some way to oh. handle this that is more equitable for the player, or at least give people a real opportunity to get it in some way well, look, that I doesn't require more more. us a, a you know, big the line. City, the city, at some point in my lifetime, will be in for a reckoning because it literally is going to get to the point where people are going to start. In numbers that matter, in numbers that start showing up in data and in polling and things of that sort, where people are staying closer to home, okay, or going to their regional casinos versus coming here with all the nickel and diming stuff. It's going to get to that point, trust me. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, agree. It really I, is. I think it, it, it will. I think it, it will. absolutely is. I mean, the thing is, the modern casino today, okay, I'm just being honest here. I'm not bashing. You know, I love this city. The modern casino today, okay, besides obviously having, you know, the strip, meaning tons of different casinos, but the modern casino today, you know, in any location, you know, will have just about every amenity that the Bellagio has or the Wynn has, you know, a steakhouse, you know, some sort of relevant, you know, comedian or a relevant musician and, you know, a, a, a buffet. I mean, everything that you could find here, you're going to find there. And once people realize, geez, like it's this much, you know, it, it's almost going to become like what Disney you know, kind of is now where there's this literally going to be a segment of the population that is just priced out, you know, or that just gets so disgusted by all, all the upcharging. You know, I, I see more and more now on the, this vital Vegas, uh, you know, people report things to him and then he tweets about it, that these restaurants on the strip, there's more and more of these that are being churned out that are now charging franchise fees on receipts. Yeah, or I, I, I've sort. seen like admin fees, too, that don't even make sense. Yeah, right. So besides, you know, gratuity, besides this, besides that, you know, you're, now they're just tacking on an extra 3% <laughs> and they're just putting something silly on it, you know. So between that and the parking and just the, the prices, of it, you know, I looked, it's really, really funny. Uh, so I know you were obviously just at the World Series, but I don't think it opened. I think it just opened right after. They opened up a new steakhouse at Binion's this month. Um, you know, they're, they're brand rebranding it or branding it, whatever you want to call it as a horseshoe as the horseshoe. So they opened up a, you know, th this is the high end restaurant now at Valley's. Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know the name of it? No. Okay. So they opened up recently. It's open now a Jack Binion's steakhouse at Valley's. And it got, you know, got some press. It was in the paper and on the news. So I said, well, you know what? Let me look at this menu. So I looked at the, and again, this is at Bally's. So I looked at the menu. And what do you think the cheapest steak is at, at Bally's? Let me pull this menu up. Uh, I'm going to guess $60. Okay, hold on. Give me a second. What I also find with steaks is that 
often the smaller stakes are a really terrible value. Okay, so the cheapest stake is the petite filet mignon. That's always a bad at, value. And it's seventy four ninety five. <laughs> that is the yeah. cheapest. There's not even a prime rib. That's it. That's the cheapest. The cheapest. The cheapest. So I'm just laughing, thinking that the average person literally staying there and eating dinner there, it's going to cost more for dinner than their rooms cost for the whole trip. I mean, there's no chance that they have a steak here. Let me send you this menu. It's so overpriced that it's – I mean, look at these. The cheapest steak is 75 bucks. I mean, that's – that's. I mean, that's 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 ridiculous to me. Yeah, if you don't have a comp, it's crazy. Yeah, it is. I mean, I, and I'm not. I'm a, believe me, more than anything, I mean, I'm a, a self-admitted foodie. You know, I, I spend money on food, unlike probably. I mean, you know me. You spend time with me. I like the finer things, but you know, if I was going to spend seventy five dollars on a steak, you know, which I've done before, it's going to be a select few places that that would have that distinguished. You know, well, and what's also kind of dumb is these prime steakhouses. They are not quite that expensive. Steakhouses that are very well regarded, the cheapest steak is not $75. So they should at least be equivalent to those and not more. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's what I was trying to say. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and people see that and, yeah, they get pissed off and they, they don't want to come back and they just feel kind of cheated. So they they should watch out for this, but there's too much – short-term thinking going on and often it's too much controlled by accountants rather than people who can look for the long-term health of the business and the industry so yeah i I think there could be a reckoning coming especially with the economy that is in question in the upcoming years you know we have all this inflation we may have a stagflation situation which is even worse and there may not be that much money in the upcoming years that people have to spend on this type of thing, kind of like what happened in 08 when Vegas was struggling big time after that big yeah. housing crash. Yeah, so I just saw an article, uh, the fiscal year from June 30th of 21 to June 30th of, of this year of 22. What do you think – well, the state of Pennsylvania – set a new record for gaming revenue and it, it just it crushed the the previous record what do you think they made from june 30th of two and this just goes more to my point that people are going to stay closer to home but june 30th of 2021 to june 30th of this year in pennsylvania alone in gaming revenue 100 billion dollars 5.2 billion dollars I mean, that's that's incredible. that's a lot. Wow. Yeah, that is a lot. That's, so, anyhow, that's, that's almost half a billion a month. Yeah. Yep. So anyhow, that's my point. I see that happening here, that people are just going to stay closer to home. And unless you just crave that gaming or that Vegas experience, you know, where you want to walk casino to casino, because that's yeah, that's the one thing that that can't be duplicated. I mean, you know, wherever you go, you're not, you know, there's no other. I mean, you know, the closest thing, I guess, would you know, is Atlantic City or Biloxi, and that's not even that close. You know, in terms of just having that. But if you just want, you know, the weekend or the four day trip, you know, why would you come here? You know, if you just want to gamble, if you want to eat, you know, at a nice, you know what I'm saying? Yes. You could find all those amenities at these high end play. You know, I went to once uh, a couple times, actually. What's that? What is that casino in near San Diego? That beautiful resort. Uh, was, is it Pachanga? Is that the yeah, name there's, of it? There's Pachanga. Always... There's a number of them. There's Pachanga. There's uh, Paula. <clears throat> 
there. Well, okay, is, so uh, I think I went to Pachanga, you know, years and years ago, and I would just say that I would, if you drop that casino anywhere on the strip, it would fit right in. I mean, in terms of how big it is, in terms of the restaurants, in terms of how nice it looked. You know, it looked like it could fit in anywhere on the strip. I mean, it looked like I mean, it looked nicer than the Treasure Island. It looked nicer than the Mirage. I mean, it, it was a big, beautiful, thriving property. You know, and it had a spa and it had, you know, multiple pools and anyhow, that's my point. That it's it's just going to get to the point where people are going to stay, you know, more regional. That's that's what I think. If these fees and the, and these little ticky-tack things keep going on. I mean, they don't even give you your change anymore. <laughs> they don't even they don't even give you your change yeah that's it's like it's, very very obnoxious and the thing and the thing that's so hilarious about it is the machines are made these aren't new machines yes they that's what i was saying they, they actually took the a step feature. back in technology right. to where they, it can't do as much as it could a few years ago they literally just turned off the feature that dispenses it the machines yeah are that, the same. that's why the the coin shortage makes no sense because they should have every bit of change dispensed and then say we have no more change Sorry, go to the cage. Not just everybody can't get change. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like that that Superman movie that you make reference to. Yes, yeah, Superman yeah, three. Superman, yeah. the one with Richard Pryor. Yeah, Superman three? three. Yes, it's totally yeah. Superman three. Which is, by the way, it's such an awful movie. It, it was awful. It was it was too bad. I mean, one it, was good, obviously. Two. I mean, you know, I always have a soft spot. For well, I was going to say, you should like two because you're Zod. For, but. Yes, for obvious reasons. And then four, the nuclear one or the one where there's a bad – I mean, that Well, that, that was, was crappy so, too. Yeah, that was yeah. really terrible. Like I don't even know what Christopher Reeves how, – how did – I mean, was Christopher Reeves had to just be like, you know, okay, you know, I got to do this. I, you know, I want the paycheck. I mean, there's no way he ever saw that script and was like, this is just a great movie. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's almost like Eddie Murphy with Beverly Hills Cops 3. How could anyone – Ever have read those scripts and been like, "This is"? You ever see Beverly Hills Cop three? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, Jesus Christ! Yeah, so a lot of these sequels get pretty bad. Yeah, they're make they're making so you know just we're doing a little banter here, but so they are making a another Beverly Hills Cop. They really are doing it this time. They're actually they got greenlit. They're just making adjustments to the script. I mean, so that means it could be out in two or three years, or who knows? It could take five, but. You know, Eddie Murphy's in his 60s, so they better get the ball rolling. But there's another uh, cop, very famous cop movie, uh, you know, two cop, buddy cop, whatever you want to call it, genre of movie that was very popular in the 80s and 90s. And they literally just started filming the first one, the original two members, uh, the first one in 25 years. Do you have any idea what movie that is? They've made, let's see, one. Uh, this will be the fifth one. They made four of them. So it would be a Lethal Weapon? Yes, they're making a new Lethal wow, Weapon. Wow, I right can't now. believe it. To show you how old this is, with my first girlfriend ever, in 1989, I went to see not the first Lethal Weapon, but the second in the theater. Yeah, because I was just, just going <laughs> to say, I saw the second one, and I, I snuck in. The first one, you would have been, I mean, I was probably under 10 years old. The first one was like 84. Yeah, so, so I, I wasn't did. old enough to be dating them. But now in 89, I, I took my first real girlfriend. Not the first girl I ever did anything with, but the first actual like relationship I had, I took her to Lethal Weapon 2. Wow. Yeah. You're still even a little young for that. Well, uh, I, I was, seven, I was 17. I was yeah. that young. Well, I mean, that, you know, that movie I remember had some nudity in it. And it had well, you I, know some... I, I had nudity decent. later that night. So that was, that was well, yeah. real life nudity. Yeah. 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 But yeah, so they're well. You know, I think a lot of it 
with that was that Mel Gibson, if what he did 10, 12, 15 years ago happened today, he would have been canceled. He'd be done. Um, but I think that's why we haven't even really gotten, you know, broached the scope of having another one, you know, come to fruition after all these years until now. You know, because he just, you know, remember he had multiple incidents with the police where he said anti-Semitic things. And then there was also like that divorce he had where he, I guess, you know, allegedly committed domestic. You know what I'm talking about, right? Remember that video? He got pulled over by the police. And yes, yes. He's cursing about the Jews. And, yes, I mean, yes. just insane. This is a DUI. And he was just going off about the blaming the Jews. I'm surprised he's so, even doing this because he has a ton of money. He Like he has a whole lot of money. At this point, so I don't know why he's well, bothering so me think, this at okay, this age. Okay, so I think that this was the thing. So uh, before COVID, I mean, this is really, really kind of crazy. Before COVID, uh, you know, because I, I was a big lethal fan, a lethal weapon fan. The first one was was great. The second one I thought was even better than the first. The third one wasn't. It was okay, and the fourth one was garbage. But Richard Donner, who had directed uh, the previous four, wanted to do a legacy one, the final one, and, and close it out. And they all agreed because, you know, apparently, you know, they just wanted to do it for Richard. And, you know, I I guess the camaraderie of the cast was pretty decent. Anyhow, like they all liked each other. So but the interesting thing was so Richard Donner was given a script and they had agreed to start filming uh, right when COVID hit. I mean, this was before COVID hit. You know, they didn't know COVID was going to hit. But sometime like in early 2020, they were going to film. Now, the interesting thing is they had greenlit, greenlit this Richard Donner had signed a contract, done all that, and he was 92 years old. Okay, so or maybe 91. So, but you know, that's just the interesting thing. Like, you know, when you give these guys like a movie, like right now, Clint Eastwood's in pre-production for a movie that they're going to film like in a year and a half, two years. Clint Eastwood is what 93 now, 92. <laughs> like, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I'm sure there's insurance for all that, but so anyhow, Richard Donner, although they claimed he was very healthy at the time, they had no reason to think he, he wasn't going to be able to do it ended up dying it's it's just and you know that's the other thing it's weird to me to think like a 93 year old man has that kind of energy to command a set yeah i wouldn't think so either needs to do like you know what i mean like that's insane it is like, to me like just to think to be that old you know we're not talking about even starring in a movie but like you know those the, it's got to be grueling hours that you know as a director and you're traveling you know some of these movies you go to five different you know countries and so yeah, and there's a tremendous and, amount of degradation physically in people between 80 and 90, much more than between 70 and 80. So if you make it to 90, you're always going to be in much worse physical shape than you were at 80 by a wide margin. So your your energy level really is very very low by that point. So Clint Eastwood uh, turned 92 May 31st, and he has projects that have already been greenlit like for the next two years. Like, meaning he'll like, you know, if everything works out, he'll, you know, he has a film that's going to be the next film after the one he's doing now that he'll direct when he's 94. Like, that's you know, so I guess when you're that legendary, it just, it doesn't matter to them. They're just going to keep giving you projects. And when that day does come, they just deal with it. I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. Like, you know what I mean? Because that's just so bizarre to me. Like that you're that age and you can, I mean, it, it props to him. It's amazing. But it also makes me think people with money, and that kind of power, they, they're likely getting way better medical treatment or maybe even medical treatment that people like you and I don't even know exists because it's just it's bizarre to me that you can be that old. And you're think about that. Think about when you're 92 years old, if you're directing a movie, especially today, 
where like you know the budgets are you know 100 200 250 million dollars i think what's happening is they just have a lot of assistance and things like that to where they they're kind of in charge but there's a lot done by other people there's just only so much you can do and if you want to think of somebody who really was in pretty awful shape at the end and was still technically running things was dick clark after the stroke i I mean he'd appear on these new year's rock and eve programs and he should have just stayed off camera because his whole shtick was being the forever teenager and he did look very young for his age for many years but once he had that stroke then he seemed like a pathetic old man who could barely move his face and barely talk so that's not the he shouldn't have wanted people to remember him like this he should have just gotten out of the public eye after that had dementia or alzheimer's i believe I don't even know if he had that because you could hardly understand him when he spoke because of the stroke, and he was also super old. So, uh, But he he continued appearing on there, and he continued uh, being technically in charge of these productions. And yeah, he did a lot less than before and handed a lot of that to Ryan Seacrest and other people. But still, it was something where he appeared in this stuff all the way to the end when really he should have stepped back at least once that stroke occurred. So I think sometimes just someone has a lot of influence and power in the industry. They can continue with these jobs that otherwise that wouldn't be given Probably. to them. And then, and then they work, they work around their limitations. Because as I was saying, most people over 90, even the ones that will live another 10, 15 years, they really are not the same physically at best. Well, they can kind of walk around and, and, and exist normally. And they're just kind yeah. of slow, but they're, they're never like, uh, very, very active and very, very like they don't appear like someone who seems like they're almost not hobbled at all by their age. Whereas you have eighty-year-olds who can a- appear that way, and at ninety, did, you just don't have it. Did you follow a couple months back when the uh, health news of Bruce Willis became you know widespread and every, you know and that was brought to the forefront that dysplasia i think it's called or something similar to that where he can't speak he can't articulate his words no i didn't know about that no come on are you kidding me no i somebody that one got by how don't you know i don't know i see all these things i missed this somehow i mean this was big this was a big story for about a month so anyhow bruce willis is retired from acting he's never going to act again so he's done he's done with acting so apparently this is insane and you'd almost think i'm making this up or exaggerating but i'm not so apparently the last five to seven years, Bruce Willis has been doing massive amounts of direct-to-video movies. I mean, tons. Go look while I'm telling the story. Pull up his uh, film, film – you know, go to Wikipedia and look at his filmology. It's going to blow your mind to see this because I've never heard of any of these. So, But the thing is that he had this illness. I, I want to – you know, forgive me, audience, if I'm saying it wrong. I'm not – going on and just going off memory i think it was called dysplasia or something like that where uh he literally cannot articulate the words he wants to say like it just doesn't work it's a very weird strange odd disease that doesn't affect a lot of people uh and it also affected his memory so anyhow apparently his family knew that he had this ailment before it got leaked and it's actually amazing it never got leaked you know and you know sooner and they knew he had a very limited time until he just couldn't act anymore. So they literally had him working. And I guess, you know, it didn't really say that, like, Bruce Willis doesn't understand what's going on, but it did say some of the articles I read said he was confused. So anyhow, X amount of time he had to earn money. 
So he was signing as many contracts as he could, regardless of how poor the script was, and just turning out these direct-to-video movies where he's getting a couple million dollars for each one. Um, and the thing was, he at that point, like the last five years, he wasn't able to, to even remember his lines. So they had literally earpieces. You know, they had an earpiece in both ears, and there would be somebody that would tell him what to say, okay, and then he would immediately say it. And that's how we filmed these movies. Then it got to the so bad, like the last two or three years, and I haven't seen any of these movies, but I've read the reviews, that they literally, in some cases, had to cut back his dialogue by like 60, 70, 80%, where he's literally just saying four or five words in a scene. And then he'll say another four or five words in another scene. Like it was just – so anyhow, it got to the point that people are like, something isn't right here. You know, this just doesn't make sense. So then they came out with this illness, and he officially is done with acting forever. I mean, he you know he can't even speak. Yeah, I see that the the, the disease is called aphasia. So that's why you thought I, it was I dysplasia. said dysplasia, but yeah, yeah, I knew it was something. You know, dysplasia similar. is actually what my dog had the one with that the died hips, last year right? with the that's, hips. Yeah, yeah, yeah he had yeah, hip dysplasia. Yeah. But, but did you look at his film? All, like, the, yeah, the I film? see. There's a bunch of weird direct-to-video movies, like a whole bunch of them that I've never heard of. So, and I, I see this about the earpiece that, and he'd be paid like two million dollars sometimes for like 15 minutes of screen time. And yeah, that's he, right. They, they literally, like some of these movies, they would they would literally film, you know, a two-hour movie. They would just need him for a weekend. <laughs> and they'd give him $2 million. He'd have an assistant come. They'd put, you know, I mean, I'm not laughing because it's funny. It's just, it's, it's, you know, it's a lot of money for just, you know, anyone. And they'd, you know, put the little earplugs in. They'd tell him what to say. And, you know, so someone had edited, uh, you know, just, a, I don't know, just, you know, an edit of, the various lines from some of these movies. And it's literally like, just, I don't know, like kind of, if you took the aura of who Bruce Willis is and like the macho tough guy kind of thing. And you just look at the lines are all basically the same thing. Like, or he would just say five words, like, well, we're going to have to make him pay. Well, we're going to get even like, you know what I mean? It was just like cliche sentences. And that's like all his dialogue for all the, you know what I mean? It's just, cause that's all he could do. Like it, 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 it's it's pretty bad. I felt awful when I saw this because he's, you know, he's a legendary actor. Yeah, he's like, not even that not, old. I see he's uh, sixty-seven, so he's not even that old. Yeah, and he's not even exactly. Mm. So I'm surprised you didn't know about that. I mean, no, somehow I didn't hear about this. Mm. Yep. So he's done now, and now, you know, I don't, I don't know. I didn't read enough about it to determine or to remember if this affects your long-term lifespan. Meaning, I don't know, like if this is something where now we're probably just never going to hear from him and find out he died in a year or two, or I don't know if it affects other things that, that lower your, your lifespan, but either way, it's, it's, it's pretty sad. I mean, like, geez, I mean, you know, and then you see somebody like Woody Allen, who's like 88 years old and he's directing, like, it's just weird. Yeah, like I'm not sure either if this, so- if, if this cuts down the lifespan or if you just have trouble communicating and you start getting confused. And Yeah. I don't know. It could be either one. I have to think this would probably shorten lifespan, but who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, like I said, life is, you know, it's crazy. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, I know you talked about this. I don't know if you ever talked. Did you ever talk about Rich Corbin on radio or no? Yeah, I think we talked about it a little bit. Or maybe okay. I didn't. Maybe I didn't talk about it. I'm forgetting well, if I mentioned So anyhow, you know, Rich Corbin, he recently passed away. Uh, and, I'm, you know, I wasn't particularly, like, you know, close, close. But, I, you know, I was friends with him. I've known him a long time. 
uh, Jeannie was like best friends with him. I know a lot of other people that were, you know, Nolan Dalla, like that was Nolan Dalla's best friend or one of his best friends. And, but I traveled all over the last 15 years at different locations and, and Rich, you know, would be there or he would meet us. And, you know, especially when I was with Jeannie and, you know, he was healthy, you know, for someone in his late seventies, uh, you know, nothing, nothing that most people that age didn't have, you know, just, you know, nothing, I mean, no major ailments at all. And uh, he's coming to Vegas for the World Series and on the way to, I don't know if you ever discussed how he died. He was coming to Vegas for the World Series, this, you know, past World Series. And on the way to Vegas, uh, he had fallen uh, at the airport and he ended up breaking a leg. He ended up breaking his leg. Or maybe he was at home getting ready, packing, and go to the airport. Yeah, that's what it was. Anyhow, he broke a leg. He fell, broke his leg. And he was conscious, you know, just, oh, I broke my leg. And he's more mad that he's you know, going to be late to the World Series and he's got to deal with this. So they had to perform a surgery. Uh, in fact, I know you and I talked off, off radio about this because you know, yeah, we, we talked did. about the we anesthesia. Did. Yeah, I don't, it, it wasn't on radio. So anyway, broke his leg. This was in Colorado. It wasn't in Vegas. And like I said, he was more upset that he was going to miss probably the first half of the World Series. And they put him under and uh, performed surgery on his leg. And he came out of the anesthesia and, you know, he wasn't really lucid. He didn't know what was going on. And apparently right after, you know, they woke him up after the surgery, which was successful. uh, He had a heart attack, you know, from, I guess, the, I don't know, from from the anesthesia, from the stress, whatever it may be. And he died, never made it out of the hospital for a broken leg. So, you know, like I said, you know, that's literally the exact scenario of you know no one ever saw it coming you know it just people were expecting to see him he had made you know dinner plans with people for the you know upcoming series and and meetings and things of that nature he worked for poker stars he was uh i I know i'm going to say some of this wrong i want to believe he was in their marketing yeah i think he was was like the marketing director i believe yeah well i I know okay i don't know if he was the i was going to say that but i know dan goldman was the longtime marketing director yeah that's right but what so whatever he had a you know he, some title, but he was in charge of marketing. And back in you know the the poker boom days, uh, he was he did a lot of the sponsorship with players. Like when players were making final tables, you know, two thousand six, seven, eight uh, at the World Series, he would talk with them and and facilitate deals where they would wear poker stars uh, gear, uh, you know, in in lieu of you know some sort of payment and you know buy-ins and I don't know. I obviously none of that ever applied to me but i know you kind of had a little bit of what well, was it with ultimate bet or full tilt didn't you have a uh, some dealings with sites about getting paid to wear merchandise yeah i i did with a few of them and uh even with poker stars in 2010 i didn't d- deal with him directly but when i made it to the final 120 in at the main event in 2010 at the world series I, I got some money from Poker Stars, but as I said, I, I didn't uh, directly interface with him. Right? But, yeah. Okay. But that's what. Yes. Yeah, so, but that's what he did. And you know, it's funny now looking back to think that there was an era not so far removed where literally making a final table. You know, first of all, making any big no limit, and I don't mean a big buy-in. I just mean a big field no limit tournament. It was going to be televised, and in some cases, I guess it's safe to say, you know, you you could procure more money. You know, from these sites, then you could make, or, or you know, whether it was just for that one deal or just future stuff, then you could for first place money. I yeah. mean, meaning like, okay, so 
back in the day, you, you'll, you'll know more about this. I'm sorry if that question doesn't make sense, but I'll explain. So back in the day, there's a 5,000, 4,000 person, you know, $1,500 no limit tournament. And, you know, that was all the rage and those were televised. So you make the final table and, you know, whatever, you, you know, you're in the middle of the pack and you're not a big name because a lot of these players weren't big names. Poker stars comes up to you to the best of your knowledge. What kind of what what, what is an offer that was reasonable that you could expect to make? Actually, I mean, they didn't make I, I know. I know they, uh, it was only the final table. They didn't come up to you in the middle of the event. No, the, no, that's why that's why I said the final table. Right. I, and also just for, you know, a little. Well, I can tell you one. I, I, can, I can give you an example of one personally. A lot. It, a it, lot of times it was also full tilt that was competing as well. So yes. you kind of could leverage. But OK, so what would an average deal be in 2007? Mm-hmm. At the 1K no limit with rebuys, I was down to the final 10. And I did not rebuy or add on, by the way. I did this all in one bullet. I was down to the final 10. And I actually had a deal with Full Tilt that if I made the televised final table, they combined us all to one table on the day before the final table that was going to be televised, but we had to bust one more player to make it nine. And uh, the funny thing is, whenever a really big name made it to the final ten, and I mean like a really big name like Helmuth, then they would actually televise it with ten. But uh, we didn't have that this time. We had some moderately big names, but nothing that was huge. So they had to get it down to nine, and I had a deal that Full Tilt was going to give me 15K to simply show up and wear the hat even if I didn't make it on TV, even if uh, I was busted after one hand, even if I came in with a super short stack, I just had to make that final table. And then I got it all in pre-flop with the other short stack. And neither of us were like tiny stacked. We were short, but neither of us were crippled. So we still had some play left in our stacks, both of us. We had almost identical stacks. He had a, a hair more than me, but whoever lost the hand was essentially out. I was actually out. If he had lost, he would have been essentially out. And uh, he raised from small with ace-king suited. I re-raised him with queens from the big, and then he put me all in. I snap-called. Very obvious play for both of us. Safe flop, safe turn, and the old ace of spades on the river. And that was it for me and my fifteen grand. So I didn't get to receive that money, but it was a televised table. And I would have gotten 15 cages for showing up. Plus, I, I didn't get the rest of this because I hadn't signed anything yet. I was just uh, asked by one of the agents there if I'll be willing to wear the cap for 15 grand to start. And I said yes, but yes, it actually goes up depending on how far you make it. So I'm not sure what the ceiling was on this, but I would have gotten a minimum of 15 for simply just showing up at the final table with that full tilt hat on. And I, right. But I guess what I meant is, if you made the final table, and then you know, so, so a lot of these deals were just done the night before because you know you don't. It's not like a sporting event where you have a week or you know sometimes longer you know to, to prepare and do these things. So say you were at the final table and you were in the middle of the pack. And you know this was still going on. What what do you think the offer would have been? I, I think if, if it's if, if it's still nine there. people left, I think they would have been the same fifteen k, and then okay. you would have gotten additional based upon how far you make it, and stuff like that. And so what would it, what would it, theoretically what would your best guess be to what a a, a winner back in 
those days would get from just you know marketing from one of the online sites the guy that won you know that no one ever heard of before that won the five thousand six thousand person thousand dollar fifteen hundred no limit what well, that's being televised on espn what would they get now this part i winning? don't this part i don't even know but i know that uh you wouldn't get it all in cash for these larger amounts it would sometimes be they would buy you into future events where you'd agree to wear the gear so I never got that far in these things because I didn't play that many tournaments, especially right. so like, and, and it's also hard to make it you know, very deep in those fields, but I also didn't play enough. Just, I didn't put in the volume to get there. So, and, and they weren't all televised. So the, uh, the one I was describing there was one of those that was, and, and I got that offer. And this was during that boom in, in 07. Right. Well, anyhow, getting back to that. So that's what, that's what Rich Corbin, that was a lot of what he did, but uh, regardless, he was very, very much, uh, you know, loved and respected and well known in the poker community for a long time. And, uh, you know, anyhow, like I said, it, you know, just you break a leg, you know, you wake up, you think you're going to Vegas that day, you end up tripping over something, you break a leg and the next day you're, you're, you're not even alive anymore. It's just, you know, yikes, you know, it just makes you realize how precious life is. But Yeah, yeah, especially uh, as you get older and the chances of just things abruptly going wrong goes way up. When you're 25, yeah. unless you get in an accident or you're a victim of violence or had some really you know, fluke disorder that you didn't know about, you're not going to just abruptly die one day. But when, once you pass 50 especially, then really anything can happen at any time. And, of course, the chance of that goes up and up as you get older and older. Yeah. Well, I know this is a, a complete 360. Uh, so, actually, actually, it could be a 180. I know you didn't talk about this. And we won't get into it now. Um, but if you want to cover this on the next show, I'll throw out just a little teaser. Or maybe it doesn't even need any further discussion. But uh, it is very likely that by the end of this year, Las Vegas will be somewhat like the uh, city of Amsterdam. Uh, do you know what, what way I'm referring to? Uh, no. So right now, literally, the the, the Las Vegas, uh, Clark County, the city commission, is working on the rules uh, and the laws that will uh, govern these, lo- these marijuana consumption lounges that are going to be springing up. This It's funny, you know, we talk about it now. I don't even think anyone's heard about it. It's been in the news. I've been reading about it. It really, very strangely, hasn't gotten any mainstream news yet. Like, I haven't seen it. You know, like, on, or I guess I should say any of the mainstream gambling sites. Like, I haven't seen in poker news or card player covering it. Because, you know, it's, it's Vegas, and they cover that kind of stuff. So, but anyhow, they're working on now just the requirements for the licensees and for just what laws will govern it. But when they legalize marijuana in Las Vegas, uh, four or four and a half years ago uh they made a real real big mistake and and the mistake was they have a high concentration of these dispensaries that are around the strip so that gave people the impression you can smoke weed in las vegas but that's the thing the way the law is written you're only allowed to smoke marijuana in a private home and it specifically states you know places you can't smoke weed now obviously some of them you know you're gonna know Regardless, you know, while you're driving, you know, in a, in a school, in a park, you know, in a restaurant, but you're not allowed to smoke marijuana in a casino. You're more so you're not allowed to smoke marijuana in your room. 
And I know people still do, but I hear this all the time. And I hear these horror stories of people, some of them getting kicked out for, you know, and I think those are the ones that are just excessive and don't even try to hide it. Some people getting, you know, $500 fees for, for the smoke cleanup or whatever that they, they call it, where if you get caught smoking in a room. So it was kind of a ridiculous thing for them to cater all this marijuana for tourists, but there's no safe legal place because most people that come here, they don't have friends that they can go to a private house and, and smoke. And, you know, so anyhow, so what they're doing now is they're in the process, like I said, of working out the, 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 the small details and I guess to a certain extent, the large details, but they are claiming by the end of this year, it's very possible. The first, you know, one of these may spring up and it's going to be a, you know, lounge area where there's not allowed to be no alcohol uh, can be so- sold no tobacco can be sold uh, i don't think even marijuana can be sold um, but they're going to have the paraphernalia you know i guess like pipes and papers and things of that nature and snacks and you know i guess munchies as, as you'd call it and it's going to be a legal place where anyone who's 21 or older can enter and consume marijuana oh yeah i know and the big thing they're working on is the training uh, they're trying to figure out what the standard will be in terms of educating employees as to overconsumption. That's the big thing before this gets passed. They want to come up with some sort of guidelines on, you know, when enough is enough, which I think, you know, alcohol, you know, that's something very similar that they train bartenders with. You know, if you get a job as a bartender here uh, in Nevada, like it's, it literally is criminal if you overserve somebody to excess where, you know, they, can drive and kill somebody or they hurt themselves. So, but with weed, it's kind of weird. Like, you know what I mean? Like it, it's not such a defined, how do you know when someone smoked too much? Because everyone's tolerance is kind of different. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you know, there's some people that I'm sure, you know, just in life that have smoked marijuana for so long that they could just sit there and smoke joint after joint and they're not going to act any different. Like, you know what I mean? I'm sure, you know, people like that in your life. That yeah. Are, or maybe you don't. Okay. So, but anyhow, it's going to be interesting. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. And then the other thing is, they are trying to figure out how far or how you know the distance uh, in terms of how close or how far it needs to be from casinos. I mean, they don't; these aren't going to be attached to casinos. But then again, they don't want to make these on Maryland Parkway or somewhere that's so far that tourists can't get there. So they're they're figuring all that out. But anyway, that's going to be coming to a Vegas near you soon, where you literally will be able to, in all likelihood, walk out of your hotel and. Either you know a short walk to one of these places, or if not a definitely a short Uber or drive, and then sit there with your closest friends and openly smoke marijuana all day. Uh, so, Jeff, I'll just ask you, what do you think about this? What do you think about a? a vi- I mean, I know you've noticed a difference over the last four years. When you come here, you smell more. Do you, do you smell more marijuana? Yes, yeah, we do, before? and I agree that if they're going to legalize it, that it, that they can't have a weird law that says, well, you can. Buy marijuana here, but you can't smoke it unless you're at a private residence. That makes no sense. It that makes no, and you and, can't and, take it home with you. Yeah, and, it's and federal. Yeah, they can't. The airport, so, like it's the stupidest thing. In fact, I think the hotels should just uh, designate smoking rooms the same way they do for cigarettes. Gaming, gaming won't allow it. That's why. Yeah, well, that's that's what they need to change. Though they need to change yeah. it, and uh, either if you're going to legalize it, then allow it in in smoking rooms. 
And if you're not going to legalize it, then don't. But uh, this weird middle ground doesn't make any sense. So I don't even know if these lounges are going to do much because still most people who get marijuana and want to smoke it, they they don't want to go all the way down to one of these lounges. They just want to go back to their room and smoke it with uh, whoever they're with. So I, yeah. I think this is still going to be a problem. Well, if, if it becomes something that's like trendy, almost kind of like a nightclub kind of theme, then maybe, you know, maybe you could see that being popular where, you know, there's music and I mean, I don't know, who knows, but I'm sure there's going to be a certain element that will take advantage of it. Yeah, there will know, be. But, but yeah, but, but I do agree. It, it's, and you know, it's way past that. It's not even middle ground anymore because, you know, it's, it's already legal. They're not going to. You know, they're not going to change that. They're not going to, you know, make marijuana consumption illegal here. There's too, it's too much money now it's bringing in. But it's just really interesting because when I talk to people, that's the most common thing. They don't know. They just assume it's illegal to just smoke it, and it isn't. But at the same time now, you know, the likelihood of any kind of criminal, you know, proceedings because you're caught with marijuana or you're smoking marijuana, you know, isn't going to be enforced. And that's why you smell it so much because people just kind of basically know. You know, it's almost going to be treated like a cigarette where someone's just going to say, put it out, put it in, you know, even the police to, to a certain degree. I mean, it's not going to be enforced criminally. So it's a weird thing. I know my dad, for instance, hates it because now every time he goes to the strip, he smells it everywhere. And he's kind of, you know, he's older, you know, school, and he just thinks it's kind of r- ridiculous that it's, it casts like a bad light on the city. Just that it's everywhere. I mean, because you do, like, you know, you're in a parking garage, you smell it. You walk in an elevator, you smell it. It's everywhere. And I have nothing. I don't mind it. You know, I don't smoke weed, you know, anymore. It's been a very long time, but, uh, well, you know, yeah, it's so it, and, and it's inevitable that this is going to happen when they yeah. legalize it. And this is what I said when there was discussion about legalizing marijuana. And I said, if you do it, then you're going to see a big uptick in the usage and people said oh no you're not anyone who wants it can get it and i said anyone who really wants it can get it anyone who it's important to getting can get it but right. when you change that from anyone who really wants it can get it to anyone can get it at any time and it's totally legal that's going to bring in a lot more people doing it and you're going to see a lot more of it going on it's going to be a lot more common all over society. And uh, so I had actually thought the better approach rather than uh, the full legalization or even the stupid uh, medical thing, which was a sham for most people, most people getting medical marijuana really weren't using it medicinally. And the whole thing was kind of stupid. I feel you should go one way or the other. But I, I actually thought it was better the old way where they just uh, it's not legalized but it's something that's not enforced and it's something that is you kind of they kind of look the other way as far as usage of it but it's not explicitly allowed or just available in stores because if you don't want it to take over everywhere then uh, that's what you have to do otherwise it, it it can start to become as common as alcohol usage or at least close and Anyone who felt that was not going to happen by legalizing it wasn't being realistic, and, and, and now we're seeing the results. And, you know, maybe it, it doesn't bother some people. And uh, uh, I, I actually prefer – and it, it doesn't yeah, kill me to smoke it. I, I've been around this ever since high school. I would smell it in the high school bathroom. I, I would smell it. It was around college everywhere. It's been around poker everywhere. I've, I've had yeah. a lot of marijuana smoked in my presence, and I haven't run out of the room. 
and uh, and I haven't demanded anyone put it out or anything like that. But uh, you know, I don't smoke it myself, and so I personally prefer it's just not everywhere and and all over the place when I'm walking around. So I knew that was going to happen. So saying that, I'm reading an article in the Review Journal. Uh, initially, they're going to give licenses for 20 of these consumption facilities. So that's how it will start, and that's for the entire state. So. But you're right. I wasn't really thinking about that. Now, you know, now that I'm thinking more clearly, uh, you're right. I, I, I wonder how many people. I wonder if they're all going to be ghost towns for the most part. Like if people would make the effort. I'm just trying to think if there is like a population that would just want to go and just sit and be somewhere. And you know, I, I maybe because it's social. The thing like, is, I don't think it's going to be a replacement. I, I think it's going to huh? be in addition to what's being done in the rooms and elsewhere, I don't think it's going to replace that. I don't think people are going to say, well, I would smoke in the room, but you know what? Instead of that, let's go to the lounge and then not smoke in the room. Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. Like, we're much. talking about places like Circus Circus or the Luxor. Like, if you're staying at the Wynn, you know, especially if you're just in a normal room, you can't really just sit there and smoke out because it's going to smell in the hallway and you're going to get kicked out of a place like that. They're not going to tolerate it. So what do those kind of people do? I mean, those are the people that kind of just hit it in the car or hit it like in a parking garage. They're, they're not – I don't think they're really sitting there smoking, you know, in their room comfortably. Yeah, probably know? not if they are concerned about being hit with a fee or something or being kicked out. Yeah. I mean, I know it's funny, you know, because it's true. It's like some places they just don't even enforce it. Like, you know, go to the Rio back in the day when it was populated and you walk down any of the floors there and you're just not – you're going to smell marijuana. You know, and it's so strong, you don't know where it's coming from because it's coming from everywhere, you know. So, anyhow. You but. know, I had a thing happen in college, and then I'm going to shut this down. I've been on forever. But uh, I had this thing happen in college where I was walking down the hallway, and this was late at night, maybe early <laughs> in the morning after I'd been up all night, whatever it was. I'm walking down the hallway. I just come into the building, and I was going to go back to my dorm room. And the resident assistant, who's the like older student who's been designated in charge of the of that hall, and and s- another student who lived in the hall, they're walking up and down the hall, sniffing. You know, what is that? What is that? Where's that coming from? Is there something wrong with the vent? And so, I'm just smelling marijuana. I'm going, wait a minute, could they be talking about that? So I said, what are you doing? They said, well, we're trying to figure out what that smell is. I said, you really don't know. They said, no, we don't know. We think it could be something wrong with the vent. We're trying to figure out which vent is, is, is faulty. And uh, I said, so you don't recognize that smell at all? And they said, no. Both of them really had no clue what that smell was. And I said, you're serious. You're not joking with me? Like, you, you really don't know this smell? And both of them said no. And I said, okay, let's think about this for a second. Think about where the smell is strongest. They go, okay, right there. I go, okay, now think about where you are in that hallway. Would it make sense to you why you would have a certain smell in this part of the hallway. And I was trying to make them understand that the, the, who, the room they were standing in front of were, were two people who were clearly stoners living in that room. And mm-hmm. they're, no, I, that doesn't really mean anything. Is there like some kind of vent there we don't know about? And I said, okay, that's it. I, I'll let you figure this out for yourself. And, and I walked back to my room and that was it. I don't know if they ever figured it out, but I couldn't believe they both didn't know, especially the resident assistant who was like, 20 or 21 and he's supposed to be like in charge of the place and there's a second student with him i never smoked the stuff and i knew it from being around it in uh, in various ways i i just would recognize the smell i recognized that the first time i smelled it 
in the high school bathroom. I knew it wasn't cigarettes I was smoking, so I knew what it had to be. Yeah. So. <laughs> That's fun. Anyway, thank you for coming on, Brandon, and uh, having our sure. usual uh, banter session. And this has been a long show. Oh, I didn't okay, expect hold on, to be... hold on. Just real, real quick. There's one other thing. No, very quick. I promise. So uh, the one thing I wanted to ask you, have you been following, since this is in your neck of the woods, uh, the Vanessa Bryant trial that's ongoing, uh, Kobe Bryant's widow, she's suing the city of Los Angeles, or the county, I'm not sure. I guess yeah, I, I followed it somewhat. So they're wrapping up the trial, and I, actually I think it's already over. I think the jury's deliberating or they're about to. Have you seen some of the testimony? Because it's, it's going to help you make answer the question. No, I really haven't. Okay. So just to give you an, okay. So quick backstory is more or less every family. Well, what happened was, as you know, when Kobe and the others perished, including her daughter, uh, there were pictures that first responders took and they were shared in some cases with people that weren't even part of the apartment, people that had no purpose to see them. And it got to the point that a bartender, uh, just, you know, working at a bar was shown a picture by one of the first responders and another customer was sitting right there. No one that even knew the bartender or the, the first responder. And the customer was so uh, just vilified and angry and disturbed by what he saw that he made, you know, made a complaint. And there were other occasions of this. OK, so anyway, they ended up settling with every family, the city for two and a half million dollars per victim for this. You know, for for the photographs being leaked, uh, except for Vanessa Bryant and one other family. And so any uh, they took them to court. They couldn't come up with a number to settle. And it's kind of a strange thing because, you know, the county or, you know, Los Angeles County, they have to defend themselves. But they also have to be mindful in terms of like when they're cross-examining Vanessa Bryant of what they say because they don't want to come off. You know what I mean? Like, you know, her daughter died. You know, her husband was a legend, like, you know, so it's kind of tough to defend yourself. So anyhow, you know, one of the people that testified was a firefighter and he admitted under oath that he was playing video games with other firefighters. Uh, some were a member of, of his department. Others weren't. But he started sharing the photos while they were playing a video game session on this discord. Uh, but again, everyone that he shared them with were people that had no right nor need or no purpose to see okay and a long story short so it's pretty much a given she's going to get some kind of monetary award here that it's not like they're going to you know not fine for her my question to you is what would you guess she's going to get and she's been on there and she's been crying and you know she's and i'm not saying it's not sincere but you know it's been a very emotional thing and i'm sure that's going to weigh on the jurors but uh, you know, this could be a landmark type thing, so that's that's why I'm asking you. Or maybe I maybe like uh, maybe twelve million or something. Twelve million, okay. Yeah, and by the way, I've said this before, I think, but I attempted to go hike at yeah. the site where this occurred, and I waited a little bit. I waited till they said it was going to be safe, and they never quite gave the go ahead. They were saying, "Well, don't go there now because there's still chemicals that." Uh, are there from the crash that are unsafe and that we're not going to let anyone up there and anyone who trespasses will be arrested, blah, blah, blah. So I didn't mess with that. I waited months to pass, and I said, okay, well, now it's got to be safe. And I tried to call the sheriff around there, and they said, well, we don't know. 
I said, what do you mean, we don't know? Well, we don't have information on this. Well, can I go or not? Uh, we don't know. It was a very weird thing. Yeah, they, they were saying they're going to notify people when they can. They never did. And when I tried to call, they wouldn't give me this information saying they didn't know. So I went down there and private security was stopping people from entering the trail from either side. They had them on both sides, stopping people from passing through to get to the trail. One in a public park, they were blocking it off. And the other one, uh, the, it was kind of near like a, the Metropolitan Water District, which is also a public thing. And they were claiming it's, quote, private property, which on one side, it wasn't really private property, but it was the property of the water district. And they technically could stop people from uh, passing through there. The other one I didn't even understand because the, the trail began at a public park. But they were stopping you on both sides, private security. They just claimed it's private property. And they claim you just can't go. And I said, who hired you? They wouldn't tell me. And they were seemingly there 24-7. So I thought the only sensible answer to this one was that Vanessa Bryant was paying this private security firm to just prevent people from going up there. And I, I, I never went back to see if this ever stopped. Probably by now it did. But I was surprised months later they had this private security that was stopping people from going up there and they wouldn't answer any questions. Now, I could have attempted to challenge it and just kept walking to see what they would have done. But I, I, I didn't want to go that badly. I just left after asking some questions that they wouldn't answer. But they clearly were not the police. And it wouldn't oh. have made sense for either but the I, park or the, or the water district to hire even them. Have the, would she even have the legal right to hire private security to... What the, okay, so where he crashed again? Remind me what what is that land considered? Is that is that state owned land? Is it city owned land? Is it so it, it yeah, it's it's I believe just county land that's part. It's actually he crashed pretty much right on a trail, so it's part of a trail system that I think is just county land. It's it's not owned by anyone to my knowledge other than the county. I don't think she legally could put her own security there then. No, How but I, I think I, that's what I – I think that yeah. it was quasi-legal that she put the security there and got permission from the local sheriff to do it, that it wasn't technically something they could do, but she's doing it, and if you call the police, they're not going to do anything. That was my guess that okay. uh, was yeah. going on. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, anyhow, that's all I got. Uh, sorry for hijacking, but, you know, I – had a lot of things to say and uh, some good, interesting stuff. And thanks for having me on. And when when are you going to be on again? Should be another week or so. I don't know the exact date yet. It's, it's kind of drifted to Monday. I intended to go Saturday, and then it went to Sunday. Sunday was the announced date. And then I had a headache yesterday. I had a tension headache I woke up with. And I just uh, I, I didn't feel it would got better enough to do the show because it takes a lot out of me to talk all these hours and I didn't want to bring the headache back on so I said all right uh, and and I, I appreciate people who are worried for me that that you know, I have these headaches and uh, am I okay but this is something I've dealt with for over 20 years or actually about 25 years and I just get a lot of these I get about 250 per year and in the summer it's almost every day so this is not anything to be alarmed about, and it's not anything where I have to like get better. It's more of just like on a particular day, 
I will sometimes have a headache I can't get rid of. On most days, I can take aspirin and it's gone within 20 minutes and then I just go about whatever. I do take aspirin with me to every single poker tournament and poker cash game that I play live because I get these so commonly that I've got to have the aspirin on me at all times to take if they come on. So that's how common these are, especially in the summer months. So that's what happened yesterday, and it was one that was tough to get rid of. So I, I got it mostly rid of it by the time radio would have started, but I, I just thought it was better to wait another day, and it probably was a better idea because I didn't have a headache at the start of this radio. So there you go. Okay, well, glad you're feeling better now. And listen, thank yourself you don't get mag- migraines like I do. No, I don't. I know you struggle with the migraines. Yeah, it's, a, it's much less severe than migraines. It's just more numerous. So whereas uh, migraines can be debilitating and you just can't do anything, this is something where it doesn't stop me from doing things. I can go about my day normally, and it's just uncomfortable for most of them. There's a few that are pretty bad, but most of them are kind of uh, low to mid-level headaches, but it just I just get it almost every day in the summer. So it's like just part of life. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it, and uh, I'll have to do it again soon. Yes, thank you for coming on, Brandon. I'm sure a lot of people will be happy to hear your appearance here at the end of the show. And that is it. It's going to be a long one. And bad news for those of you that are just catching it now and expecting the archives soon. I'm worn out from this. I'm not doing the archives now. So you can wait till later in the day. In fact, somebody, I won't say who, but somebody told me they're taking a long flight and they want me to get the archives done by 4 p.m. It's not going to happen. If it was the shortest show, I probably would have. But, you know, last week, last week I actually did the archives right after the show. So they were up, like, really fast last time, last week. I just, I finished the show. It wasn't a long show. And I said, you know what? I've got the energy to do the archives. So I, I went and did the archives right after the show. I did the editing. I slapped it up there. It was all done. Today, I, I'm going to take a break. I'm not going to do the archives. Because... You know, it's some work here. I, I go back and I edit out the dead air and anything else that needs to be edited so the whole thing sounds better. And when it's a very long show, it takes a while to do that. So thank you to Brandon for coming on. And we even had Trader Ruski for a bit at the beginning. Thank you to my co-host here. And thank you to those that have sent me stories to cover... A lot of the stories tonight were indeed ones that were sent to me that I otherwise would not have done. So keep them coming. We should have weekly shows for the foreseeable future. I don't have any kind of uh, vacations planned. You never know. I could get sick or something, but... I don't think I'm susceptible to COVID still because the dominant variant is BA5 and I'm pretty convinced I had either BA4 or BA5 back in June. So that leaves me immune to the current variant of COVID. I can still get a cold or a flu or something or something else, but as long as that all doesn't happen, then you should be seeing this approximately once per week. And we will... Keep going forward with Poker Fraud Alert Radio. If you want to text me, 775-372-8355, I'll be glad to interact with you 
after the show. Good night. Good morning, everybody. As always, shalom.